This is Audible. Harper Audio presents Good to Great Why Some Companies Make the Leap and Others Don't. Written and read by Jim Collins. To say this book is by Jim Collins overstates the case. Without the significant contributions made by other people, this book would certainly not exist. At the top of the list are members of the research team. I was truly blessed to have an extraordinary group of people dedicated to the project. In aggregate, they contributed something on the order of 15,000 hours of work to the project, and the standard they set for themselves and the quality of their work set a high standard for me to try to live up to. As I struggled with writing the book, I pictured all the hard-working members of the team who had dedicated months, in some cases years, to this effort looking over my shoulder and holding me accountable, challenging me to create a final manuscript that met their standards, worthy of their toil and their contribution. I hope this effort meets with their approval. Any failure to reach that standard rests entirely with me. I'd like to briefly list right up front the names of all the members of the research team. You will encounter them in later pages because you'll see how the team played a key role in creating the ideas in this book. The members of the research team are, in alphabetical order, Brian J. Bagley, Scott Cedarberg, Anthony J. Chiricos, Jenny Cooper, Dwayne C. Duffy, Eric Hagen, Morton T. Hansen, Lane Horning, Christine Jones, Scott Jones, Stephanie A. Judd, Brian C. Larson, Wyja Eve Lee, Nicholas M. Osgood, Vicki Mosur Osgood, Allison Sinclair, Peter Van Gendren, Paul Weissman, Lee Wilbanks, and Amber L. Young. At the end of this audio reading, I will pause to shine a light on all of the other people who contribute significantly to making this work successful. To all of you, mentioned here and at the end, I thank you. Preface As I was finishing this manuscript, I went for a run up a steep, rocky trail in El Dorado Springs Canyon, just south of my home in Boulder, Colorado. I'd stopped on top at one of my favorite sitting places, with a view of the high country still covered in its winter coat of snow, when an odd question popped into my mind. How much would someone have to pay me not to publish good to great? It was an interesting thought experiment given that I'd just spent the previous five years working on the research project and writing this book. Not that there isn't some number that might entice me to bury it, but by the time I crossed the $100 million threshold, it was time to head back down the trail. Even that much couldn't convince me to abandon the project. I'm a teacher at heart. As such, it's impossible for me to imagine not sharing what we've learned with students around the world. And it's in the spirit of learning and teaching that I bring forth this work. After months of hiding away like a hermit in what I like to call monk mode, I'd very much enjoy hearing from people about what works for them and what doesn't. I hope you'll find much of value in these recordings and will commit to applying what you learn to whatever you do. If not to your company, then to your social sector work. And if not there, at least to your own life. Jim Collins www.jimcollins.com Boulder, Colorado Originally published 2001 
recorded in this recording and updated 2005. Chapter 1. Good is the enemy of great. That's what makes death so hard. Unsatisfied curiosity. Beryl Markham, West with the Night. Good is the enemy of great. And that's one of the key reasons why we have so little that becomes truly great. We don't have great schools principally because we have good schools. We don't have great government principally because we have good government. Few people attain great lives in large part because it is so easy to just settle for the good life. The vast majority of companies never become great precisely because the vast majority become quite good, and therein lies much of their main problem. This became piercingly clear to me in 1996 when I was having dinner with a group of thought leaders gathered for a discussion about organizational performance. Bill Meehan, who ran the San Francisco office of McKinsey & Company, leaned over his salad and casually confided, You know, Jim, we love Built to Last around here. You and your co-author, Jerry Porras, did a very fine job on the research and writing. Unfortunately, it's useless. I asked him to explain. The companies you wrote about in Built to Last were, for the most part, always great, Bill Meehan said. They never had to turn themselves from good companies into great companies. They had parents like David Packard and George Merck who shaped the character of greatness from early on. But what about the vast majority of companies that wake up partway through life and realize, hey, we're good, we're not great? I now realize that Meehan was exaggerating for effect with his useless comment, but his essential observation was correct. Truly great companies, for the most part, have always been great. And the vast majority of good companies remain just that good, but not great. Indeed, Meehan's comment proved to be an invaluable gift, as it planted the seed of a question that became the basis of this entire book. Namely, can a good company become a great company, and if so, how? Can good become great? Or is the disease of just being good incurable? Five years after that fateful dinner, in writing this manuscript, we could say, without question, that good to great does happen. And we've learned much about the underlying variables that make it happen. Inspired by Bill Meehan's challenge, my research team and I embarked on a five-year research effort, a journey to explore the inner workings of good to great. Now, to quickly grasp the concept of the project, I want you to picture a diagram. Now, you might be driving somewhere, you might be sitting at a desk, you might be running on the treadmill, but I want you to fix this picture in your brain. I want you to picture a stock chart that is broken into two halves. On the left half, it's just going sideways, right? It's just absolutely horizontal, totally flat, waffling to the side. And then there's a punctuation point, a, a pivot point, and bang, after a period of time, it starts to rise and climb and climb and climb and climb and climb and climb. So the left side of the page, flat. Right side of the page, climbing, climbing, climbing at about a 45-degree angle. And I'd like you to picture a second curve, which is a curve that tracks the flat curve for the first half of the page. But then, in comparison to when the good-to-great curve shoots upward, the second curve continues to go sideways. In other words, we were looking at companies that showed the top pattern, good performance to great performance in contrast to other companies that showed good performance 
and never made it to great performance. More precisely, we identified companies that made the leap from good results to great results and sustained those results for at least 15 years. We then compared these companies to a carefully selected control group of comparison companies that failed to make that leap, or if they did make a leap, they failed to sustain it. We then compared the good to great companies to the comparison companies to discover the essential and distinguishing factors at work. The good to great examples that made the final cut into the study attained extraordinary results during the years of their leap, averaging cumulative stock returns 6.9 times the general market in the 15 years following their transition point. To put that in perspective, GE, or General Electric, considered by many to be the best-led company in America at the end of the 20th century, outperformed the market by 2.8 times over the 15 years 1985 to 2000. I've just thrown a bunch of numbers at you. The main point here is GE is a great company. GE beat the market 2.8 to 1 in its best 15-year period, 85 to 2000. The companies in our research over a 15-year period after breakthrough beat the market by over twice that amount, 6.9 times the general market. Think about it another way. Imagine you had a child in 1965 and you opened an account for their future and you invested it in the good to great company mutual fund in 1965. You put $1,000 in that account and you take it out in 2000. That $1,000 invested on behalf of your child in 1965 taken out in 2000 would have grown to nearly half a million dollars. Okay, these are remarkable numbers, but they're all the more remarkable when you consider the fact that they came from companies that previously had been so utterly unremarkable. Consider just one case, Walgreens. For over 40 years, Walgreens had bumped along as a very average company, more or less tracking the general market. Then in 1975, seemingly out of nowhere, bang, Walgreens began to climb and climb and climb, and it just kept on climbing. From December 31, 1975 to January 1, 2000, $1 invested in Walgreens beat $1 invested in technology superstar Intel by two times, GE by nearly five times, Coca-Cola by nearly eight times, and the general stock market, including the NASDAQ stock run-up at the end of 1999, by over 15 times. Think about that. How on earth did a company with such a long history of being nothing special transform itself into an enterprise that outperformed some of the best-led organizations in the world? And why was Walgreens able to make the leap when other companies in the same industry with the same opportunities and similar resources, such as Eckerd, did not make this leap? This single case, this match pair, Walgreens versus Eckerd, captures the essence of our quest. Now let me be clear, this book is not about Walgreens per se, or any of the specific companies we studied. It is about the question, can good become great, and our search for timeless, universal answers that can be applied by any organization. Our five-year quest yielded many insights, a number of them surprising and quite contrary to conventional wisdom, but one giant conclusion stands above the others. We believe, based on the research, that almost any organization can substantially improve its stature and performance perhaps even become great if it consciously applies the framework of ideas we've uncovered. Keep in mind 
This book is about well-founded hope. Keep in mind, we picked companies that weren't great, that became great. They changed themselves. They changed their own destiny of mediocrity to greatness. That is a hopeful message that we took and we hope you take. This book is dedicated to teaching what we've learned. The remainder of this introductory chapter tells the story of our journey, outlines our research method, and previews the key findings. Then in Chapter 2, we'll launch headlong into the findings themselves, beginning with one of the most provocative of the whole study, Level 5 Leadership. Undaunted Curiosity People often ask, what motivates you to undertake these huge research projects? It's a good question. The answer is curiosity. There's nothing I find more exciting than picking a question that I don't know the answer to and embarking on a quest for answers. It's deeply satisfying to climb into the boat like Lewis and Clark and head west saying, we don't know what we'll find when we get there, but we'll be sure to let you know when we get back. We came to think of our mascot as Curious George, always wanting to look under the yellow hat just to see what's there. Here's the abbreviated story of this particular odyssey of curiosity. Phase 1. The Search With the question in hand, can good become great, I began to assemble a team of researchers. And in fact, when I use we throughout this book, I'm referring to the research team. In all, 21 people worked on the project at key points, usually in teams of 3 or 4 or 6 at a time. Our first task was to find companies that showed the good-to-great pattern, exemplified in that chart I described for you that showed the curve going sideways that then exploded upwards. We launched a six-month death march of financial analysis, looking for companies that showed that basic pattern. Fifteen-year cumulative stock returns at or below the general market, punctuated by a transition point then cumulative returns at least three times the market over the next 15 years. Good results to great results. We picked 15 years because it would transcend one-hit wonders and lucky breaks. It's very hard to be lucky, just lucky, for 15 years, and would exceed the average tenure of most chief executive officers, thus helping us to separate great companies from companies that just happen to have a single great leader. We picked three times the market because it exceeds the performance of most widely acknowledged great companies. Let me just put this in perspective. If you had a mutual fund of the following marquee set of companies, 3M, Boeing, Coca-Cola, GE, Hewlett-Packard, Intel, Johnson & Johnson, Merck, Motorola, Pepsi, Procter & Gamble, Walmart, and Walt Disney. A dollar invested in those companies over the period 1985 to 2000, a 15-year period, beat the market 2.5 to 1. We made our standard into the study 3.0 to 1. This is not a bad set to beat. From an initial universe of companies that appeared on the Fortune 500 in the years 1965 to 1995, we systematically searched and sifted, eventually finding 11 good-to-great examples. A couple of key points deserve brief mention here. First, a company had to demonstrate the good-to-great pattern independent of its industry. If the whole industry showed the same pattern, if the whole industry had a leap upward off of a good base, we dropped the company. The reason is simple. 
We wanted companies that changed themselves rather than those that simply rode a good industry trend. Second, we debated whether we should use additional selection criteria beyond cumulative stock returns. Well, say such things as impact on society or employee welfare or corporate responsibility. We eventually decided not to do that. We eventually decided to limit our selection to the good-to-great results pattern, as we could not conceive of any legitimate and consistent method for selecting on these other variables without introducing our own biases. In the last chapter, I will, however, discuss the relationship between corporate values and enduring great companies. But the focus of this particular research effort is on the very specific question. How to turn a good organization into one that produces sustained, great results. At first glance, we were surprised by this list. Who would have thought that companies like Gillette or Abbott Laboratories would beat companies like GE and Coca-Cola? Or that Walgreens could beat Intel? This surprising list, you have to admit, a dowdier group would be hard to find, taught us a key lesson right up front. It is possible to turn good into great in the most unlikely of situations. This became the first of many surprises that led us to reevaluate our thinking about corporate greatness. So here are the 11 companies, and I'm going to give you the company name, the returns that they delivered in the 15 years after their good to great transition point. Abbott Laboratories. From 1974 to 1989, they beat the market 3.98 times. Circuit City. From 1982 to 1997, they beat the market 18.5 times. Fannie Mae. From 1984 to 1999, they beat the market 7.5 times. Gillette. From 1980 to 1995, they beat the market 7.39 times. Kimberly Clark, from 1972 to 1987, beat the market 3.4 times. Kroger, from 1973 to 1988, beat the market 4.2 times. Nucor, from 1975 to 1990, beat the market 5.2 times. Philip Morris, from 1964 to 1979, beat the market 7.1 times. Pitney Bowes, from 1973 to 1988, beat the market by 7.2 times. Walgreens, from 1975 to 1990, beat the market by 7.3 times. Wells Fargo, from 1983 to 1998, beat the market by four times. Phase two, compared to what? We next took perhaps the most important step in the entire research effort, contrasting the good to great companies to a carefully selected set of comparison companies. The crucial question in our study is not, what did the good to great companies share in common? Rather, the crucial question is, what did the good-to-great companies share in common that distinguished them, that separated them from the comparison companies? 
Think of it this way. Suppose you wanted to study what makes gold medal winners in the Olympic Games. If you only studied the gold medal winners by themselves, you'd find they all have coaches. But if you looked at athletes that made the Olympic team but failed to win a gold medal, you'd find, guess what? Yep, they also have coaches. So saying coaches separates gold medal winners out doesn't fit with the data. The key question is, what systematically distinguishes gold medal winners from those who never won a medal? We selected two sets of comparison companies. The first consisted of direct comparisons. These are companies that were in the same industry as the good to great companies with the same opportunities and similar resources at the time of transition, but that showed no leap from good to great. So think of it this way. Earlier, we talked about Abbott Laboratories having its breakthrough in 1974. In 1974, when Abbott began to climb, there's a perfect matched pair comparison, Upjohn. And at that moment in time, they're very similar companies. 15 years later, Abbott is much better. The second set of comparisons consisted of unsustained comparisons. These made a short-term shift from good to great but then they failed to maintain the trajectory. We added these to address the question of sustainability. In all, this gave us a total study set of 28 companies, 11 good to great companies, 11 direct comparisons, and six unsustained comparisons. So now let me briefly read to you the entire study set. First, I'm gonna give you the good to great companies in contrast to the direct comparisons. Abbott Laboratories, in contrast to Upjohn. Circuit City, in contrast to Silo. Fannie Mae, in contrast to Great Western. Gillette, in contrast to Warner Lambert. Kimberly Clark, in contrast to Scott Paper. Kroger, in contrast to A&P. Nucor, in contrast to Bethlehem Steel. Philip Morris, in contrast to R.J. Reynolds. Pitney Bowes, in contrast to Addressograph. Walgreens to Eckerd, and finally Wells Fargo to Bank of America. Then the six unsustained comparisons stand as a separate set that we looked at as a clump. They were Burroughs, Chrysler, Harris, Hasbro, Rubbermaid, and Teledyne. Phase 3, Inside the Black Box. We then turned our attention to a deep analysis of each case. We collected all articles published on the 28 companies dating back 50 years or more. We systematically coded all the material into categories such as strategy, technology, leadership, and so forth. Then we interviewed most of the good to great executives who held key positions of responsibility during the transition era. We also initiated a wide range of qualitative and quantitative analyses, looking at everything from acquisitions to executive compensation, from business strategy to corporate culture from layoffs to leadership style, from financial ratios to management turnover. When it was all said and done, the total project consumed 10.5 people years of effort. We read and systematically coded nearly 6,000 articles, generated more than 2,000 pages of interview transcripts, and created 384 million bytes of computer data. We came to think of our research effort as akin to looking inside a black box. Each step along the way was like installing another light bulb to shed light on the inner workings of the good-to-great process. 
With data in hand, we began a series of weekly research team debates. For each of the 28 companies, members of the research team and I would systematically read all the articles, analyses, interviews, and the research coding. I'd make a presentation to the team on that specific company, drawing potential conclusions and asking questions. Then we would debate, disagree, pound on tables, raise our voices, pause, reflect, debate some more, pause and think, discuss, pound on tables, resolve, question, and debate yet again about what it all means. It is important to understand that we developed all of the concepts in this book by making empirical deductions directly from the data. We did not begin this project with a theory to test or prove. We sought to build a theory from the ground up, derived directly from the evidence. See, going back to Curious George, it's no fun to pick up the yellow hat, look underneath and go, Aha! I was right all along. No, the real fun is in lifting up the yellow hat, peering underneath, and saying, Ooh, who would have thought? The core of our method was a systematic process of contrasting the good-to-great examples to the comparisons, always asking, what's different, what's different, what's different. We also made particular note of dogs that did not bark. In the Sherlock Holmes classic, The Adventure of Silver Blaze, Holmes identified the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime as a key clue. Turns out the dog did nothing in the nighttime. And that, according to Holmes, was the very curious incident, which led him to the conclusion that the prime suspect must have been someone who knew the dog well. In our study, what we didn't find, dogs we might have expected to bark, but didn't, turned out to be some of the best clues to the inner workings of good to great. When we stepped inside the black box and turned on the light bulbs, we were frequently just as astonished at what we did not see as what we did. For example, Larger-than-life celebrity leaders who ride in from the outside. Well, these people are negatively correlated with taking a company from good to great. Ten of eleven good to great CEOs came from inside the company, whereas the comparison companies tried outside CEOs six times more often. Here's one of my favorites. We found no systematic pattern linking specific forms of executive compensation to the process of going from good to great. The idea that the structure of executive compensation is a key driver in corporate performance, I'm sorry, it's simply not supported by the data. Strategy per se did not separate the good to great companies from the comparison companies. By this I mean both sets of companies did have well-defined strategies. And there's no evidence that the good to great companies spent more time on long-range strategic planning than the comparison companies. Now, fast-forwarding, the good to great companies did attain deeper penetrating insight, but both sets of companies had strategic plans. The good to great companies did not focus principally on what to do to become great. They focused equally on what to not do and what to stop doing. You're going to learn later in these pages that your stop doing list is more important than your to-do list. Technology and technology-driven change has virtually nothing to do with igniting a transformation from good to great. Technology cannot ignite a transformation from good to great. It cannot ignite a transformation from good to great. 
It can accelerate a transformation that has already taken place, but it cannot be a fundamental spark. Mergers and acquisitions play virtually no role in igniting a transformation from good to great. We did not find a single case in corporate history of a company making itself great principally through a giant merger or acquisition. Two big mediocrities joined together never make one great company. Here's one that really surprised me. The good to great companies paid scant attention to managing change, motivating people, or creating alignment. Turns out that under the right conditions, the problems of commitment, alignment, motivation, and change largely melt away. These companies had incredibly motivated employees, yet they spent almost no time motivating employees. We'll get to that. The good to great companies had no name, no tagline, no launch event, no program to signify their transformations. And think about this. Some reported being unaware of the magnitude of the transformation at the time. Later in a chapter, you're going to hear a quote from an executive that said, we were going through a period of total transformation, but we were unaware of it at the time. It's amazing when you think about it. Only later in retrospect did it become clear. Yes, they did produce truly revolutionary leaps in results but they did not do it by revolutionary process. Never confuse the two sides of the coin. Revolutionary process does not equal revolutionary results. You get revolutionary results by an evolutionary process. The good to great companies were not, by and large, in great industries. And some were in terrible industries. In no case do we have a company that just happened to be sitting on the nose cone of a rocket when it took off. Greatness is not a function of circumstance. Greatness, it turns out, is largely a matter of conscious choice. Phase 4. Chaos to Concept I've tried to come up with a simple way to convey what was required to go from all the data, analyses, debates, and dogs that did not bark to the final findings in this book. The best answer I can give is that it was an iterative process of looping back and forth, developing ideas and testing them against the data, revising the ideas, building a framework, seeing it break under the weight of evidence, and then rebuilding the framework yet again. The process was repeated over and over until everything hung together in a coherent framework of concepts. We all have a strength or two in life, and I suppose mine is the ability to take a lump of unorganized information to see patterns, and to extract order from the mess, or what members of the research team call going from chaos to concept. That said, however, I wish to underscore again that the concepts in the final framework are not my opinions. While I cannot extract my own psychology and biases entirely from the research, each finding in the final framework met a rigorous standard before the research team would deem it significant. Every primary concept in the final framework showed up as a change variable in 100% of the good to great companies and in less than 30% of the comparison companies during the pivotal years. Any insight, any idea, no matter how much I personally might like that idea, 
that failed this rigorous test did not make it into the book as a chapter-level concept. There were lots of neat ideas that never made it off the cutting room floor. As I'm sitting here recording this reading now over five years after we completed the research, I just find myself excited all over again about what fun it was to be climbing inside the black box and making sense of the dogs that did not bark and having this wonderful group of researchers who would push back and argue and debate. We came to call ourselves the chimps in honor of our mascot, Curious George. And to be a chimp, you had to be smart and curious and willing to death march and genetically encoded to be irreverent. And having 21 unruly, smart, death-marching chimps all battling with me to try to get the right answer. Oh boy, I can tell you, it was one of the funnest times of my life. Here then is an overview of the framework of concepts and a preview of what's to come in the rest of the book. Now I'd like you to think of the transformation as a process of build-up followed by breakthrough, broken into three broad stages. Stage one, disciplined people. Stage two, disciplined thought. Stage three, disciplined action. Now ingrain that in your brain. Disciplined people, disciplined thought, disciplined action. Now within each of these three stages, there are sub-concepts which are really the chapters of this book. Wrapping around the entire framework is a concept that we came to call the flywheel, which captures the gestalt of the entire process of going from good to great. The flywheel is that idea when I said earlier you get revolutionary results by an evolutionary process. What I really mean to say is you build great momentum in the flywheel by pushing on it turn upon turn. So let me briefly comment on each of the concepts you're going to hear in the rest of the book. Level 5 leadership. We were surprised, shocked really, to discover the type of leadership required for turning good into great. Compared to high-profile leaders with big personalities who make headlines and become celebrities, well, the good-to-great leaders seem to have come from Mars. They were often self-effacing, quiet, reserved, even shy. These leaders turned out to be a paradoxical blend of personal humility and professional will. They're more like Lincoln and Socrates than Patton or Caesar. First who? Then what? We expected that the good to great leaders would begin by setting a new vision and strategy. Well, we found something quite different. We found instead that they first got the right people on the bus, the wrong people off the bus, and the right people in the right seats. And then they figured out where to drive it. The old adage, people are your most important asset. Well, that turns out to be wrong. If you're making something great, people are not your most important asset. The right people are. Confront the brutal facts, yet never lose faith. We learned that a former prisoner of war had more to teach us about what it takes to find a path to greatness than most books on corporate strategy. Every good to great company embraced what we came to call the Stockdale Paradox in honor of Admiral Jim Stockdale. You must retain unwavering faith that you can and will prevail in the end regardless of the difficulties, and at the same time, have the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. 
the hedgehog concept or simplicity within the three circles. To go from good to great requires transcending the curse of competence. Just because something is your core business, just because you've been doing it for years or perhaps even decades, does not necessarily mean you can be the best in the world at it. And if you can't be the best in the world at your core business, then I'm sorry, your core business absolutely cannot form the basis of a great company. It must be replaced with a simple concept that reflects a deep understanding of three intersecting circles. A culture of discipline. All companies have a culture. Some companies have discipline. But few have a culture of discipline. When you have disciplined people, you don't need hierarchy. When you have disciplined thought, you don't need bureaucracy. When you have disciplined action, you don't need excessive controls. When you combine a culture of discipline with an ethic of entrepreneurship, you get the magical alchemy of great performance. Technology accelerators. Good to great companies think differently about the role of technology. They never use technology as the primary means of igniting a transformation. Yet, paradoxically, they are pioneers in the application of carefully selected technologies. We learned that technology by itself is never a primary root cause of either greatness or decline. The flywheel and the doom loop. Those who launch revolutions, dramatic change programs, and wrenching restructurings will almost certainly fail to make the leap from good to great. No matter how dramatic the end result, the good to great transformations never happened in one fell swoop. There was no single defining action, no grand program, no one killer innovation, no solitary lucky break, no miracle moment. Rather, the process resembled relentlessly pushing that giant heavy flywheel in one direction, turn upon turn, building momentum until the point of breakthrough and beyond. So now I want you to keep in mind disciplined people, disciplined thought, disciplined action. And I've gone through the key concepts that fall in those stages. The concepts that I briefly reviewed in the previous few minutes are really the results of the Good to Great Research Project. And they fall into the categories of disciplined people who engage in disciplined thought, who take disciplined action. But there is a fourth stage, which is building greatness to last. In an ironic twist, I now see good to great, not as a sequel to built to last, but as actually the prequel. Good to great is about how to turn a good organization into one that produces sustained great results. Built to last is about how you take a company with great results and turn it into an enduring great company of iconic stature. To make that final shift requires core values and a purpose beyond just making money, combined with the key dynamic of preserve the core, stimulate progress. So think of it this way. You take the good to great principles to get great results. Then you add the built to last principles to go to an enduring great company. If you're already a student of Built to Last, please set aside your questions about the precise links between the two studies as you embark upon the findings here in Good to Great. In the last chapter, I will return to this question and link the two studies together. The Timeless Physics of Good to Great 
I'd just finished presenting my research to a set of internet executives in the late 1990s gathered at a conference when a hand shot up from the back of the room. The young man attached to the hand glared at me and said, Will your findings continue to apply in the new economy? Don't we need to throw out all the old ideas and start from scratch? It's a legitimate question, as we do live in a time of dramatic change. And it comes up so often that I'd like to dispense of it right up front, before heading into the meat of the book. Yes, the world is changing, and it's going to continue to change. But that does not mean we should stop the search for timeless principles. Think of it this way. While the practices of engineering continually evolve and change, the laws of physics remain relatively fixed. I like to think of our work as a search for timeless principles, the enduring physics of great organizations, that will remain true and relevant no matter how the world changes around us. Yes, the specific application will change, the engineering, if you will. But certain immutable laws of organized human performance, the physics, will endure. The truth is, there's nothing new about being in a new economy. Every economy is a new economy. Those who faced the invention of electricity, the telephone, the automobile, the radio, or the transistor, did they feel it was any less of a new economy than we feel today? Of course not. And in each rendition of the new economy, the best leaders have adhered to certain basic principles with rigor and discipline. Some people will say that the scale and pace of change is greater today than any time in the past. Perhaps. I doubt it, but I'll grant that perhaps that might be true. Even so, some of the companies in our Good to Great study faced rates of change that rival anything in our new economy. For example, during the early 1980s, the banking industry was completely transformed in about three years, as the full weight of deregulation came crashing down. It was certainly a new economy for the banking industry. Yet Wells Fargo applied every single finding in this book to produce great results right smack in the middle of the fast-paced change triggered by deregulation. As you immerse yourself in the coming chapters, keep one key point in mind. This book is not about the old economy. This book is not about the new economy. It's not even about the companies we studied, or even about business per se. It is ultimately about one thing, the timeless principles of good to great. It's about how you take a good organization and turn it into one that produces sustained great results, using whatever definition of results best applies to your organization. This might come as a bit of a surprise, but I don't primarily think of my work as about the study of business, nor do I see this as, fundamentally, a business book. Rather, I see my work as being about discovering what creates enduring great organizations of any type. I'm deeply curious to understand the fundamental differences between great and good, between excellent and mediocre. I just happen to use corporations as the means of getting inside the black box. I do this because publicly traded corporations, unlike other types of organizations, have two huge advantages for research. A widely agreed upon definition of results, so we can rigorously select a study set, 
and a plethora of easily accessible data. I do not believe that pure science is possible in the social sector because science requires two fundamental criteria. One of them is replicability. The second is predictability. Now, I don't believe we can have predictability. I do not believe that you predict in the social sector everything that's going to happen in the future because you can't do controlled experiments the way you can in, say, physics or chemistry. However, one thing I'm deeply proud about in our research is that we have the first leg of good science, and that is replicability. Somebody should be able to take the appendix, the research appendix in good to great, without knowing who the companies are, and they should be able to follow the precise research methodology we laid out, get the companies, replicate the research, and validate our findings. This piece of science is strong, and I feel very proud that our data-driven approach can give us reasonable confidence in our findings. That good is the enemy of great is not a business problem. It's a human problem. If we have cracked the code on the question of good to great, we should have something of value to any type of organization. Good schools might become great schools. Good newspapers might become great newspapers. Good churches might become great churches. Good government agencies might become great government agencies. And good companies might become great companies. So I invite you to join me on an intellectual adventure to discover what it takes to turn good into great. I also encourage you to question and challenge what you learn. As one of my favorite professors once said, the best students are those who never quite believe their professors. True enough. But he also said, one ought not to reject the data merely because one does not like what the data implies. I offer everything herein for your thoughtful consideration, not your blind acceptance. You're the judge and jury. Let the evidence speak. In the intervening years since writing Good to Great, I've been delightfully surprised by how the work has reached into non-business. Of the copies that have been sold, based upon my email traffic, I would estimate that something on the order of 40% of our readers are non-business readers. We have people in churches and education and healthcare and homeless centers and police departments. And I think my favorite email was from a fighter pilot who sent an email in saying they'd named their squadron of fighter jets after the hedgehog in Chapter 5. I just picture these fighter jets going up in the sky and knocking the enemy out and thinking to themselves, you may know many maneuvers, but I know one big one, and it's a good one. But there's a serious point to this. When we wrote Good to Great, as you heard a couple of moments ago, I believed that the ideas could apply outside of business. I hoped that they would be embraced outside of business, but I wasn't certain. In the intervening years, the overwhelming support of non-business people of these ideas has been very satisfying to me. At the same time, I've also learned that there are differences in applying the ideas in the social sector than in the business sector. The principles are still the principles, but there are, of course, nuances of application. If you stay tuned to our work, you will eventually see how we address the differences between the two. In the meantime, though, step number one is to learn the fundamental principles, and it is to those principles that we now turn. Chapter 2. Level 5 Leadership. 
You can accomplish anything in life provided that you do not mind who gets the credit. Harry S. Truman In 1971, a seemingly ordinary man named Darwin E. Smith became chief executive of Kimberly Clark, a stodgy old paper company whose stock had fallen 36% behind the general market over the previous 20 years. Smith, the company's mild-mannered in-house lawyer, wasn't so sure the board had made the right choice. A feeling further reinforced when a director pulled Smith aside and reminded him that he lacked some of the qualifications for the position. But CEO he was. And CEO he remained for 20 years. And oh, what a 20 years it was. In that period, Smith created a stunning transformation, turning Kimberly Clark into the leading paper-based consumer products company in the world. Under his stewardship, Kimberly Clark generated cumulative stock returns 4.1 times the general stock market, handily beating its direct rivals, Scott Paper and Procter & Gamble. And not only that, outperforming such venerable companies as Coca-Cola, Hewlett-Packard, 3M, and General Electric. It was certainly an impressive performance. In fact, one of the best examples in the 20th century of taking a good company and making it great. Yet few people, even ardent students of management and corporate history, know anything about this mild-mannered, shy, reserved man named Darwin Smith. And he probably would have liked it that way. A man who carried no airs of self-importance. Smith found his favorite companionship among plumbers and electricians. And he spent his vacations rumbling around his Wisconsin farm in the cab of a backhoe, digging holes and moving rocks. He never sought to be a hero, never sought to be a celebrity. When a journalist came and said, Darwin, please explain your management style. Smith, and I got to picture him. He was dressed unfashionably like a farm boy wearing his first suit bought at J.C. Penney. And he just stared back across the desk in his nerdy-looking black-rimmed glasses. And after a long, and I mean long, like minutes, uncomfortable silence, he said simply, my management style? Eccentric. The Wall Street Journal did not write a splashy feature on Darwin Smith. But if you were to think of Darwin Smith as somehow meek or soft, you would be terribly mistaken. His awkward shyness, his lack of pretense, was coupled with a fierce, even stoic, resolve toward life. Smith grew up as a poor Indiana farm boy. He put himself through college by working the day shift at International Harvester and attending Indiana University at night. One day, he lost part of a finger on the job. The story goes that he went to class that evening and returned to work the next day. While that might be a bit of an exaggeration, he clearly did not let a lost finger slow down his progress toward graduation. He kept working full-time, he kept going to class at night, and he earned admission to Harvard Law School. Later in life, Two months after being named chief executive, doctors diagnosed Darwin Smith with nose and throat cancer, predicting that he had less than a year to live. He told the board about his cancer, but he made it clear that he was not yet dead and he had no plans to die anytime soon. Battling the cancer, Smith held 
fully to his demanding work schedule, while at the same time commuting weekly from Wisconsin to Houston for radiation therapy. And not only that, he beat the cancer. He defeated the cancer. He wore it down. Maybe it was luck. Maybe it was good genes. Maybe it was his stoic resolve. But any way you slice it, he lived 25 more years. 20 of them as CEO. Smith brought that same ferocious resolve to rebuilding Kimberly-Clark, especially when he made the most dramatic decision in the company's history. Sell the mills. Shortly after he became CEO, Smith and his team had concluded that the traditional core business, coated paper, was doomed to mediocrity. Its economics were bad and the competition weak. But, they reasoned, if Kimberly-Clark thrust itself into the fire of the consumer paper products industry, world-class competition like Procter & Gamble would force it to achieve greatness or perish. One night, while sitting on his back porch, he turned to his wife and said, I learned something from fighting my own cancer. If you have a cancer in your arm, you have to have the guts to cut off your own arm. I've made a decision. We're going to sell the mills. So like the general who burned the boats upon landing, leaving only one option, we're either going to succeed here or we're going to die on this island. Smith announced the decision to sell the mills in what one board member called the gutsiest move he'd ever seen a CEO make. Sell even the mill in Kimberly, Wisconsin. This is Kimberly Clark. Sell the mill in Kimberly, Wisconsin and throw all the proceeds into the consumer business investing in brands like Huggies and Kleenex. The business media called the move stupid, and the Wall Street analysts downgraded the stock. Smith never wavered. Twenty-five years later, Kimberly Clark owned Scott Paper outright, and it beat Procter & Gamble in six of eight product categories. In retirement, Smith, who clearly could have gloated over his great success, reflected by saying simply, I never stopped trying to become qualified for the job. Darwin Smith stands as a classic example of what we came to call the level five leader, an individual who blends extreme personal humility, it is not about me, with an intense professional will. We found leaders of this type at the helm of every good to great company during the transition era. Like Smith, they were self-effacing individuals who displayed the fierce resolve to do whatever needed to be done to make the company great. Level 5 leaders channel their ego away from themselves and into a larger goal of building a great company. It's not that Level 5 leaders lack ego or self-interest. Indeed, they are incredibly ambitious, but their ambition is first and foremost for the institution, not themselves. The term Level 5 refers to the highest level in a hierarchy of leadership capabilities that we found in our research. Now, wherever you are, I want you to think of the following hierarchical pyramid. Picture a pyramid that has different stages in it, and at the very base of the pyramid would be your Level 1 stage. And then as you move up that pyramid, you get to Level 2, and then as you go further, you get to Level 3 and four, and at the very top of the pyramid, you get level five. To be a level five means that you've moved through all of these stages. 
level one, stage one, is being a highly capable individual. This means basically you have talent and knowledge and skills and good work habits. When you move up to level two, you become a contributing team member. And this is when you become excellent at contributing your individual talents to a group effort. Then you move to level three, which is to be a competent manager. This is when you get excellent at organizing people and resources toward the achievement and effectiveness of predetermined objectives. A good, solid, competent manager. Level four is the first stage of what we call effective leadership. And level four leaders tend to catalyze commitment to and a vigorous pursuit of a clear and compelling vision. And they stimulate ever higher standards of performance. Now you might think that that's the top of the hierarchy. That's the top of the progression. What could be higher than being an effective leader? Turns out there's a higher level and that is what we found in our research. The higher level is the level five, the level five executive, the level five leader. The level five leader not only has leadership skills, not only has management skills, not only has team skills, not only has individual skills. The level five has that extra dimension of humility and will. That extra dimension of being ambitious first and foremost for the cause, not themselves, and the will to make good on it. This is the signature of the level five. This is the signature that few have. To use an analogy, the leadership is the answer to everything perspective is the modern equivalent of the God is the answer to everything perspective that held back our scientific understanding of the physical world in the Dark Ages. In the 1500s, people ascribed all events they didn't understand to God. Why did crops fail? God did it. Why did we have an earthquake? God did it. What holds the planets in place? God. But with the Enlightenment, we began the search for a more scientific understanding physics and chemistry and biology and so forth. Not that we became atheists, that's not the point here, but rather we gained deeper understanding about how the universe works. Similarly, every time we attribute everything to leadership, we're no different from the people in the 1500s. We're simply admitting our ignorance. Not that we should become leadership atheists. Leadership does matter. But every time we throw our hands up in frustration, reverting back to, well, leadership must be the answer to everything, we prevent ourselves from gaining deeper, more scientific understanding about what makes great companies tick. In the 20th century, when it comes to social systems, our giant plug figure is leadership. And every time we don't understand a social system, we just simply say, leadership, leadership, leadership. Why did a company do well? Oh, the leadership must have been great. But then if that company ceases to do well, we say, oh, the leadership must not have been as great as we thought. And we just go round and round in a circle. It's sloppy. We don't learn anything. So I said to the team at the beginning of the study, we will not have a leadership answer in this book. But fortunately for me, I have a need to surround myself with people who really don't care what I think. They're imbued with the philosophy that they should be loyal to the data, not to me. And one day I walked into the research team meeting and the whole team was 
looking at me, and a spokesman for the team said, Jim, today is the day that we've decided to tell you that you are wrong. You are wrong about this leadership thing. We believe that the leaders in these studies, the people like Darwin Smith, played a huge role in the company making the leap from good to great. And you can't take that out of the equation. And I said, well, what about the comparison companies? And I listed the comparison leaders, and I said, the comparison companies also had leadership. So we had leadership in the good to great companies. We had leadership in the comparison companies. You can't tell me that leadership distinguishes. And this is when the team had its insight. The team pushed back. Their observation was not that the answer is leadership or not, but it is really about a special brand of leadership. And the key insight was that the comparison companies had level four leaders, and the good to great companies at their pivotal moments in history had level five leaders. By forcing me to confront that it is not a simple leadership or not, but rather this hierarchy of capabilities, the team led us to a breakthrough insight. And the team, first and foremost, should get the credit for that insight. The good to great executives were all cut from that same level five cloth. It didn't matter whether the company was consumer or industrial, in crisis or steady state, offered services or products. It didn't matter when the transition took place or how big the company. All the good to great companies had level five leadership at the time of transition. Furthermore, the absence of level five leadership showed up as a consistent pattern in the comparison companies. Given that level five leadership cuts against the grain of conventional wisdom, especially the belief that we need larger-than-life saviors with huge personalities to come riding in and transform our companies, it is vital to note that Level 5 is an empirical finding, not ideological. Level 5 leaders are a study in duality, modest and willful, humble and fearless. To quickly grasp this concept, think of United States President Abraham Lincoln, one of the few Level 5 presidents in U.S. history who never let his ego get in the way of his primary ambition for the larger cause of an enduring great nation. Ambition, first and foremost, that the nation must endure no matter what the cost. Yet those who mistook Lincoln's personal modesty, shy nature, awkward, dangling manner as signs of weakness, found themselves terribly mistaken to the scale of 250,000 Confederate and 360,000 Union lives, including Lincoln's own. While it might be a bit of a stretch to compare the good-to-great CEOs to Abraham Lincoln, they did display the same duality. Consider the case of Coleman Mockler, CEO of Gillette, from 1975 to 1991. During Mockler's tenure, Gillette faced three attacks that threatened to destroy the company's opportunity for greatness. Two attacks came as hostile takeover bids from Revlon, led by Ronald Perlman, a cigar-chomping raider with a reputation for breaking apart companies to pay down junk bonds and finance more hostile raids. The third attack came from Coniston Partners, an investment group that bought 5.9% of Gillette stock 
and initiated a proxy battle to seize control of the board, hoping to sell the company to the highest bidder and pocket for themselves a quick gain on their shares. Had Gillette been flipped to Perlman at the price he offered, shareholders would have reaped an instantaneous 44% gain on their stock. Looking at a $2.3 billion short-term stock profit across 116 million shares, most executives would have capitulated, pocketing millions from flipping their own stock and cashing in on generous golden parachutes. Coleman Mockler did not capitulate, choosing instead to fight, to fight for the future greatness of Gillette, even though he himself would have pocketed a substantial sum on his own shares. A quiet, reserved man, always courteous, Mockler had the reputation of a gracious, almost patrician gentleman. Yet those who mistook Mockler's reserved nature for weakness found themselves beaten in the end. In the proxy fight, senior Gillette executives reached out to thousands of individual investors, person by person, phone call by phone call, and won the battle. Now you might be thinking, that just sounds like self-serving, entrenched management fighting for their own interests at the expense of shareholder interests. And on the surface, it might look that way. But consider two key facts. Fact number one. Mockler and his team had staked the company's future on huge investments in radically new and technologically advanced systems, later known as Sensor and Mach 3. Had the takeover been successful, these projects would almost certainly have been curtailed or terminated. And none of us would be shaving today with Sensor, Sensor for Women, or the Mach 3, leaving hundreds of millions of people to a more painful daily battle with stubble. Fact number two. At the time of the takeover battle, Sensor promised significant future profits that were not reflected in the stock price because it was in secret development. With Sensor in mind, the board and Mockler believed that the future value of the shares far exceeded the current price, even with the price premium offered by the Raiders. To sell out, to take the 44% price premium at that moment, would have made short-term share flippers happy, but would have been utterly irresponsible to long-term shareholders. In the end, Mockler and the board were proved right, stunningly so. If a share flipper had accepted the 44% price premium offered by Ronald Perlman on October 31, 1986, and then invested the full amount in the general market for 10 years through the end of 1996, he would have come out three times worse off than a shareholder who stayed with Mockler and Gillette. Indeed, the company, its customers, and the shareholders would have been ill-served had Mockler capitulated to the Raiders, pocketed his millions, and retired to a life of leisure. On a sad note, Mockler was never able to enjoy the full fruits of his effort. On January 25, 1991, the Gillette team received an advanced copy of the cover of Forbes magazine which featured an artist's rendition of Mockler standing atop a mountain, holding a giant razor above his head in a triumphal pose, while the vanquished languish on the hillsides below. The other executives razzed the publicity-shy Mockler, who had likely declined requests to be photographed for the cover in the first place, amused at seeing him portrayed as a corporate version of Conan the Triumphant. 
walking back to his office, minutes after seeing this public acknowledgement of his 16 years of struggle, Mockler crumpled to the floor, struck dead by a massive heart attack. I do not know whether Mockler would have chosen to die in harness, but I'm confident that he would not have changed his approach as chief executive. His placid persona hid an inner intensity, a dedication to making anything he touched the best it could possibly be, not because of what he would get for it, but because he simply couldn't imagine doing it any other way. It wouldn't have been an option within Coleman Mockler's value system to take the easy path and turn the company over to those who would milk it like a cow, destroying its potential to become great, any more than it would have been an option for Lincoln to sue for peace and lose forever the chance of an enduring great nation. Ambition for the company. Setting up successors for success. When David Maxwell became chief executive of Fannie Mae in 1981, the company was losing $1 million every single business day. Over the next nine years, Maxwell transformed Fannie Mae into a high-performance culture that rivaled the best Wall Street firms, earning $4 million every business day and beating the general stock market 3.8 to 1. Maxwell retired while still at the top of his game, feeling that the company would be ill-served if he stayed on too long and turned the company over to an equally capable successor, Jim Johnson. Shortly thereafter, Maxwell's retirement package which had grown to be worth about $20 million based on Fannie Mae's spectacular performance, became a point of controversy in Congress. Fannie Mae is different than most companies in that it operates under a government charter. Maxwell responded by writing a letter to his successor, in which he expressed concern that the controversy would trigger an adverse reaction in Washington that could jeopardize the future of the company. He then instructed Johnson not to pay him the remaining balance, about $5.5 million, and asked that the entire amount be contributed to the Fannie Mae Foundation for Low-Income Housing. David Maxwell, like Darwin Smith and like Coleman Mockler, exemplified a key trait of Level 5 leaders. Ambition first and foremost for the company and concern for its success rather than for one's own riches and personal renown. Level 5 leaders want to see the company even more successful in the next generation. They're comfortable with the idea that most people won't even know that the roots of that success trace back to their efforts. As one Level 5 leader said, I want to look out from my porch at one of the great companies in the world someday and be able to say, I used to work there. In contrast, the comparison leaders concerned more with their own reputation for personal greatness often failed to set the company up for success in the next generation. After all, what better testament to your own personal greatness than that the place falls apart after you leave? In over three-quarters of the comparison companies, now remember, the comparison companies are the mediocre companies that never made a sustained leap from good to great. In over three-quarters of these comparison companies, we found executives who set their successors up for failure or who chose weak successors or both. Some of these comparison leaders had the biggest dog syndrome. They didn't mind other dogs in the kennel, 
as long as they remained the biggest one. One comparison CEO was said to have treated successor candidates, quote, the way Henry VIII treated wives. Consider the case of Rubbermaid, an unsustained comparison company that grew from obscurity to number one on Fortune's annual list of America's most admired companies, and then, just as quickly, disintegrated into such sorry shape that it had to be acquired by Newell to save itself. The architect of this remarkable story, a charismatic and brilliant leader named Stanley Galt, became synonymous in the late 1980s with the success of the company. In 312 articles collected on Rubbermaid, Galt comes through as a hard-driving, egocentric executive. In one article, he responds to the accusation of being a tyrant with the statement, Yes, but I'm a sincere tyrant. In another, drawn directly from his own comments on leading change, the word I appears 44 times. I could lead the charge. I wrote the 12 objectives. I presented and explained the objectives whereas the word we appears just 16 times. Galt had every reason to be proud of his executive success. Rubbermaid had generated 40 consecutive quarters of earnings growth under his leadership, an impressive performance, and one that deserves our respect. But, and this is the key point, Galt did not leave behind a company that would be great without him. His chosen successor lasted only one year on the job, and the next in line faced a management team so shallow that he had to temporarily shoulder four jobs while scrambling to identify a number two executive. Galt's successors found themselves struggling not only with a management void, but also with strategic voids that would eventually bring the company to its knees. Of course, you might say, Yes, Rubbermaid fell apart after Galt, but that just proves his personal greatness as a leader. Exactly. Galt was indeed a tremendous level four leader, perhaps one of the best in the last 50 years. But he was not a level five leader. And that is one key reason why Rubbermaid went from good to great for a brief shining moment, and then just as quickly went from great to irrelevant. In contrast to the very I-centric style of the comparison leaders, we were struck by how the good-to-great leaders didn't talk about themselves. During interviews with the good-to-great leaders, they'd talk about the company and the contributions of other executives as long as we'd like, but would deflect discussion about their own contributions. When pressed to talk about themselves, they'd say things like, I hope I'm not sounding like a big shot, or... If the board hadn't picked such great successors, you probably wouldn't be talking with me today. Or, did I have a lot to do with it? Oh, that just sounds so self-serving. I don't think I can take much credit. We were blessed with marvelous people. Or, there are plenty of people in this company who could do my job better than I do. It wasn't just false modesty. Those who worked with or wrote about the good to great leaders continually used words like quiet, humble, modest, reserved, shy, gracious, mild-mannered, self-effacing, understated, did not believe his own clippings, and so forth. A new core board member described Ken Iverson, 
the CEO who oversaw Nucor's transformation from near bankruptcy into one of the most successful steel companies in the world. Ken is a very modest and humble man. I've never known a person as successful in doing what he's done that's as modest. And I work for a lot of CEOs of large companies. And that's true in his private life as well. The simplicity of him. I mean little things, like he gets his dogs at the local pound. He has a simple house that he's lived in for ages. He only has a carport, and he complained to me one day about how he had to use his credit card to scrape the frost off his windows, and he broke the credit card. Well, you know, Ken, there's a solution for it. Enclose your carport. And he said, ah, heck, it isn't that big of a deal. He's that humble and simple. The 11 good to great CEOs are some of the most remarkable CEOs of the century. Given that only 11 companies from the Fortune 500 met the exacting standards for entry into this study. Yet, despite their remarkable results, almost no one ever remarked about them. George Kane, Alan Wurzel, David Maxwell, Coleman Mockler, Darwin Smith, Jim Herring, Lyle Everingham, Joe Coleman, Fred Allen, Cork Walgreen, Carl Reichert. How many of these extraordinary executives have you heard of? When we systematically tabulated all 5,979 articles in the study, we found fewer articles surrounding the transition date for the good to great companies than for the comparisons, by a factor of two. Furthermore, we rarely found articles that focused on the good to great CEOs. The good to great leaders never wanted to become larger-than-life heroes. They never aspired to be put on a pedestal or become unreachable icons. They were seemingly ordinary people quietly producing extraordinary results. Some of the comparison leaders provide a striking contrast. Scott Paper, the comparison company to Kimberly Clark, hired a CEO named Al Dunlap, a man cut from very different cloth than Darwin Smith. Dunlap loudly beat on his own chest, telling anyone who would listen, and many who would prefer not to, about what he had accomplished. Quoted in Business Week about his 19 months atop Scott paper, he boasted, quote, The Scott story will go down in the annals of American business history as one of the most successful, quickest turnarounds ever, making other turnarounds pale by comparison, unquote. According to Businessweek, Dunlap personally accrued $100 million for 603 days of work at Scott Paper. Do the math. That's $165,000 per day, largely by slashing the workforce, cutting the R&D budget in half, and putting the company on growth steroids in preparation for sale. After selling off the company and pocketing his quick millions, Dunlap wrote a book about himself, in which he trumpeted his nickname, Rambo in Pinstripes. Quote, I love the Rambo movies. 
Here's a guy who has zero chance of success and always wins. Rambo goes into situations against all odds, expecting to get his brains blown out. But he doesn't. At the end of the day, he succeeds. He gets rid of the bad guys. He creates peace out of war. That's what I do, too. Unquote. Darwin Smith may have enjoyed the mindless Rambo movies as well, but I suspect he never walked out of a theater and said to his wife, You know, I really relate to that Rambo character. He reminds me of me. Granted, the Scott paper story is one of the more dramatic in our study, but it's not an isolated case. In over two-thirds of the comparison cases, we noted the presence of a gargantuan personal ego that contributed to the demise or continued mediocrity of the company. We found this pattern particularly strong in the unsustained comparisons. These are cases where the company would show a leap in performance under a talented yet egocentric leader only to decline in later years. Lee Iacocca, for example, saved Chrysler from the brink of catastrophe, performing one of the most celebrated, and deservedly so, turnarounds in American business history. Chrysler rose to a height of 2.9 times the market at a point about halfway through Iacocca's tenure. Then, however, he diverted his attention to making himself one of the most celebrated CEOs in American business history. Investors Business Daily and the Wall Street Journal chronicled how Iacocca appeared regularly on talk shows like The Today Show and Larry King Live, personally starring in over 80 commercials, entertained the idea of running for President of the United States, quoted at one point, quote, running Chrysler has been a bigger job than running the country. I could handle the national economy in six months, unquote and widely promoted his autobiography. The book, Iacocca, sold 7 million copies and elevated him to rock star status, leading him to be mobbed by thousands of cheering fans upon his arrival in Japan. Iacocca's personal stock soared, but in the second half of his tenure, Chrysler's stock fell 31% behind the general market. Sadly, Iacocca had trouble leaving center stage and letting go of the perks of executive kingship. He postponed his retirement so many times that insiders at Chrysler began to joke that Iacocca stood for, I am chairman of Chrysler Corporation always. And when he finally did retire, he demanded that the board continue to provide private jet and stock options. Later, he joined forces with noted takeover artist Kirk Kerkorian to launch a hostile takeover bid for Chrysler. Chrysler experienced a brief return to glory in the five years after Iacocca's retirement, but the company's underlying weaknesses eventually led to a buyout by German carmaker Daimler-Benz. Certainly, the demise of Chrysler as a standalone company does not rest entirely on Iacocca's shoulders. The next generation of management made the fateful decision to sell the company to the Germans. But the fact remains. Iacocca's brilliant turnaround in the early 1980s did not prove to be sustained, and Chrysler failed to become an enduring great company. It is very important to grasp that Level 5 leadership is not just about humility and modesty. It's 
equally about ferocious resolve and almost stoic determination to do whatever needs to be done to make the company great. Remember Darwin Smith, if you have a cancer in your arm, you have to have the guts to cut off your own arm. Indeed, we debated for a long time on the research team about how to describe the good to great leaders. Initially, we penciled in terms like selfless executive and servant leader, but members of the team objected to these characterizations. Those labels just don't ring true, said Anthony Chiricos. It makes them sound weak or meek, but that's not at all the way I think of Darwin Smith or Coleman Mockler. They would do almost anything to make the company great. Then Eve Lee on the team suggested, why don't we just call them level five leaders? If we put a label like selfless or servant on them, people will get entirely the wrong idea. We need to get people to engage with the whole concept, to see both sides of the coin. If you only get the humility side, you miss the whole idea. Level five leaders are fanatically driven, infected with an incurable need to produce results. They will sell the mills or fire their brother if that's what it takes to make the company great. When George Kane became chief executive of Abbott Laboratories, it sat in the bottom quartile of the pharmaceutical industry, a drowsy enterprise that had lived for years off its cash cow, erythromycin. George Kane didn't have an inspiring personality to galvanize the company, but he had something much more powerful, inspired standards. He could not stand mediocrity in any form and was utterly intolerant of anyone who would accept the idea that good is good enough. Cain then set out to destroy one of the key causes of Abbott's mediocrity, nepotism. Systematically rebuilding both the board and the executive team with the best people he could find, Cain made it clear that neither family ties nor length of tenure would have anything to do with whether you held a key position in the company. If you didn't have the capacity to become the best executive in the industry in your span of responsibility, then you would lose your paycheck. Such rigorous rebuilding might be expected from an outsider brought in to turn the company around. But Kane, he was an 18-year veteran, insider, and a family member, the son of a previous Abbott president. I often wondered what holidays were like for George Kane. Sorry I had to fire you. You want another slice of turkey? In the end, though, family members were quite pleased with the performance of their stock. For Kane set in motion a profitable growth machine that, from its transition date in 1974 to 2000, created shareholder returns that beat the market 4.5 to 1, handily outperforming industry superstars Merck and Pfizer. Upjohn, the direct comparison company to Abbott, also had family leadership during the same era as George Kane. This shows the power of match pairs. At that pivotal time in the early 1960s, both companies were virtually identical. Similar products, family leadership, similar history, similar sales, and yet different outcomes in the end. See, unlike George Kane, Upjohn's chief executive never showed the same resolve to break the mediocrity of nepotism. By the time Abbott had filled all key seats with the best people, regardless of family background, Upjohn still had B-level family members holding key positions. 
virtually identical companies with identical stock charts up to the point of transition. Upjohn then fell 89% behind Abbott over the next 21 years and then capitulated in a merger to Pharmacia in 1995. As an interesting aside, Darwin Smith, Coleman Mockler, and George Kane came from inside the company. And notice this, Stanley Galt, Al Dunlop, and Lee Iacocca rode in as saviors from the outside, trumpets blaring. This reflects a more systematic finding from our study. The evidence does not support the idea that you need an outside leader to come in and shake the place up to go from good to great. In fact, going for a high-profile outside change agent is negatively correlated with a sustained transformation from good to great. Ten of eleven good to great CEOs came from inside the company, three of them by family inheritance. The comparison companies, the companies that failed to make a leap from good to great, or even if they did, they failed to sustain it, the mediocre contrast in the study, they turned to outside saviors with six times greater frequency, and yet they failed to produce great results. A superb example of insider-driven change comes from Charles R. Cork, Walgreen III, who transformed Dowdy Walgreens into a company that outperformed the stock market by over 15 times from the end of 1975 to January 1, 2000. After years of dialogue and debate with his executive team about Walgreens' food service operations, Cork sensed that the team had finally reached a watershed point of clarity and understanding. Walgreens' brightest future lay in convenient drugstores, not food service. Dan Jornt, who succeeded Walgreens as chief executive in 1998, described what happened next. Cork said at one of our planning meetings, Okay, now I'm going to draw a line in the sand. We're going to be out of the restaurant business completely in five years. At the time, we had over 500 restaurants. You could have heard a pin drop. He said, I want to let everybody know the clock is ticking. Six months later, we were at our next planning committee meeting, and someone mentioned just in passing that we had five years to be out of the restaurant business. Cork was not a real vociferous fellow. He sort of tapped on the table and said, Listen, you have four and a half years. I said you had five years six months ago. Now you've got four and a half years. Well, that next day, things really clicked into gear to winding down our restaurant business. He never wavered. He never doubted. He never second-guessed. Like Darwin Smith selling the mills, Walgreens' decision required stoic resolve. Not that food service was the largest part of the business, although it did add substantial profits to the bottom line. The real problem was more emotional. Walgreens had, after all, invented the malted milkshake. And food service was a long-standing family tradition, dating back to his grandfather. Some food service outlets even named after the CEO himself, a restaurant chain named Corky's. But no matter, if Walgreens had to fly in the face of long-standing family tradition in order to focus his resources where it could be the best in the world, that being the convenient drugstores, Cork would do it. Quietly. Doggedly. Simply. The quiet, dogged nature of Level 5 leaders showed up not only in big decisions like selling off the food service operations or fighting the corporate raiders at Gillette. 
but also in a personal style of sheer workmanlike diligence. Alan Wurzel, a second-generation family member who took over his family's small company and turned it into Circuit City, perfectly captured the gestalt of this trait. When asked about differences between himself and his counterpart CEO at Circuit City's comparison company, Wurzel summed up, the show horse and the plow horse. He was more of a show horse, whereas I was more of a plow horse. The Window in the Mirror Alan Wurzel's plow horse comment is fascinating in light of two other facts. First, he holds a Doctor of Jurisprudence from Yale. Clearly, his plow horse nature had nothing to do with a lack of intelligence. Second, his plow horse approach set the stage for truly best-in-show results. Let me put it this way. If you had to choose between $1 invested in Circuit City or $1 invested in General Electric on the day that legendary Jack Welch took over GE in 1981 and held it to January 1, 2000, you would have been better off with Circuit City, and not just by a little bit, by six times. Not a bad performance for a plow horse. You might expect that extraordinary results like these would lead Alan Wurzel to discuss the brilliant decisions he made. But when we asked him to list the top five factors in his company's transformation ranked by importance, Wurzel gave a surprising answer. The number one factor was luck. We were in a great industry, he said, with the wind at our backs. We pushed back, pointing out that we selected the good to great companies based on performance that surpassed their industry's average. Furthermore, the comparison company, Silo, was in the same industry with the same wind and probably bigger sales. We debated the point for a few minutes with Wurzel continuing his preference for attributing much of his success to just being in the right place at the right time. Later, when we asked to discuss the factors behind the enduring nature of the transformation, he said, well, the first thing that comes to mind is luck. I was lucky to find the right successor. Luck. What an odd factor to talk about. Yet the good to great executives talked a lot about luck. In one interview with a Nucor executive, we asked why the company had such a remarkable track record of good decisions. He responded, I guess we were just lucky. Joseph F. Coleman III, the Level 5 transition CEO of Philip Morris, flat out refused to take credit for his company's success attributing his good fortune to having great colleagues, successors, and predecessors. Even the book he wrote, a book he undertook at the urging of his colleagues, which he never intended to distribute widely, had the unusual title, I'm a Lucky Guy. The opening paragraph reads, I was a very lucky guy from the beginning of my life. Marvelous parents, good genes, lucky in love, lucky in business, and lucky when a Yale classmate had my orders changed to report to Washington, D.C. in early 1941, instead of to a ship that was sunk with all hands lost in the North Atlantic. Lucky to be in the Navy, and lucky to be alive at 85. We were at first puzzled by this emphasis on good luck. After all, we found no evidence that the good-to-great companies were blessed with more good luck, or bad luck, for that matter, than the comparison companies. Then we began to notice a contrasting pattern in the mediocre comparison executives. They credited substantial blame to bad luck 
frequently bemoaning the difficulties of the environment they faced. Compare Bethlehem Steel to Nucor. Both companies operated in the steel industry and produced hard-to-differentiate products. Both companies faced the competitive challenge of cheap imported steel. Yet executives at the two companies had completely different views of the same environment. Bethlehem's chief executive summed up the company's problems in 1983 by blaming imports. Quote, our first, second, and third problems are imports, unquote. Ken Iverson and his crew at Nucor considered the same challenge from imports as a blessing, a stroke of good fortune, almost as if they're saying, aren't we lucky? Steel is heavy, and they have to ship it all the way across the ocean, giving us a huge advantage. Iverson saw the first, second, and third problems facing the American steel industry not to be imports, but American steel management. Iverson even went so far as to speak out publicly against government protection against imports, telling a stunned gathering of fellow steel executives in 1977 that the real problems facing the American steel industry lay in the fact that management had failed to keep pace with innovation. The emphasis on luck turns out to be part of a pattern that we came to call the window and the mirror. Level 5 leaders look out the window to apportion credit to factors outside themselves when things go well. And if they cannot find a specific person or event to give credit to, they credit good luck. At the same time, they look in the mirror to apportion responsibility, never blaming bad luck when things go poorly. The comparison leaders often did just the opposite. They'd look out the window for something or someone outside themselves to blame for poor results, but would preen in front of the mirror and credit themselves when things went well. Strangely, the window and the mirror do not reflect objective reality. Everyone outside the window points inside directly at the level five leader, saying he was the key. Without his guidance and leadership, we would not have become a great company. And the level five leader points right back out the window and says, look at all the great people and good fortune that made this possible. I'm a lucky guy. They're both right, of course, but the level fives would never admit that fact. So let me just do a quick summary of the two sides of level five leadership. Again, a level five leader is one who's ambitious first and foremost for the cause, the company, the work, not himself or herself and on the other hand has the stoic resolve, the will, to do whatever it takes to make good on that ambition. So you've got professional will and personal humility, two sides of a coin. Now, let me just go through those two sides and talk about them very briefly. On the one hand, professional will. A level five leader creates superb results, a clear catalyst in the transition from good to great. And yet on the other hand, personal humility. The level five leader demonstrates a compelling modesty, shunning public adulation. A level five leader is never boastful. On the one hand, professional will. A level five leader demonstrates an unwavering resolve to do whatever must be done to produce the best long-term results, no matter how difficult, no matter how painful. And yet, on the other hand, professional humility. A level five leader acts with quiet, calm determination. A level five leader relies principally on inspired standards, not inspiring charisma, to motivate. On the one hand, professional will. 
a level five leader sets the standards for building an enduring great company, will settle for nothing less than greatness. And yet, on the other hand, personal humility. A level five leader channels ambition into the company, not the self. A level five leader sets up successors for even greater success in the next generation. On the one hand, professional will, a level five leader looks in the mirror, not out the window, to apportion responsibility for poor results, never blaming other people, external factors, or bad luck. When things go awry, a level five leader looks in the mirror and says, I am responsible. And yet, on the other hand, personal humility, a level five leader looks out the window, not in the mirror, to apportion credit for the success of the company, pointing to other people, to other factors, and to good luck. Cultivating Level 5 Leadership While I was writing this book, I shared the Level 5 finding with a gathering of senior executives. A woman who had recently become chief executive of her company raised her hand and said, I believe what you say about the good to great leaders, but I'm disturbed because when I look in the mirror, I know I'm not Level 5. Not yet anyway. I don't see a Level 5 staring back. Are you telling me that I can't make this a great company if I'm not Level 5? I don't know for certain that you absolutely must be a level five leader to make your company great, I replied. I will simply point back to the data. Of 1,435 companies that appeared on the Fortune 500 in our initial candidate list, only 11 companies made the very tough cut into our study. In those 11, all of them had level five leadership in key positions, including the chief executive at the pivotal time of transition. She sat there, quiet for a moment, and you could tell everyone in the room was mentally urging her to ask the question. Finally, she said, can you learn to become level five? At the time that I wrote this book, my hypothesis was that there are two categories of people, those who do not have the seat of level five and those who do. The first category consists of people who could never in a million years bring themselves to subjugate their egoistic needs to the greater ambition of building something larger and more lasting than themselves. For these people, work will always be first and foremost about what they get. Fame, fortune, adulation, power, whatever. Not what they build, create, and contribute. The great irony is the animus and personal ambition that often drive people to positions of power stand at odds with the humility required for level five leadership. When you combine that irony with the fact that boards of directors frequently operate under the false belief that they need to hire larger than life, egocentric, charismatic leaders to make an organization great, you can quickly see why level five leaders rarely appear at the top of our institutions. The second category of people, and I suspect the larger group, consists of those who have the potential to evolve to level five. The capability resides within them, perhaps buried or ignored, but there nonetheless. And under the right circumstances, self-reflection, conscious personal development, a mentor, a great teacher, loving parents, a significant transformational life experience, a level five boss, or any number of other factors they begin to develop. And looking at the data, we noticed that some of the leaders in our study had significant life experiences that might have sparked, furthered their maturation. 
Darwin Smith fully blossomed after his experience with cancer. Joe Cullman was profoundly affected by his World War II experiences, particularly that last-minute change of orders that took him off a doomed ship on which he surely would have died. A strong religious belief or conversion might also nurture development of level 5 traits. Coleman Mockler, for example, converted to evangelical Christianity while getting his MBA at Harvard, and later, according to the book Cutting Edge, became a prime mover in a group of Boston business executives who met frequently over breakfast to discuss the carryover of religious values to corporate life. Other leaders in our study, however, had no obvious catalytic event. They just led normal lives and somehow ended up atop the level 5 hierarchy. I believe, although I cannot prove, that potential level 5 leaders are highly prevalent in our society. The problem is not, in my estimation, a dearth of potential level 5 leaders. They exist all around us if we just know what to look for. And what is that? Look for situations where extraordinary results exist, but where no individual steps forth to claim excess credit you will likely find a potential level 5 leader at work. I'd love to be able to give you a list of steps for becoming level 5. I'd love to be able to give you the simple prescription. But we have no solid research data that would support such a simple prescription. Our research exposed level 5 as a key component inside the black box of what it takes to shift a company from good to great. Yet inside that black box is yet another black box, namely the inner development of a person to level 5. We could speculate on what might be inside that inner black box, but it would be mostly just that, speculation. So in short, level 5 is a very satisfying idea, a powerful idea, and to produce the best transitions from good to great, perhaps an essential idea. A 10-step list, a simple prescription, a simplistic answer would trivialize the concept. One thought is to begin practicing the other good-to-great disciplines we discovered. We found a symbiotic relationship between Level 5 and the remaining chapters. On the one hand, Level 5 traits enable you to implement the other findings. On the other hand, practicing the other findings helps you to become Level 5. Think of it this way. This chapter is about what Level 5s are. The rest of this book describes what they do. Leading with the other disciplines can help you move in the right direction. There is no guarantee that doing so will turn you into a full-fledged level 5, but it does give you a tangible place to begin. We cannot say for sure what percentage of people have the seed of level 5 within them, or how many of those can nurture it. Even those of us who discovered Level 5 on the research team do not know for ourselves whether we will succeed in fully evolving to Level 5. And yet, all of us who worked on the finding have been deeply affected and inspired by the idea. Darwin Smith, Coleman Mockler, Alan Wurzel, and all the other Level 5s we learned about have become models for us, something worthy to aspire toward. Whether or not we make it all the way to Level 5, it's worth the effort. For like all basic truths about what is best in human beings, when we catch a glimpse of that truth, we know that our own lives and all that we touch will be better for the effort. The words you've just heard I wrote in 2000 and 2001, summarizing the findings from good to great. 
In the intervening years, and now I'm re-recording the book in almost 2005, and in the intervening time, I've had a fascinating experience with Level 5, and I'd like to share it with you. See, when we finished those words, I have to admit I was a little bit depressed because I felt, my goodness, these Level 5s, they must be just freaks of nature. I mean, how many Level 5s can there be? Maybe we're all doomed. It seemed kind of dark to me. And then an astounding thing happened. I started to get emails and correspondence and people stopping me at seminars and talks and saying, you know, Jim, there was this person in my life that was just an amazing creator of results and a spectacular performance and a wonderful team. And I could never really put my finger on what to make of them because they didn't fit into any of the standard models of leadership that I'd read about. It could have been a platoon commander or or a a teacher or a high school sports coach or a division leader or a Girl Scout council leader. They, they came in all walks of life. People would say there was this person, this amazing person in my life, but they just didn't fit the mold of a leader. And yet there they were doing amazing things with a group of people. And then I read the level five chapter and bang, flash, I got it. Jim, that person was a level five. And now I understand The level five finding helps me understand the remarkable contributions of this person. And this has happened not tens of times, but thousands of times. And as I stand back and reflect upon it, the conclusion I've come to, and I find it an uplifting conclusion, an inspiring conclusion, there's level five throughout society. I've come to the conclusion that level five is the mortar that holds the bricks of society together. We do have level five teachers, and we do have level five police chiefs, and we do have level five military commanders, and we have level five sports coaches, and level five people who run homeless centers, and people who run unsung parts of businesses. Our problem is not an absence of level five in our society. Our problem is an absence of the wisdom to put them in the positions of responsibility and power. There's so much opportunity, untapped opportunity, if we just take those level fives and we give them the keys to the car. Level five leadership, key points. At the end of every chapter, I'm going to do a quick summary of bullet points, if you will, of some of the key wrap-up findings from our research in that chapter. I'll do this at the end of every chapter to give you a reminder set of reinforcing ideas to carry into the next chapter. Every good to great leader had level five leadership during the pivotal transition years. Level five refers to a five-level hierarchy of executive capabilities with level five at the top. Level five leaders embody a paradoxical mix of personal humility and professional will. And never forget the definition of a level five. A level five leader is one who is ambitious, first and foremost for the cause, for the company, for the work, not himself or herself, and has the will to make good on it. Level five leaders set up their successors for even greater success in the next generation, whereas egocentric level four leaders often set their successors for failure. Level five leaders display a compelling modesty. They are often self-effacing and understated. In contrast, two-thirds of the comparison companies had leaders with gargantuan personal egos that contributed to the demise or continued mediocrity of the company. Let me be clear about one point, though. We don't want to say that a level five leader cannot be charismatic. 
there have been charismatic level five leaders. Sam Walton of Walmart was a charismatic level five leader. He was able to build a company that would ultimately transcend him, would go beyond his personal charisma. So I don't want you to get hung up on the idea here that if you have charisma, you can't be level five, or that if your leading executive has charisma, that individual cannot be level five. The critical question is not personality, not charisma, but rather ambition. Are you ambition for the cause or are you ambition for yourself? Level five leaders are fanatically driven, infected with an incurable need to produce sustained results. They are resolved to do whatever it takes to make the company great, no matter how big or hard the decisions. They display a workmanlike diligence, more plow horse than show horse. They look out the window to attribute success to factors other than themselves. When things go poorly, however, they look in the mirror and blame themselves taking full responsibility. The comparison chief executives often did just the opposite, looking in the mirror to take credit for success, but pointing out the window to assign blame for disappointing results. A question for you right now, wherever you're listening to this, what is your relationship to the window and the mirror? Do you point out the window to give others credit, or do you point out the window to blame other factors when things go badly? What is your relationship to the window and the mirror? One of the most damaging trends in recent history is the tendency, especially by boards of directors, to select a dazzling celebrity leader and to deselect potential level five leaders. There were also a few unexpected findings. Larger than life celebrity leaders who write in from the outside turn out to be negatively correlated with going from good to great. 10 of 11 of the good to great CEOs came from inside the company, whereas the comparison companies tried outside CEOs six times more often, and they failed to become great. Level 5 leaders attribute much of their success to good luck rather than to personal greatness. And most important, we were not looking for level 5 leadership in our research, but the data was overwhelming and convincing. We were surprised by the finding. Keep in mind... I had set out at the beginning of the study to not even have a leadership answer of any type, and yet the data was overwhelming, the data led us to the conclusion, the data spoke. Chapter 3. First who, then what? There are going to be times when we can't wait for somebody. Now either you're on the bus or off the bus. Ken Kesey from the Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test by Tom Wolfe. When we began the research project, we expected to find that the first step in taking a company from good to great would be to set a new direction, a new vision and strategy for the company, and then to get people committed and aligned behind that new direction. We found something quite the opposite. The executives who ignited the transformations from good to great did not first figure out where to drive the bus and then get people to take it there. No, they first got the right people on the bus, the wrong people off the bus, and then they figured out where to drive it. They said, in essence, look, I don't really know where we should take this bus, but I know this much. If we get the right people on the bus, the right people on the right seats, and the wrong people off the bus, then we'll figure out how to take it 
someplace great. The good to great leaders understood three simple truths. First, if you begin with who rather than what, you can more easily adapt to a changing world. If people join the bus primarily because of where it's going, well, what happens if you get 10 miles down the road and you need to change direction? You've got a problem. But if people are on the bus because of who else is on the bus, then it's much easier to change direction. Hey, I got on this bus because of who else is on this bus. If we need to change direction to be more successful, that's fine with me. Second, if you have the right people on the bus, the problem of how to motivate and manage people largely goes away. The right people don't need to be tightly managed or fired up or motivated or disciplined. They will be self-motivated, self-inspired, self-disciplined, self-guided. They'll be motivated by the inner drive to produce the best results and to be part of creating something great. Third, if you have the wrong people, it doesn't really matter whether you discover the right direction. You still won't have a great company. Great vision without great people is irrelevant. Consider the case of Wells Fargo during its transition in the 1970s and 80s. Wells Fargo began its 15-year stint of spectacular performance in 1983. But the foundation for that shift dates back to the early 1970s, when then-CEO Dick Cooley began building one of the best, most talented management teams in the industry. The best team, according to investor Warren Buffett. Cooley foresaw that the banking industry would eventually undergo wrenching change. But he didn't pretend to know what form that change would take. So instead of mapping out a strategy for change, he and Chairman Ernie Arbuckle focused on injecting an endless stream of talent directly into the veins of the company. They hired outstanding people whenever and wherever they might find them, often without any specific job. That's how you build the future, said Cooley. If I'm not smart enough to see the changes that are coming, they will. And they'll be flexible enough to deal with them. Cooley's approach proved prescient. No one could predict all the changes that would be wrought by banking deregulation. Yet, when these changes came, no bank handled those challenges better than Wells Fargo. At a time when its sector in the banking industry fell 59% behind the general stock market, Wells Fargo outperformed the market by over three times. Carl Reichert, who became CEO in 1983, attributed the bank's success largely to the people around him, most of whom he inherited from Cooley. As he listed members of the Wells Fargo executive team that had joined the company during the Cooley-Reichert era, we were stunned. Nearly every person had gone on to become CEO of a major company. Bill Aldinger became the CEO of Household Finance. Jack Grundhofer became CEO of U.S. Bank Corp. Frank Newman became CEO of Bankers Trust. 
Richard Rosenberg became CEO of Bank of America. Bob Joss became CEO of Westpac Banking, one of the largest banks in Australia, and later became Dean of the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Not exactly your garden variety executive team. R.J. Miller, an active Wells Fargo board member for 17 years, told us that the Wells Fargo team reminded him of the famed Whiz Kids, recruited to Ford Motor Company in the late 1940s, of which, in fact, Miller was a member, eventually becoming president himself of Ford. Wells Fargo's approach was simple. You get the best people, you build them into the best managers in the industry, and you accept the fact that some of them will be recruited to become CEOs of other companies. Bank of America, the comparison company to Wells Fargo during the 1980 transition period, took a very different approach. While Dick Cooley systematically recruited the best people he could get his hands on, Bank of America, according to the book Breaking the Bank, followed something called the Weak General's Strong Lieutenants model. It works like this. If you pick strong generals for key positions, their competitors will leave. But if you pick weak generals, placeholders rather than highly capable executives, then the strong lieutenants are more likely to stick around. The weak generals model produced a climate very different at Bank of America than the one at Wells Fargo. Whereas the Wells Fargo crew acted as a strong team of equal partners, ferociously debating eyeball to eyeball in search of the best answers, the Bank of America weak generals would wait for directions from above. Sam Armacost, who inherited the weak generals model, described the management climate. I came away quite distressed from my first couple of management meetings. Not only couldn't I get conflict, I couldn't even get comment. They were all waiting to see which way the wind blew. A retired Bank of America executive described senior managers in the 1970s as plastic people who had been trained to quietly submit to the diktats of a domineering CEO. Later, after losing over $1 billion in the mid-1980s, Bank of America recruited a gang of strong generals to turn the bank around. And where did it find those strong generals? From right across the street at Wells Fargo. In fact, Bank of America recruited so many Wells Fargo executives during its turnaround that people inside began to refer to themselves as Wells of America. At that point, Bank of America began to climb upward again. But it was too little, too late. From 1973 to 1998, while Wells Fargo went from build-up to breakthrough results, Bank of America's cumulative stock returns didn't even keep pace with the general market. You might be thinking, that's just good management. The idea of getting the right people around you. What is so new about that? On one level, we have to agree. It's just plain old-fashioned good management. But... What stands out with such distinction in the good-to-great companies are two key points that made them quite different. To be clear, the main point of this chapter is not just about assembling the right team. That's nothing new. The main point is to first, 
first, above all else, before everything else. Get the right people on the bus, the right people in the right seats, and the wrong people off the bus before you figure out where to drive it. First the right people, then where to drive it, not figure out where to drive it, then get the right people. The second key point is the degree of sheer rigor needed in people decisions in order to take a company from good to great. First who is a very simple idea to grasp and a very difficult idea to do. And most don't do it well. It's easy to talk about paying attention to people decisions, but how many executives have the discipline of David Maxwell who held off on developing a strategy until he got the right people in place? while the company was losing $1 million every single business day with $56 billion of loans underwater. Would you have the discipline to wait to set your strategy until you had the right people in place if you were losing a $1 million a day with $56 billion of mortgage loans underwater? That's the kind of discipline First Who requires. When Maxwell became CEO of Fannie Mae during its darkest days, the board desperately wanted to know how he was going to rescue the company. This was the early 1980s. Despite the immense pressure to act, to do something dramatic, to seize the wheel and start driving, Maxwell focused first on getting the right people on the management team. His first act was to interview all the officers. He sat them down and said, look, this is going to be a very hard challenge. I want you to think about how demanding this is going to be. If you don't think you're going to like it, that's fine. Nobody's going to hate you. Maxwell made it absolutely clear there would only be seats for A players who were going to put forth an A-plus effort. And if you weren't up for it, you'd better get off the bus and get off now. One executive who had just uprooted his life and career to join the team came to Maxwell and said, I listened to you very carefully, and I don't want to do this. He left and went back to where he came from. In all, 14 of 26 executives left the company, replaced by some of the best, smartest, and hardest working executives in the entire world of finance. The same standard applied up and down the Fannie Mae ranks as managers at every level increased the caliber of their teams and put immense peer pressure upon each other, creating high turnover at first when some people just didn't pan out. We had a saying, you can't fake it at Fannie Mae, said one executive team member. Either you knew your stuff or you didn't, and if you didn't, you'd just blow out of here. Wells Fargo and Fannie Mae both illustrate the idea that who questions come before what questions, before vision, before strategy, before tactics, before organizational structure, before technology. Dick Cooley and David Maxwell both exemplified a classic level five style when they said, I don't know where we should take this company, but I do know that if I start with the right people, ask them the right questions, and engage them in vigorous debate, we will find a way to make this company great. 
In contrast to the good to great companies, which built deep and strong executive teams, many of the comparison companies followed what I like to call a genius with a thousand helpers model. In this model, the company is a platform for the talents of an extraordinary individual. In these cases, the towering genius, the primary driving force of the company's success, is a great asset. So long as the genius sticks around. The geniuses seldom build great management teams for the simple reason that they don't need one and often don't want one. If you're a genius, you don't need to build a Wells Fargo caliber management team of people who could run their own shows elsewhere. No, you just need an army of good soldiers who can help you implement your great ideas. However, when the genius leaves, if you were to leave, if you're a genius, the helpers are often lost. Or worse, they try to mimic their predecessor with bold, visionary moves, trying to act like a genius without actually being a genius. And that proves unsuccessful. Eckerd Corporation suffered the liability of a leader who had an uncanny genius for figuring out what to do, but little ability to assemble the right who on the executive team. Jack Eckert, blessed with the monumental personal energy. He, in fact, campaigned for governor of Florida while running his company. He had a genetic gift for market insight and shrewd deal-making, acquired his way from two little stores in Wilmington, Delaware, to a drugstore empire of over a thousand stores spread across the southeastern United States. By the late 1970s, Eckert's revenues equaled Walgreens. And at that time, it looked like Eckerd might triumph as the great company in the industry. But then Jack Eckerd left to pursue his passion for politics, running for senator and joining the Ford administration. Without his guiding genius, Eckerd's company began a long decline, eventually being acquired by J.C. Penney. The contrast between Jack Eckerd and Cork Walgreen is striking. Whereas Jack Eckerd had a genius for picking the right stores to buy, Cork Walgreen, well, he had a genius for picking the right people to hire. Whereas Jack Eckerd had a gift for seeing which stores should go in what locations, Cork Walgreen had a gift for seeing which people should go in what seats. Whereas Jack Eckerd failed utterly at the single most important decision facing any executive, and that is the selection of a successor, Cork Walgreen developed multiple outstanding candidates and selected a superstar successor who may, in fact, prove in the end to have been better than Cork himself. Whereas Jack Eckerd had no executive team, but instead a bunch of capable helpers assembled to assist the great genius. Cork Walgreen built the best executive team in the industry. Whereas the primary guidance mechanism for Eckerd's corporation strategy lay inside Jack Eckerd's head, the primary guidance mechanism for Walgreen's corporate strategy lay in the group dialogue and shared insights of a very talented executive team. This genius with a thousand helpers model is particularly prevalent in the unsustained comparison companies. Now keep in mind, these are the companies that showed a shift from good results to great results, but then lost it fairly quickly. 
they went from good to great and then crashed back down again. The most classic case comes from a man known as the Sphinx, Henry Singleton of Teledyne. Singleton grew up on a Texas ranch with a childhood dream of becoming a great businessman and the model of the rugged individualist. Armed with a Ph.D. from MIT, he founded Teledyne. The name Teledyne derives from Greek and means force applied at a distance. Turns out to be an apt name, as the central force holding the far-flung empire together was Henry Singleton himself. Through acquisition, Singleton built the company from a small enterprise to number 293 on the Fortune 500 list in six years. Zero to Fortune 500 in six years. Within 10 years, he'd completed more than 100 acquisitions, eventually creating a far-flung enterprise with 130 profit centers in everything from exotic metals to insurance. Amazingly, the whole system worked. With Singleton himself acting as the glue that connected all the moving parts together, at one point, he said, or was quoted in an article as saying, I define my job as having the freedom to do what seems to me to be in the best interest in the company at any time. A 1978 Forbes feature story maintained, quote, Singleton will win no awards for humility, but who can avoid standing in awe of his impressive record, unquote. Singleton continued to run the company well into his 70s, with no serious thought given to succession. After all, why worry about succession when the very point of the entire thing is to serve as a platform to leverage the talents of your remarkable genius? That's the purpose of the company. If there is a single weakness in this otherwise brilliant picture, the article continued, it is this. Teledyne is not so much a system as it is the reflection of one man's singular discipline. What a weakness it turned out to be. Once Singleton stepped away from day-to-day -day management in the mid-1980s, the far-flung empire began to crumble. From the end of 1986 until its merger with Allegheny in 1995, Teledyne's cumulative stock returns imploded, falling 66% behind the general stock market. Singleton, the genius, the towering individual, the genius with a thousand helpers, Singleton achieved his childhood dream of becoming a great businessman in the image of the rugged individualist, the Sphinx. But he failed. He failed utterly at the task of building a great company. It's who you pay, not how you pay them. We expected to find that changes in incentive systems, especially executive incentives, would be highly correlated with making the leap from good to great. With all the attention paid to executive compensation, with the shift to stock options and the huge packages that have become commonplace, Surely, surely, has to be true. We thought the amount and structure of compensation must play a key role in going from good to great. How else do you get people to do the right things to create great results? 
How else could we possibly explain these large amounts of executive compensation? We were dead wrong in our expectations. We found no systematic pattern linking executive compensation to the process of going from good to great. The evidence simply does not, underscored, does not support the idea that the specific structure of executive compensation acts as a key lever in taking a company from good to great. Scott Jones and Amber Young on my team did a heroic job spending weeks inputting compensation data from proxy statements and performed 112 separate quantitative analyses looking for patterns and correlations, trying to find the link between executive compensation amounts or structures or patterns and results. We examined everything we could quantify for the top five officers, cash versus stock, long-term versus short-term incentives, salary versus bonus, and so forth. Some companies used stock extensively. Others didn't. Some had high salaries. Others didn't. Some made significant use of bonus incentives. Others didn't. Most important, when we analyzed executive compensation patterns relative to the comparison companies, we found no systematic differences on the use of stock, or not, high salaries, or not, bonus incentives, or not, or long-term compensation, or not. In short, it doesn't really seem to matter how you compensate your executives. The only significant difference we found was that the good to great executives received slightly less, yes, less, total cash compensation 10 years after the transition than their counterparts at the still mediocre comparison companies. That's right, the ones who produced the best results on a cash basis came away with less. Not that executive compensation is irrelevant. You have to be basically rational and reasonable. I doubt that Coleman Mockler, David Maxwell, or Darwin Smith would have worked for free. And the good to great companies did spend time thinking about the issue. But once you've structured something that makes basic sense, executive compensation falls away as a distinguishing variable in moving an organization from good to great. Why might that be? Why might there be no significant correlation between executive compensation and great long-term shareholder returns? Well, think about it this way. It's a manifestation of the first who principle. It's not how you compensate your executives. The key variable is which executives you have to compensate in the first place. First who have the right executives, then what? Figure out how to compensate them. If you have the right executives on the bus, they will do everything within their power to build a great company, not because of what they're going to get for it, but because they simply cannot imagine settling for anything less. Their moral code, their inner DNA, their core values require building excellence for its own sake. And you're no more likely to change that with a compensation package than you're likely to affect whether they breathe.
the good to great companies understood a simple truth. The right people will do the right things and deliver the best results they're capable of, regardless of the incentive system. Wherever you are, take in this point. Yes, compensation and incentives are important, but for very different reasons in good to great companies. The purpose of a compensation system should not be to get the right behaviors from the wrong people, but to get the right people on the bus in the first place and to keep them there. In short, there is no such thing as an incentive system. There is no such thing as a motivational compensation system. There is instead attraction and retention systems, and compensation is about attracting and retaining the right people who are self-motivated and self-disciplined and who will produce results because it's who they are. First who, then what? We were not able to look as rigorously at non-executive compensation. Such data is not available in as systematic a format as proxy reports for top officers, which we had for the above analysis. Nonetheless, evidence from source documents and articles suggests that the same idea applies at all levels of an organization. A particularly vivid example, and in fact one of my favorites, is Nucor. Nucor built its entire system on the idea that you can teach farmers how to make steel, but you can't teach a farmer work ethic to people who don't have it in the first place. So instead of setting up mills in traditional steel towns like Pittsburgh and Gary, Nucor located its plants in places like Crawfordsville, Indiana, Norfolk, Nebraska, and Plymouth, Utah. Places full of real farmers who go to bed early, rise at dawn, and get right to work without fanfare. Gotta milk the cows and gonna plow the North 40 before noon. Translated easily into gotta roll some sheet steel and gonna cast 40 tons before lunch. Nucor ejected people who did not share this work ethic, generating as high as 50% turnover in the first year of a plant. 50%, one and two don't make it followed by very low turnover as the right people settled in for the long haul. To attract and keep the best workers, Nucor paid its steel workers more than any other steel company in the world. But it built its pay system around a high-pressure team bonus mechanism, with over 50% of a worker's compensation tied directly to the productivity of his or her work team of 20 to 40 people. Nucor team members would usually show up for work 30 minutes early to arrange their tools and prepare to blast off the starting line the instant the shift gun fired. Quote, we have the hardest working steel workers in the world, said one Nucor executive. And this is one of my favorite quotes in the whole book. We hire five, we work them like 10, and pay them like eight. Here's the key. The Nucor system did not aim to turn lazy people into hard workers. It didn't try to do that. But rather to create an environment where hard-working people, people who can't help themselves, they have to work hard because it's who they are.
these people would thrive and lazy workers would either jump or get thrown right off the bus. In one extreme case, workers chased a lazy teammate right out of the plant with an angle iron. Nucor rejected that old adage that people are your most important asset. In a good to great transformation, people are not your most important asset. The right people are. Nucor illustrates a key point. In determining the right people, the good to great companies placed greater weight on character attributes than on specific educational background, practical skills, specialized knowledge, or work experience. Not that specific knowledge or skills are unimportant, but they viewed these traits as more teachable, or at least learnable, whereas they believed dimensions like character, work ethic, intelligence, dedication to fulfilling commitments, and values are more ingrained. As Dave Nassif of Pitney Bowes put it, I used to be in the Marines, and the Marines got a lot of credit for building people's values. But that's not the way it really works. The Marine Corps recruits people who share the Corps' values, then provides them with the training required to accomplish the organization's mission. We look at it the same way at Pitney Bowes. We have more people who want to do the right thing than most companies. We don't just look at experience. We want to know who are they? Why are they? We find out who they are by asking them why they made decisions in their life. The answers to these questions give us insight into their core values. One good to great executive said that his best hiring decisions often came from people with no industry or business experience. In one case, he hired a manager who'd been captured twice during the Second World War and escaped both times. I thought anyone who could do that shouldn't have trouble with business, he said. Rigorous, not ruthless. The good to great companies probably sound like tough places to work. And at their best, they are. If you don't have what it takes, you probably won't last long. But they're not ruthless cultures, they're rigorous cultures. And the distinction is crucial. To be ruthless means hacking and cutting, especially in difficult times, or wantonly firing people without any thoughtful consideration. To be rigorous means consistently applying exacting standards at all times and at all levels, especially in upper management. To be rigorous, not ruthless, means that the best people need not worry about their positions and can concentrate fully on their work. In 1986, Wells Fargo acquired Crocker Bank and planned to shed gobs of excess cost in the consolidation. There's nothing unusual about that. Every bank merger in the era of deregulation aimed to cut excess cost out of a bloated and previously protected industry. However, what was unusual about the Wells-Crocker consolidation is the way Wells integrated management, or to be more accurate, the way it didn't even try to integrate most Crocker management into the Wells culture. The Wells Fargo team concluded right up front 
that the vast majority of Crocker managers would be the wrong people on the bus. Crocker people had long been steeped in the traditions and perks of old-style banker culture, complete with a marbled executive dining room with its own chef and $500,000 worth of china. Quite a contrast to the Spartan culture at Wells Fargo, where management ate food prepared by a college dormitory food service. Wells Fargo made it clear to the Crocker managers, look, this is not a merger of equals. It's an acquisition. We bought your branches and your customers. We didn't acquire you. Wells Fargo terminated most of the Crocker management team, 1,600 Crocker managers gone on day one. 1,600 gone on day one, including nearly all the top executives. A critic might say, and you might even be thinking, that was just the Wells people protecting their own. But consider the following fact. Wells Fargo also sent some of its own managers packing in cases where the Crocker managers were judged as better qualified. When it came to management, the Wells Fargo standards were ferocious and consistent. Like a professional sports team, only the best made the annual cut, regardless of position or tenure. Summed up one Wells Fargo executive, quote, the only way to deliver to the people who are achieving is to not burden them with the people who are not achieving, unquote. You might be thinking, boy, that sounds awfully ruthless. On the surface, it looks ruthless. But the evidence suggests that the average Crocker manager was just not the same caliber as the average Wells Fargo manager and would have failed in the Wells Fargo performance culture. If they weren't going to make it on the bus in the long term, why let them suffer in the short term? One senior Wells Fargo executive told us, we all agreed this was an acquisition, not a merger. And there's no sense beating around the bush, not being straightforward with people. We decided it would be best to simply do it on day one. We planned our efforts so that we could say right up front, sorry, we don't see a role for you. Or, yes, we do see a role. You have a job, so stop worrying about it. We were not going to subject our culture to a death by a thousand cuts. You want to talk about ruthless? To let people languish in uncertainty for months or years, stealing precious time in their lives that they could use to move on to something else, when in the end, they're not going to make it anyway. That would be ruthless. To deal with it right up front, to be honest, to be forthright, to be consistent, and to let people get on with their lives, that is rigorous. Not that the Crocker acquisition is easy to swallow. It's never pleasant to see thousands of people lose their jobs. But the era of bank deregulation saw hundreds of thousands of lost jobs. Given that, it's interesting to note two points. First, Wells Fargo did fewer big layoffs than its comparison company, Bank of America. This is the power of comparisons. Wells Fargo looks rigorous and ruthless for cutting all of these people out, but then you look at the comparison and find they did it even more. 
Second, upper management, including some senior Wells Fargo upper management, suffered more on a percentage basis than lower level workers in the consolidation. Rigor, rigorous not ruthless, in a good to great company applies first at the top, focused on those who hold the largest burden of responsibility. To be rigorous in people decisions means first becoming rigorous about top management people decisions. I remember writing Good to Great and I feared that people might use first who rigor as an excuse for mindlessly chopping out people to improve performance. I still worry about that. It's hard to do, but we've got to be rigorous. I read it in Good to Great. I can hear people say this. And I cringe. For not only will a lot of hard-working people get hurt in the process, but the evidence suggests that such tactics are contrary to producing sustained great results. The good to great companies rarely, rarely used headcount lopping as a tactic and almost never used it as a primary strategy. Even in the Wells Fargo case, the most extreme in our study, the company used layoffs half as much as its comparison company Bank of America during the transition era. We went back and analyzed the role of layoffs and restructuring. Here's what we found. Six of the 11 good to great companies recorded zero layoffs from 10 years before the breakthrough date all the way through 1998. And four others reported only one or two layoffs. Let me just, just stop and think about that for a moment. These were companies that had to change their performance. These were companies that had terrible to, at best, good performance. And six of 11 of them recorded zero layoffs from 10 years before their breakthrough all the way up through 1998. And only one or two layoffs in four of the others. Now let's look at the comparisons, where in contrast, we found layoffs used five times more frequently than in the good to great companies. Some of the comparison companies had an almost chronic addiction to layoffs and restructurings. It would be a mistake, a tragic mistake, to think that the way you ignite a transformation from good to great is by wantonly swinging the axe on vast numbers of hardworking people. Endless restructuring and mindless hacking were never and are not today part of any good to great model. Rigorous, not ruthless. How to be rigorous. We've extracted three practical disciplines from the research for being rigorous rather than ruthless. Practical discipline number one. When in doubt, don't hire. Keep looking. One of the immutable laws of management physics is Packard's law, so-called because we first learned it in a previous research project from David Packard, co-founder of the Hewlett Packard Company. It goes like this. 
No company can grow revenues consistently faster than its ability to get enough of the right people to implement that growth and still become a great company. If your growth rate in revenues consistently outpaces your growth rate in people, you simply will not, indeed you cannot, build a great company. Those who build great companies understand that the ultimate throttle on growth for any great company is not markets, it's not technology, it's not competition, it's not products. It is one thing above all others, the ability to get and keep enough of the right people. The management team at Circuit City during its transition era instinctively understood Packard's law. Driving around Santa Barbara the day after Christmas a number of years ago, I noticed something different about the Circuit City store. Other stores had signs and banners reaching out to customers, always the best prices or great after-holiday deals or best after-Christmas selection and so forth. Then I looked over at the Circuit City store. It had a banner that read, Always looking for great people. The sign reminded me of our interview with Walter Bruckert vice president during the good to great years. When asked to name the top five factors that led to the transition from mediocrity to excellence, Bruckert said, and I quote, this is a direct quote, one would be people, two would be people, three would be people, four would be people, and five would be people. A huge part of our transition can be attributed to our discipline in picking the right people. Bruckert then recalled a conversation with CEO Alan Wurzel during a growth spurt at Circuit City. Alan, I'm really wearing down trying to find the exact right person to fill this position or that position. At what point do I compromise? Without hesitation, Alan said, you don't compromise. We find another way to get through until we find the right people. One of the key contrasts between Alan Wurzel at Circuit City and Sidney Cooper at Silo, which is the comparison company to Circuit City during the transition era, is that Wurzel spent the bulk of his time in the early years focused on getting the right people on the bus, whereas Cooper spent 80% of his time focusing on the right stores to buy. Wurzel's first goal was to build the best, most professional management team in the industry. Cooper's first goal was simply to grow as fast as possible. Circuit City put tremendous emphasis on getting the right people all up and down the line, from delivery drivers to vice presidents. Silo, in contrast, developed a reputation for not being able to do the basics, like making home deliveries without damaging the products. According to Circuit City's Dan Rexinger, we made the best home delivery drivers in the industry. We told them, you are the last contact the customer has with Circuit City. We're going to supply you with uniforms. We will require that you shave, that you don't have body odor. You're going to be professional people. The change in the way we handled customers and making a delivery was absolutely incredible. We would get thank you notes back on how courteous the drivers were. Five years into Wurzel's tenure, Circuit City and Silo had essentially the same business strategy, the same what? Yet Circuit City took off like a rocket beating the general stock market 18.5 to 1 in the 15 years after its transition, while Silo, which had the same strategy, keep in mind, same what? 
bumped along until it was finally acquired by a foreign company. Same strategy, different people, different results. Practical discipline number two. When you know you need to make a people change, act. The moment you feel the need to tightly manage someone, you've likely made a hiring mistake. The best people don't need to be managed. Let me repeat that. That's one of the key points of this whole book. The best people, the right people on the bus, don't need to be managed, don't need to be disciplined, don't need to be motivated. Guided, taught, led, yes, but not tightly managed. We've all experienced or observed the following scenario. We have a wrong person on the bus, and we know it. Yet we wait, we delay, we try alternatives, we give a third and fourth chance, we hope that the situation will improve, we invest time in trying to properly manage the person, we build little systems to compensate for his or her shortcomings, and so forth. But the situation doesn't improve. When we go home, we find our energy diverted by thinking or talking with our spouses about that person. Worse, all the time and energy we spend on that one person siphons energy away from developing and working with all the right people. We continue to stumble along until the person leaves on his own, to our great sense of relief, or we finally act, also to our great sense of relief. Meanwhile, our best people wonder. They're looking at us thinking, what took you so long? Letting the wrong people hang around is unfair to all the right people as they inevitably find themselves compensating for the inadequacies of the wrong people. Worse, it can drive away the best people. Strong performers are intrinsically motivated by performance, and when they see their efforts impeded by carrying extra weight, they eventually become frustrated. Waiting too long before acting is equally unfair to the people who need to get off the bus. For every minute you allow a person to continue holding a seat, when you know that person will not make it in the end, you are stealing in the worst way. You are stealing a portion of that person's life. Time that he or she could spend finding a better place where he could flourish. Indeed, if we're honest with ourselves, the reason we wait too long often has less to do with concern for that person and more to do with our own convenience. He's doing an okay job and it would be a huge hassle to replace him, so we avoid the issue. Or we find the whole process of dealing with the issue to be stressful and distasteful. So, to save ourselves stress and discomfort, we wait and wait, and wait. Meanwhile, all the best people are still wondering, when are they going to do something about this? How long is this going to go on? Using data from Moody's company information reports, we were able to examine the pattern of turnover in the top management levels. We found no difference in the amount of churn turnover within a period of time between the good to great and comparison companies. 
but we did find differences in the pattern of churn. The good to great companies showed the following bipolar pattern at the top management level. People either stayed on the bus for a long time or got off the bus in a hurry. In other words, the good to great companies did not churn more. They churned better. The good to great leaders did not pursue an expedient try a lot of people and keep who works model of management. Instead, they adopted the following approach. Let's take the time to make rigorous A-plus selections right up front. If we get it right, we'll do everything we can to try to keep them on board for a long time. If we make a mistake, and all of them made mistakes, then we will confront that fact so that we can get on with our work and they can get on with their lives. I need to underscore a key point here. The good to great leaders would not rush to judgment. Often they invested substantial effort in determining whether they had someone in the wrong seat before concluding that they had the wrong person on the bus entirely. This is a key premise or a key principle in this chapter. If you think you might have a bus problem, ask first, perhaps I have a seat problem. When Coleman Mockler became CEO of Gillette, he didn't go on a rampage, wantonly throwing people out the windows of a moving bus. He spent fully 55% of his time during his first two years in office jiggering around with the management team changing or moving 38 of the top 50 people. That's pretty amazing, you think about it. 38 of the top 50 people he moved around to get it right. Said Mockler, every minute devoted to putting the proper person in the proper slot is worth weeks of time later. Similarly, Alan Wurzel of Circuit City sent us a letter after reading an early draft of this chapter, wherein he commented, and this is Wurzel. Your point about getting the right people on the bus as compared to other companies is dead on. There is one corollary that is also important. I spent a lot of time thinking and talking about who sits where on the bus. I called it putting square pegs in square holes and round pegs in round holes. Instead of firing honest and able people who are not performing well, it is important to try to move them once or even two or three times to other positions where they might blossom. It might take time to know for certain if someone is simply in the wrong seat or whether he needs to get off the bus altogether. Nonetheless, when the good to great leaders knew they had to make a people change, they would act. But how do you know when you know? Two key questions can help. First, if it were a hiring decision, rather than a should-this-person-get-off-the-bus decision, if you were hiring this person all over again from scratch, would you hire? Second, if the person came to tell you that he or she is leaving to pursue an exciting new opportunity, would you feel terribly disappointed or secretly relieved? Practical Discipline Number 3 Put your best people on your biggest opportunities, not your biggest problems. In the early 1960s, R.J. Reynolds and Philip Morris derived the vast majority of their revenues from the domestic arena, 
R.J. Reynolds' approach to international business was, if somebody out there in the world wants a camel, let them call us. Joe Coleman at Philip Morris had a different view. He identified international markets as the single best opportunity for long-term growth, despite the fact that the company derived less than 1% of its revenues from overseas. Coleman puzzled over the best strategy for developing international operations, and he eventually came up with a brilliant answer. It wasn't a what answer. Following the principle of first who, it was a who answer. He took his number one executive, George Weissman, off the primary domestic business and put him in charge of international. I mean, think about this. There's only 1% of the business at the time. International amounted to almost nothing, a tiny export department, a struggling investment in Venezuela and another in Australia, and a tiny operation in Canada. That's it. When Joe put George in charge of international, a lot of people wondered what George had done wrong, quipped one of Weissman's colleagues. Said Weissman himself, I didn't know whether I was being thrown sideways, downstairs, or out the window. Here I was running 99% of the business, and the next day, I'd be running 1% or less. Yet, as Forbes magazine observed 20 years later, Coleman's decision to move Weissman to the smallest part of the business was a stroke of genius. Urbane and sophisticated, Weissman was the perfect person to develop markets like Europe, and he built international into the largest and fastest-growing part of the company. In fact, under Weissman's stewardship, Marlboro became the best-selling cigarette in the world three years before it became number one in the United States. The RJR versus Philip Morris case illustrates a common pattern. The good-to-great companies made a habit of putting their best people on their best opportunities, not their biggest problems. The comparison companies had a penchant for doing just the opposite, failing to grasp the fact that managing your problems can only make you good, whereas building on your opportunities is the only way to become great. There's an important corollary to this discipline. When you decide to sell off your problems, don't sell off your best people. This is one of those little secrets of change. If you create a place where the best people always have a seat on the bus, they're more likely to support changes in direction. When Kimberly Clark sold the mills, Darwin Smith made it clear. The company might be getting rid of the paper business, but it would keep its best people. Many of our people had come up through the paper business. Then all of a sudden, the crown jewels were being sold off, and they're asking, what's my future, explained Dick Octor. And Darwin would say, we need all the talented managers we can get. We keep them. Despite the fact that they had little or no consumer experience, Smith moved all the best people from paper to the consumer business. We interviewed Dick Appert, a senior executive who spent the majority of his career in the papermaking division at Kimberly Clark. The same division sold off to create funds for the company's big move into consumer products. He talked with pride and excitement about the transformation of Kimberly Clark and how it had the guts to sell the paper mills and how it had the foresight to exit the paper business and throw the proceeds into the consumer business and how it had taken on Procter & Gamble and won. 
I never had any argument with our decision to dissolve the paper division of the company, he said. We did get rid of the paper mills at that time, and I was absolutely in agreement with that. Stop and think about that for a moment. The right people want to be part of building something great. And Dick Appert saw that Kimberly Clark could become great by selling the part of the company where he had spent most of his working life. The Philip Morris and Kimberly Clark cases illustrate a final point about the right people. We noticed a level five atmosphere, a level five team culture at the top executive level of every good to great company during the key transition years. Not that every executive on the team became a fully evolved level five leader to the same degree as Darwin Smith or Coleman Mockler, but each core member of the team transformed personal ambition into ambition for the company and for the team. This suggests that the team members had level five potential, or at least they were capable of operating in a manner consistent with the level five leadership style. You might be wondering, what's the difference between a level five executive team member and just being a good soldier? The difference is this. A level five executive team member does not blindly acquiesce to authority and is a strong leader in her own right. So driven and talented that she builds her arena into one of the very best in the world. Yet, at the same time, each team member must also have the ability to meld that individual strength into doing whatever it takes to make the company great. One of the crucial elements in taking a company from good to great is somewhat paradoxical. You need executives on the one hand who argue and debate, sometimes violently, eyeball to eyeball, like those Wells Fargo executives, in pursuit of the best answers. Yet, on the other hand, who will unify fully behind a decision, regardless of their personal or parochial interests. An article on Philip Morris said of the Coleman era, These guys never agreed on anything, and they would argue about everything. And they would kill each other and evolve everyone, high and low, talented people. But when they had to make a decision, the decision would emerge. This made Philip Morris. No matter how much they argued, said a Philip Morris executive, they were always in search of the best answer. In the end, everybody stood behind the decision. All of the debates were for the common good of the company not your own interests. First two, great companies and a great life. Whenever I teach the good to great finding, someone almost always raises the issue of personal cost in making a transformation. In other words, is it possible to build a great company and also build a great life? Or do you have to choose? The answer is yes, you can have both. The secret to doing so lies right here in this chapter. I spent a few short days with a senior Gillette executive and his wife at an executive conference in Hong Kong. During the course of our conversations, I asked them if they thought Coleman Mockler, the CEO most responsible for Gillette's transition from good to great, had had a great life. 
Coleman's life revolved around three great loves, they told me. His family, Harvard, and Gillette. Even during the darkest and most intense times of the takeover crises of the 1980s, and despite the increasingly global nature of Gillette's business, Mockler maintained remarkable balance in his life. He did not significantly reduce the amount of time he spent with his family, rarely working on evenings or weekends. He maintained his disciplined worship practices. He continued his active work on the governing board of Harvard College. When I asked how Mockler accomplished all of this, the executive said, oh, it really wasn't that hard for him. He was so good at assembling the right people around him and putting the right people in the right seats that he just didn't need to be there all hours of the day and night. That was Coleman's whole secret to success and balance. The executive went on to explain that he was just as likely to meet Mockler in the hardware store as the office. He really enjoyed puttering around the house, fixing things up. He always seemed to find time to relax that way. Then the executive's wife added, When Coleman died, and we all went to the funeral, I looked around and realized how much love was in the room. This was a man who spent nearly all his waking hours with people who loved him, who loved what they were doing, and who loved one another, at work, at home, in his charitable work, wherever. The statement rang a bell for me, as there was something about the good-to-great executive teams that I couldn't quite describe, but that clearly set them apart. In wrapping up our interview with George Weissman of Philip Morris, I commented, When you talk about your time at the company, it's as if you're describing a love affair. He chuckled and said, Yes, other than my marriage, it was the passionate love affair of my life. I don't think many people would understand what I'm talking about, but I suspect my colleagues would. Weissman and many of his executive colleagues kept offices at Philip Morris, coming in on a regular basis long after retirement. A corridor at the Philip Morris World Headquarters is called the Hall of the Wizards That Was. It's the corridor where Weissman, Coleman, Maxwell, and others continue to come into the office, in large part because they simply enjoy spending time together. Similarly, Dick Appert of Kimberly Clark said in his interview, I never had anyone in Kimberly Clark in all my 41 years say anything unkind to me. I thank God the day I was hired because I've been associated with wonderful people, good, good people who respected and admired one another. Members of the good to great teams tended to become and remain friends for life. In many cases, they are still in close contact with each other years or decades after working together. It was striking to hear them talk about the transition era, for no matter how dark the days or how big the tasks, these people had fun. They enjoyed each other's company and actually looked forward to meetings. Imagine that. They looked forward to meetings. A number of the executives characterized their years on the good to great teams as the high point of their lives. Their experiences went beyond just mutual respect, 
which they certainly had, to lasting comradeship. Adherence to the idea of first who might be the closest link between a great company and a great life. For no matter what we achieve, if we don't spend the vast majority of our time with people we love and respect, we cannot possibly have a great life. But if we spend the vast majority of our time with people we love and respect, people we really enjoy being on the bus with, and who will never disappoint us, then we will almost certainly have a great life, no matter where the bus goes. The people we interviewed from the good to great companies clearly loved what they did, largely because they loved who they did it with. Summary points. First who, then what? The good to great leaders began the transformation by first getting the right people on the bus and the wrong people off the bus, and then they figured out where to drive it. The key point of this chapter is not just the idea of getting the right people on the team. The key point is that who questions come before what decisions, before vision, before strategy, before organization structure, before tactics. First who, then what, as a rigorous discipline consistently applied. The comparison companies frequently followed what we came to call the genius with a thousand helpers model. A genius leader who sets a vision and then enlists a crew of highly capable helpers to make the vision happen. This model fails when the genius departs. The good to great leaders were rigorous, not ruthless, in people decisions. They did not rely on layoffs and restructuring as a primary strategy for improving performance. The comparison companies used layoffs to a much greater extent. We uncovered three practical disciplines for being rigorous in people decisions. Discipline number one, when in doubt, don't hire, keep looking. Corollary to discipline one, a company should limit its growth based on its ability to attract enough of the right people. Discipline number two, when you know you need to make a people change, act. Corollary to discipline number two, first, be sure you don't simply have someone in the wrong seat. And discipline number three, put your best people on your biggest opportunities, not your biggest problems. Corollary to discipline number three, if you sell off your problems, don't sell off your best people. Good to great management teams consist of people who debate vigorously in search of the best answers, yet who unify behind decisions regardless of their personal parochial interests. And of course, we had some unexpected findings. First, we found no systematic pattern linking executive compensation to the shift from good to great. The purpose of compensation, we concluded, is not to motivate the right behaviors from the wrong people, but to get and keep the right people in the first place. The old adage, people are your most important asset, is wrong. People are not your most important asset. The right people are. And finally, whether someone is the right person has more to do with character traits and innate capabilities than with specific knowledge, background, or skills. 
It all adds up to an orientation, an obsession, a lens, a frame of reference for everything you do from this point forward. First who, then what? First who, then what? Chapter 4. Confront the Brutal Facts, Yet Never Lose Faith. There is no worse mistake in public leadership than to hold out false hopes soon to be swept away. Winston Churchill, The Hinge of Fate. In the early 1950s, the Great Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company, commonly known as A&P, stood as the largest retailing organization in the world and one of the largest corporations in the United States, at one point ranking behind only General Motors in annual sales. Kroger, in contrast, stood as an unspectacular grocery chain, less than half the size of A&P, with performance that barely kept pace with the general market. Then in the 1960s, A&P began to falter, while Kroger began to lay the foundations for a transition into a great company. From 1959 to 1973, both companies lagged behind the market, with Kroger pulling just a bit ahead of A&P. After that, the two companies completely diverged, and over the next 25 years, Kroger generated cumulative returns 10 times the market, and 80-80 times better than A&P. How on earth did such a dramatic reversal of fortunes happen? How could a company as great as A&P, the number two largest company in the United States, the largest retailing company in the world, become so awful? A&P had a perfect model for the first half of the 20th century, when two world wars and a depression imposed frugality upon Americans. Cheap, plentiful groceries sold in utilitarian stores. But in the affluent second half of the 20th century, Americans changed. They wanted nicer stores, bigger stores, more choices in stores. They wanted fresh baked bread, flowers, health foods, cold medicines, fresh produce, 45 choices of cereal, and 10 types of milk. They wanted offbeat items like five different types of expensive sprouts and various concoctions of protein powders and Chinese healing herbs. Oh, and they wanted to be able to do their banking and get their annual flu shots while shopping. In short, they no longer wanted grocery stores. They wanted superstores with a big block S on the chest, offering almost everything under one roof with lots of parking, cheap prices, clean floors, and a gazillion checkout lines. Right off the bat, you might be thinking, okay, so the story of A&P is one of an aging company that had a strategy that was right for the times. And then the times changed, and the world passed it by as younger, better-attuned companies gave customers more of what they wanted. What's so interesting about that? Same old story. Here's what's interesting. Both... Kroger and A&P were old companies. Kroger at 82 years, A&P at 111 years, heading into the 1970s. Both Kroger and A&P had nearly all their assets invested in traditional grocery stores. Both 
companies had strongholds outside the major growth areas of the United States. And both companies had knowledge of how the world around them was changing. Yet, one of these two companies confronted the brutal facts of reality head-on and completely changed its entire system in response. The other stuck its head in the sand. In 1958, Forbes magazine described A&P as the hermit kingdom, run as an absolute monarchy by an aging prince. Ralph Berger, the successor to the Hartford brothers who had built the A&P dynasty, sought to preserve two things above all else. Cash dividends for the family foundation and the past glory of the Hartford brothers. According to one A&P director, Berger considered himself the reincarnation of old John Hartford, even to the point of wearing a flower in his lapel every day from Hartford's greenhouse. He tried to carry out, against all opposition, what he thought Mr. John, that is Mr. John Hartford, would have liked. Berger instilled a what-would-Mr.-Hartford-do approach to decisions, living by the motto, you can't argue with a hundred years of success. Indeed, through Berger, Mr. Hartford continued to be the dominant force on the board for nearly 20 years. Never mind the fact that he was already dead. As the brutal facts about the mismatch between its past model and the changing world began to pile up, A&P mounted an increasingly spirited defense against those facts. In one series of events, the company opened a new store called The Golden Key, a separate brand wherein it could experiment with new methods and models to learn what customers wanted. It sold no A&P branded products. It gave the store manager more freedom. It experimented with innovative new departments. And it began to evolve toward what would become the modern superstore. Customers really liked it. Here, right under their noses, they began to discover the answer to the question of why they were losing market share and what they could do about it. They had the solution in the palm of their own hands. And what did A&P executives do with the golden key? They didn't like the answers it gave, so they closed it. A&P then began a pattern of lurching from one strategy to another, always looking for a single-stroke solution to its problems. It held pep rallies, launched programs, grabbed fads, fired CEOs, hired CEOs, and fired them yet again. It launched what one industry observer called a scorched-earth policy, a radical price-cutting strategy to build market share, but never dealt with the basic fact that customers wanted not lower prices, but different stores. The price-cutting led to cost-cutting, which led to even drabber stores and poorer service, which in turn drove customers away, further driving down margins, resulting in even dirtier stores and worse service. After a while, the crud kept mounting, said one former A&P manager. We not only had dirt, we had dirty dirt. Meanwhile, over at Kroger, a completely different pattern arose. Kroger also conducted experiments in the 1960s to test the Superstore concept. By 1970, the Kroger executive team came to an inescapable conclusion. The old model grocery store, which accounted for nearly 100% of Kroger's business, was going to become extinct. 
Unlike A&P, however, Kroger confronted this brutal truth and acted on it. The rise of Kroger is remarkably simple and straightforward, almost maddeningly so. During their interviews, Lyle Everingham and his predecessor, Jim Herring, they were the CEOs during the pivotal transition years, were polite and helpful, but a bit exasperated by our questions. To them, it just seemed so clear. When we asked Everingham to allocate 100 points across the top five factors in the transition, he said, I find your question a bit perplexing. Basically, we did extensive research, and the data came back loud and clear. It's that simple. The super combination stores were the way of the future. We also learned that you had to be number one or number two in each market, or you had to exit. Sure, there was some skepticism at first, but once we looked at the facts, there was really no question about what we had to do. So we just did it. Kroger decided to eliminate, change, or replace every single store and depart every region that did not fit the new realities. The whole system would be turned inside out, store by store, block by block, city by city, state by state. By the early 1990s, Kroger had rebuilt its entire system on the new model and was well on the way to becoming the number one grocery chain in America, a position it would attain in 1999. Meanwhile, A&P still had over half its stores, over half its stores in the old 1950 size and had dwindled to a sad remnant of a once great American institution. Facts are better than dreams. One of the dominant themes from our research is that breakthrough results come about by a series of good decisions, diligently executed and accumulated one on top of another. Of course, the good to great companies did not have a perfect track record. But on the whole, they made many more good decisions than bad ones. And they made many more good decisions than the comparison companies. More important, on the really big choices, such as Kroger's decision to throw all its resources into the task of converting its entire system to the superstore concept, they were remarkably on target. This, of course, begs a question. Are we merely studying a set of companies that just happened by luck to stumble into the right set of decisions? Or was there something distinctive about their process? that dramatically increased the likelihood of being right. The answer, it turns out, is that there was something quite distinctive about their process. Even though they saw themselves as lucky, they were not just lucky. The good-to-great companies displayed two distinctive forms of disciplined thought. Now, let me just pause here for a moment and remind us of the framework that we laid out at the beginning of this audiobook. A good-to-great transformation proceeds in a process of build-up leading to breakthrough. And that build-up-to-breakthrough process breaks into a few basic stages. In particular, stage one, disciplined people. Stage two, disciplined thought. Stage three, disciplined action. Disciplined people who engage in disciplined thought who take disciplined action. The previous two chapters, level five leadership and first two, were about disciplined people. The next two chapters, the one we're in now and the hedgehog, are all about disciplined thought. That's where we are in the framework. 
The first key method of discipline thought, and the topic of this chapter, is that the good to great companies infuse the entire process with the brutal facts of reality. The second, which we will discuss in the next chapter, is that they developed a simple yet deeply insightful frame of reference for all decisions. When, as in the Kroger case, you start with an honest and diligent effort to determine the truth of the situation, the right decisions often become self-evident. Not always, of course, but often. And even if all the decisions do not become self-evident, one thing is certain. You absolutely cannot make a series of good decisions without first confronting the brutal facts. The good to great companies operated in accordance with this principle, and the comparison companies generally did not. Consider Pitney Bowes versus Addressograph during the transition of the 1970s. It would be hard to find two companies in more similar positions at a specific moment in history that then diverged so dramatically. Until 1973, Pitney Bowes and Addressograph had similar revenues, profits, numbers of employees, and stock charts. Both companies held near-monopoly market positions with virtually the same customer base. Pitney Bowes in postage meters and Addressograph in address-duplicating machines. And both faced the imminent reality of losing their monopolies. By year 2000, however, Pitney Bowes had grown to over 30,000 employees and had revenues in excess of $4 billion compared to the sorry remnants of Addressograph, which had less than $100 million in revenues and only 670 employees. For the shareholder, Pitney Bowes outperformed Addressograph 3,581 to 1. Yes, 3,581 times better. So here we have a classic match pair. We have two companies in 1973 that are virtually identical. They're in the same kind of situation with the same size and revenues and opportunities and challenges that they face. And yet, nearly 30 years later, they are in completely different places. How on earth did this happen? Match pair, contrast, what do we learn? In 1976, a charismatic leader named Roy Ash became CEO of Addressograph. A self-described conglomerateur, Ash had previously built Litton by stacking acquisitions together that had since faltered. According to Fortune magazine, he sought to use Addressograph as a platform to reestablish his leadership prowess in the eyes of the world. Ash set forth a vision to dominate the likes of IBM, Xerox, and Kodak in the emerging field of office automation. A bold plan for a company that had previously only dominated the envelope address duplication business. There's nothing wrong with a bold vision. But Ash became so wedded to his quixotic quest that according to Businessweek, he refused to confront the mounting evidence that his plan was doomed to fail and might take down the rest of the company with it. 
He insisted on milking cash from profitable arenas, eroding the core business while throwing money after a gambit that had little chance of success. Later, after Ash was thrown out of office and the company had filed for bankruptcy, from which it did later emerge, he still refused to confront reality, saying, We lost some battles, but we were winning the war. But Adressograph was not even close to winning the war, and people throughout the company knew it at the time. Yet the truth went unheard until it was too late. In fact, many of Adressograph's key people bailed out of the company, dispirited by their inability to get top management to deal with the facts. Perhaps we should give Mr. Ash some credit for being a visionary, who tried to push his company to greater heights. And to be fair, the Adressograph board fired Ash before he had a chance to fully carry out his plans. But the evidence from a slew of respectable articles written at the time suggests that Ash turned a blind eye to any reality inconsistent with his own vision of the world. There is nothing wrong with pursuing a vision for greatness. Indeed, that is what this book is about, pursuing a vision of greatness. After all, the good to great companies also set out to create greatness. But unlike the comparison companies, the good to great companies continually refined the path to greatness with the brutal facts of reality. When you turn over rocks and look at all the squiggly things underneath, you can either put the rock down or you can say, my job is to turn over rocks and look at the squiggly things, even if what you see can scare the hell out of you. That quote from Pitney Bowes executive Fred Perdue could have come from any of the Pitney Bowes executives we interviewed. They all seemed a bit, well, to be blunt, neurotic and compulsive about Pitney's position in the world. This is a culture that is very hostile to complacency, said one executive. We have an itch that what we just accomplished, no matter how great, is never going to be good enough to sustain us, said another. During the key transition years, Pitney's first management meeting of each new year typically consisted of about 15 minutes discussing the previous year, which were almost always superb results, and then two hours talking about the scary, squiggly things that might impede future results. Pitney sales meetings were quite different from the aren't we great rah-rah sales conferences typical at most companies. The entire management team would lay itself open to searing questions and challenges from salespeople who dealt directly with customers. The company created a long-standing tradition of forums where people could stand up and tell senior executives what the company was doing wrong, shoving rocks with squiggly things in their faces and saying, Look! You'd better pay attention to this. The addressograph case, especially in contrast to Pitney Bowes, illustrates a vital point. Strong, charismatic leaders like Roy Ash can all too easily become the de facto reality driving a company. Throughout the study, we found comparison companies were the top leader. Comparison companies, these are the ones that didn't become great, where the top leader led with such force or instilled such fear that people worried more about what the leader would say, what the leader would think, what the leader would do, then they worried about external reality and what it could do to the company. 
Recall the climate at Bank of America, described in the previous chapter, wherein managers would not even make a comment until they knew how the CEO felt. We did not find this pattern at companies like Wells Fargo and Pitney Bowes, particularly during their best transition years, where people were much more worried about the scary, squiggly things than about the feelings of top management. The moment a leader allows himself to become the primary reality people worry about, rather than reality being the primary reality people worry about, you have a recipe for mediocrity, or worse. This is one of the key reasons why less charismatic leaders often produce better long-term results than their more charismatic counterparts. For those of you who are afflicted with a strong charismatic personality, it's worthwhile to consider the idea that your charisma can be as much a liability as an asset. Your strength of personality can sow the seeds of problems when people filter the brutal facts from you. You can overcome the liabilities of charisma. You can transcend this particular affliction. But it does require conscious attention. Winston Churchill understood the liabilities of his strong personality, and he compensated for them beautifully during the Second World War. Churchill, as you know, maintained a bold and unwavering vision that Britain would not just survive, but would prevail as a great nation, despite the whole world wondering not if, but when, Britain would sue for peace. During the darkest days with nearly all of Europe and North Africa under Nazi control, the United States hoping to stay out of the conflict and Hitler fighting a one-front war he had not yet turned on Russia, Churchill said, We are resolved to destroy Hitler and every vestige of the Nazi regime. From this, nothing will turn us. Nothing we will never parley. We will never negotiate with Hitler or any of his gang. We shall fight him by land. We shall fight him by sea. We shall fight him in the air until, with God's help, we have rid the earth of his shadow. Yet despite this bold vision, Churchill never failed to confront the most brutal facts. He feared that his towering charismatic personality might deter bad news from reaching him in its starkest form. So early in the war, he created an entirely separate department outside the normal chain of command, called the Statistical Office, with the principal function of feeding him continuously updated and completely unfiltered the most brutal facts of reality. He relied heavily on this special unit throughout the war, repeatedly asking for facts, just the facts. As the Nazi panzers swept across Europe, Churchill went to bed and slept soundly. I had no need for cheering dreams, he wrote. Facts are better than dreams. Now you might be wondering, how do you motivate people with brutal facts? Doesn't motivation flow chiefly from a compelling vision? The answer, surprisingly, is no. Not because vision is unimportant 
but because expending energy trying to motivate people is largely a waste of time. One of the dominant themes that runs throughout this book is that if you successfully implement its findings, you will not need to spend time and energy motivating people. If you have the right people on the bus, they will be self-motivated. The real question then becomes, how do you manage in such a way as to not demotivate already motivated people? And one of the single most demotivating actions you can take is to hold out false hopes, soon to be swept away by events. Yes, leadership is about vision, but leadership is equally about creating a climate where the truth is heard and the brutal facts confronted. There's a huge difference between the opportunity to have your say and the opportunity to be heard. The good to great leaders understood this distinction, creating a culture wherein people had a tremendous opportunity to be heard and ultimately for the truth to be heard. How do you create a climate where the truth is heard? We offer four basic practices that we derived from the research. Practice number one, lead with questions, not answers. In 1973, one year after he assumed CEO responsibility from his father, Alan Wurzel's company stood at the brink of bankruptcy, dangerously close to violation of its loan agreements. At the time, the company then named Wards, not to be confused with Montgomery Ward, was a hodgepodge of appliance and hi-fi stores with no unifying concept. Over the next 10 years, Wurzel and his team not only turned the company around, but also created the Circuit City concept and laid the foundations for a stunning record of results, beating the market 22 times from its transition date in 1982 to January 1, 2000. When Alan Wurzel started the long traverse from near bankruptcy to these stellar results, he began with a remarkable answer to the question of where to take the company. His answer? Alan, where are we going to take the company? What's your vision? What's your direction? What's your strategy? I don't know. It's such a wonderful answer because it's so honest. Unlike leaders such as Roy Ash of Addressograph, Wurzel resisted the urge to walk in with the answer. Instead, once he put the right people on the bus, he began not with answers, but with questions. Alan was a real spark, said a board member. He had an ability to ask questions that were just marvelous. We had some wonderful debates in the boardroom. It was never just a dog and pony show where you would just listen and then go to lunch. Indeed, Wurzel stands as one of the few CEOs in a large corporation who put more questions to his board members than they put to him. He took the same approach with his executive team, constantly pushing and probing and prodding with questions. Each step along the way, Wurzel would keep asking questions until he had a clear picture of reality and its implications. They used to call me the prosecutor because I would home in on a question, said Wurzel, you know, like a bulldog. I wouldn't let go until I understood. Why? 
Why? Why? Like Wurzel, leaders in each of the good-to-great transitions operated with a somewhat Socratic style. Furthermore, they used questions for one and only one reason, to gain understanding. They didn't use questions as a form of manipulation. Don't you agree with me on that? Or as a way to blame or put down others. Why did you mess that up? When we asked the executives about their management team meetings during the transition era, they said they spent much of the time just trying to understand. The good to great leaders made particularly good use of informal meetings, where they'd meet with groups of managers and employees with no script, agenda, or set of action items to discuss. Instead, they would start with questions like, So what's on your mind? Can you tell me about that? Can you help me understand? What should we be worried about? These non-agenda meetings became a forum where current realities tended to bubble to the surface. Leading from good to great does not mean coming up with the answers. And it does not mean motivating everyone to follow your messianic vision. It means having the humility, level 5 humility, to grasp the fact that you do not yet understand enough to have all the answers. And then to ask the questions that will lead to the best possible insights. Number two, engage in dialogue and debate, not coercion. In 1965, you could hardly find a company more awful than Nucor. It had only one division that made money. Everything else drained cash. It had no culture to be proud of. It had no consistent direction. It was on the verge of bankruptcy. At the time, Nucor was officially known as the Nuclear Corporation of America, reflecting its orientation to nuclear energy products, including the scintillation probe. Yes, they really named it that used for radiation measurement. It had acquired a series of unrelated businesses in such areas as semiconductor supplies, rare earth materials, electrostatic office copiers, and roof choice. At the start of its transformation in 1965, Nucor did not manufacture one ounce of steel. Nor did it make a penny of profit. Yet 30 years later, from this disastrous beginning of transformation, Nucor stood as the fourth largest steelmaker in the world, and by 1999 made greater annual profits than any other American steel company. How did Nucor transition from the utterly awful Nuclear Corporation of America into perhaps the best steel company in America? First, Nucor benefited from the emergence of a Level 5 leader, Ken Iverson, promoted to CEO from general manager of the Joist division. Second, Iverson got the right people on the bus, building a remarkable team of people like Sam Siegel, described by one of his colleagues as the best money manager in the world, a magician, and David Aycock, an operations genius. And then what? Like Alan Wurzel, Ken Iverson dreamed of building a great company, but he refused to begin with the answer for how to get there. Instead, he played the role of Socratic moderator in a series of raging debates. We established an ongoing series of general manager meetings, and my role was more as a mediator, 
commented Iverson. They were chaos. We would stay there for hours, ironing out the issues until we came to something. At times, the meetings would get so violent that people almost went across the table at each other. People yelled. They waved their arms around and pounded on tables. Faces would get red and veins bulged out. Iverson's assistant tells of a scene repeated over the years wherein colleagues would march into Iverson's office and yell and scream at each other, but then emerge with a conclusion. Argue and debate, then sell the nuclear business. Argue and debate, then focus on steel joists. Argue and debate, then begin to manufacture their own steel. Argue and debate, then invest in their own mini-mill. Argue and debate, then build a second mini-mill and so forth, and so on. Nearly all the new core executives we spoke with described a climate of debate, wherein the company's strategy evolved through many agonizing arguments and fights. Like Nucor, all the good-to-great companies had a penchant for intense dialogue. Phrases like loud debate, heated discussions, and healthy conflict peppered the articles and interview transcripts from all the companies. They didn't use discussion as a sham process to let people have their say so that they could buy in to a predetermined decision. This is simply manipulation. The process was more like a heated scientific debate with people engaged in a search for the best answers. Point three, conduct autopsies without blame. In 1978, Philip Morris acquired the 7-Up Company, only to sell it eight years later at a loss. The financial loss was relatively small compared to Philip Morris's total assets, but it was a highly visible black eye that consumed thousands of hours of precious management time. In our interviews with the Philip Morris executives, we were struck by how they all brought up the debacle on their own and discussed it openly. Instead of hiding their big, ugly mistake, they seemed to feel an almost therapeutic need to talk about it. In his book, I'm a Lucky Guy, Joe Coleman dedicates five pages to dissecting the 7-Up disaster. He doesn't hold back the embarrassing truth about how flawed the decision was. It is a five-page clinical analysis of the mistake, its implications, and its lessons. Hundreds, if not thousands of people hours had been spent in autopsies of the 7-Up case. Yet, as much as they talked about this conspicuous failure, no one pointed fingers to single out blame. There is only one exception to this pattern, and that's Joe Coleman himself, standing in front of the mirror, pointing the finger right at himself. It became apparent that this was another Joe Coleman plan that didn't work. Joe Coleman writes. He goes even further, implying that if he'd only listened better to the people who challenged his idea at the time, the disaster might have been averted. He goes out of his way to give credit to those who were right in retrospect, naming those specific individuals who were more prescient than himself. In a modern era, when leaders go to great lengths to preserve the image of their own track record, stepping forth to claim credit about how they were visionary when their colleagues were not, 
but finding other people to blame when their decisions go awry. It's quite refreshing, I find it refreshing, to come across Joe Coleman. He set the tone. I will take responsibility for this bad decision, but we will all take responsibility for extracting the maximum learning from the tuition that we've paid. When you conduct autopsies without blame, conducting autopsies to figure out what went wrong without any need to put the blame on someone else, you go a long way toward creating a climate where the truth is heard. If you have the right people on the bus, you should almost never need to assign blame, but need only to search for understanding and learning. If you have the right people on the bus, chances are there's a system problem, not a people problem. Point four, build red flag mechanisms. We live in an information age when those with more and better information supposedly have an advantage. If you look across the rise and fall of organizations, however, you will rarely find companies stumbling because they lacked information. Bethlehem Steel executives had known for years about the threat of mini-mill companies like Nucor. They paid little attention until they woke up one day to discover large chunks of market share taken away. Upjohn, the comparison company to Abbott, had plenty of information that indicated some of its forthcoming products would fail to deliver anticipated results, or worse, had potentially serious side effects. Yet, it often ignored those problems. With Halcyon, for example, an insider was quoted in Newsweek as saying, dismissing safety concerns about Halcyon had become virtual company policy. In another case, when Upjohn found itself under fire, it framed its problems as adverse publicity, rather than confronting the truth of its own shortcomings. Executives at Bank of America had plenty of information about the realities of deregulation, Yet, despite having all the information they could possibly need, they failed to confront the one big implication of those realities. In a deregulated world, banking would be a commodity. And the old perks and genteel traditions of banking would be gone forever. Not until it had lost $1.8 billion did Bank of America fully accept this brutal fact. In contrast, Carl Reichert of Wells Fargo called the ultimate realist by his predecessor, hit the brutal facts of deregulation smack head on. Sorry, fellow bankers, but we can preserve the banker class no more. We've got to be businessmen with as much attention to costs and effectiveness as McDonald's. Indeed, we found no evidence that the good-to-great companies had more or better information than the comparison companies. None. Both sets of companies had virtually identical access to good information. So if that's the case, how do we explain all of this hoopla around information age and information management? The key, it turns out, lies not in better information, 
but in turning information into information that cannot be ignored. Catch that phrase again. The key lies not in having better information, but in turning information into information that cannot be ignored. One particularly powerful way to accomplish this is through what I like to call red flag mechanisms, or some people have heard me describe it as catalytic mechanisms. Allow me to use a personal example to illustrate the idea. When I was teaching by the case method at Stanford Business School, I issued to each MBA student an 8.5 by 11 bright red sheet of paper with the following instructions. This is your red flag for the quarter. If you raise your hand with your red flag, the world will stop for you. Nothing can prevent you from saying what you have to say. There are no restrictions on when and how to use your red flag. The decision rests entirely in your hands. You can use it to voice an observation, share a personal experience, present an analysis, disagree with the professor, disagree with me, disagree with all your classmates, challenge a CEO guest, respond to a fellow student, ask a question, make a suggestion, whatever. You can do whatever you want with your red flag. There will be no penalty whatsoever for the use of a red flag. Your red flag can be used only once during the quarter. So use it well. But when you use it, no power on earth can take it away from you. Your red flag is non-transferable. You cannot give it or sell to another student. I was a bit nervous using the red flag at first because I had no idea what would happen, especially each day in class. What would somebody do with their red flag? I would lose control over the class discussion for a moment. In one situation, a student flagged me with a red flag and said, Professor Collins, I think you're doing a particularly ineffective job of running class today. You're leading too much with your questions and stifling our independent thinking. Uh, why don't you let us think for ourselves? Isn't that wonderful? She was absolutely right. I was doing an ineffective job of Socratic teaching that day, and their learning suffered. Had I not had the red flag and a mechanism for her throwing it in my face, we could have wasted another 40 minutes of 60 people's precious learning time. The red flag confronted me with the brutal fact that my own questioning style stood in the way of people's learning. A student survey at the end of the quarter would have given me that same information, perhaps. But the red flag, in real time, in front of everyone in the classroom, for everybody to see, so I could not possibly ignore it without looking like a complete idiot, turned information about the shortcomings of my class into information that I absolutely could not ignore. I got the idea for the red flag mechanism from Bruce Wolpert, who instituted a particularly powerful device called ShortPay at his company, Granite Rock. ShortPay gives the customer full discretionary power to decide whether and how much to pay on an invoice based upon his or her own subjective evaluation of how he or she feels with the product or service. Short pay is not a refund policy. The customer does not need to return the product. 
nor does the customer need to call Granite Rock for permission. The customer simply circles the offending item on the invoice, deducts it from the total, and sends us a check for the balance. Imagine if the airlines did this, right? Imagine if you paid for your trip after your trip and you circled something while I wasn't really too happy with the gate agent, so I'm going to take off 40% of the ticket. This would be a catalytic mechanism for the airlines. When I asked Wolpert for his reasons for short pay, he said, you get a lot of information from customer surveys, but there are always ways of explaining away the data. With short pay, you absolutely have to pay attention to the data. You often don't know that a customer is upset until you lose that customer entirely. Short pay is like an early warning system that forces us to adjust quickly, long before we would lose that customer. Short pay, in other words, takes information and turns it into information that Granite Rock cannot ignore. To be clear, we did not generally find red flag mechanisms as vivid and dramatic as short pay in the good to great companies. Nonetheless, I've decided to include the idea here at the urging of research assistant Lane Horning. Horning, who worked on the good to great research team and helped me systematically research and collate mechanisms across companies for a different research project, makes a compelling argument that if you're a fully developed level 5 leader, you might not need red flag mechanisms. But if you are not yet a level 5 leader, or if you suffer the liability of charisma, red flag mechanisms give you a practical and useful tool for turning information into information that cannot be ignored and for creating a climate where the truth is heard. Unwavering faith amid the brutal facts. When Procter & Gamble invaded the paper-based consumer business in the late 1960s, Scott Paper, then the leader and also the comparison company to Kimberly Clark in this study, simply resigned itself to second place without a fight and began looking for ways to diversify. The company had a meeting for analysts in 1971 that was one of the most depressing I've ever attended, said one analyst. Management essentially threw in the towel and said, we've been had. The once proud company began to look at its competition and say, here's how we stack up against the best and sigh, oh well, at least there are people in the business worse than we are. Instead of figuring out how to get back on the offensive and win, Scott just tried to protect what it had. Conceding the top end of the market to P&G, Scott hoped that by hiding away in the B category, it would be left alone by the big monster that had invaded its turf. Kimberly Clark, on the other hand, viewed competing against Procter & Gamble not as a liability, but as an asset. 
Darwin Smith and his team felt exhilarated by the idea of going up against the best, seeing it as an opportunity to make Kimberly Clark better and stronger. They also viewed it as a way to stimulate the competitive juices of Kimberly people at all levels. At one internal gathering, Darwin Smith stood up and started his talk by saying, Okay, I want everyone to rise in a moment of silence. Everyone looked around, wondering what Darwin was up to. Did someone die? And so, after a moment of confusion, they all stood up, stared at their shoes in reverent silence. After an appropriate pause, Smith looked out at the group and said in a very somber tone, That was a moment of silence for P&G. The place went bananas. Blair White, a director who witnessed the incident, said he had everyone wound up in this thing, all up and down the company, right down to the plant floor. We were taking on Goliath. Later, Wayne Sanders, Smith's successor, described to us the incredible benefit of competing against the best. Could we have a better adversary than P&G? Not a chance. I say that because we respect them so much. They are bigger than we are. They are very talented. They are great at marketing. They beat the hell out of every one of their competitors except one, Kimberly Clark. And that is one of the things that makes us so proud. Scott Paper and Kimberly Clark's different reactions to P&G bring us to a vital point. In confronting the brutal facts, the good to great companies left themselves stronger and more resilient, not weaker and dispirited. There's a sense of exhilaration that comes in facing head-on the brutal hard truths and saying, we will never give up. We will never capitulate. It might take a long time, but we will find a way to prevail. Robert Aders of Kroger summed up this nicely at the end of his interview describing the psychology of the Kroger team as it faced the daunting 20-year task of methodically turning over the entire Kroger system. There was a certain Churchillian character to what we were doing. We had a very strong will to live. The sense that we are Kroger. Kroger was here before and will be here long after we are gone. And by God, we are going to win this thing. It might take us a hundred years, but we will persist for a hundred years if that's what it takes. Throughout our research, we were continually reminded of the hardiness research studies done by the International Committee for the Study of Victimization. These studies looked at people who had suffered serious adversity, cancer patients, prisoners of war, accident victims, and so forth, and survived. They found that people fell generally into three categories. Category 1, those who were permanently dispirited by the event. Category 2, those who got their life back to normal. And then there's category three, those who used the experience as a defining event that made them stronger. The good to great companies were like those in the third group with the hardiness factor. In the early 1980s, when Fannie Mae began its transition, almost no one gave it high odds for success, much less for great results. Fannie Mae had $56 billion of loans that were losing money. It received about 9% interest on its mortgage portfolio, but had to pay up to 15% on the debt it issued. 
Multiply that difference times $56 billion and you get a very large negative number. Furthermore, by charter, Fannie Mae could not diversify outside the mortgage finance business. Most people viewed Fannie Mae as totally beholden to shifts in the direction of interest rates. Rates go up, Fannie Mae loses. They go down, Fannie Mae wins. And many believe that Fannie Mae could succeed only if the government stepped in to clamp down on interest rates. It's their only hope, said one analyst. But that's not the way David Maxwell and his newly assembled team viewed the situation. They never wavered in their faith, consistently emphasizing in their interviews with us that they never had the goal merely to survive. They had the goal to prevail in the end and to build a great company. Yes, the interest spread was a brutal fact and it was not going to magically disappear. Maxwell and his team had no choice but to become the best capital markets player in the world at managing mortgage interest risk. Maxwell and his team set out to create a new business model that would depend much less on interest rates involving the invention of very sophisticated mortgage finance instruments. One analyst said with disdain, when you've got $56 billion worth of loans in place and they're underwater, Talking about new programs is a joke. That's like Chrysler, which was then asking for federal loan guarantees to stave off bankruptcy, saying it's going to go into the aircraft business. At the end of my interview with David Maxwell, I asked how he and his team dealt with the naysayers during those dark days. It was never an issue internally, he said. Of course, we had to stop doing a lot of stupid things and we had to invent a completely new set of financial devices. But we never entertained the possibility we would fail. We were going to use the calamity as an opportunity to remake Fannie Mae into a great company. During a research team meeting, a team member commented that Fannie Mae reminded her of an old television show. You may have seen this. It's called The Six Million Dollar Man with Lee Majors. The pretext of the series is that an astronaut suffers a serious crash while testing a moon landing craft over the southwestern desert. Now, instead of just trying to save the patient, doctors completely redesign him into a superhuman cyborg, installing atomic-powered robotic devices such as a powerful left eye and these mechanical limbs. Similarly, David Maxwell and his team didn't use the fact that Fannie Mae was bleeding and near death as a pretext to merely restructure the company. They used it as an opportunity to create something much stronger and more powerful. Step by step, day by day, month by month, year by year, the Fannie Mae team rebuilt the entire business model around risk management and reshaped the corporate culture into a high-performance machine that rivaled anything on Wall Street, eventually generating stock returns nearly eight times the market over 15 years. The Stockdale Paradox. Wherever you are listening to this, if you're driving, if you're walking, if you're at home, wherever, I'd like you to pay special attention to this next section. Is it one that had a huge impact on me? The Stockdale Paradox. 
Not all the good to great companies faced a dire crisis like Fannie Mae. Fewer than half did. But every good to great company faced significant adversity along the way, of one sort or another. Gillette and the takeover battles, Nucor and imports, Wells Fargo and deregulation, Pitney Bowes losing its monopoly, Abbott Labs and a huge product recall, Kroger and the need to replace nearly 100% of its stores, and so forth. In every case, the management team responded with a powerful psychological duality. On the one hand, they stoically accepted the brutal facts of reality. On the other hand, they maintained an unwavering faith in the end game and a commitment to prevail despite the brutal facts. We came to call this the Stockdale Paradox. The name refers to Admiral Jim Stockdale, who was the highest-ranking United States military officer in the Hanoi Hilton prisoner of war camp during the height of the Vietnam War tortured over 20 times during his eight-year imprisonment from 1965 to 1973, Stockdale lived out the war without any prisoner's rights, no set release date, and no certainty as to whether he would even survive to see his family again. He shouldered the burden of command, doing everything he could to create conditions that would increase the number of prisoners who would survive unbroken while fighting an internal war against his captors and their attempts to use prisoners for propaganda. At one point, he beat himself with a stool and cut himself with a razor, deliberately disfiguring himself so that he could not be put on videotape as an example of a well-treated prisoner. He exchanged secret intelligence information with his wife through their letters, knowing that discovery would mean torture and perhaps death. He instituted rules that would help people deal with torture. No one can resist torture indefinitely, so he created a stepwise system. After X minutes, you can say certain things that gave men milestones to survive toward. He instituted an elaborate internal communication system to reduce the sense of isolation that their captors tried to create, which used a 5 by 5 matrix of tap codes for alpha characters. Tap, tap equals the letter A. Tap, pause. Tap, tap equals the letter B. Tap, tap, pause. Tap equals the letter F, and so forth. For 25 letters, C doubling in for K. At one point, during an imposed silence, the prisoners mopped and swept the central yard using the code, swish-washing out we love you to Stockdale on the third anniversary of his being shot down. After his release, Stockdale became the first three-star officer in the history of the Navy to wear both aviator wings and the Congressional Medal of Honor. You can understand, then, my anticipation at the prospect of spending part of an afternoon with Admiral Stockdale. One of my students had written his paper on Stockdale, who happened to be a senior research fellow studying Stoic philosophers at the Hoover Institution right across the street from my office, and Stockdale invited the two of us for lunch. In preparation, I decided to read In Love and War. The book, Stockdale and His Wife, 
had written in alternating chapters, chronicling their experiences during those eight years. As I moved through the book, I found myself getting depressed. It just seemed so bleak. The uncertainty of his fate, the brutality of his captors. And then it dawned on me, here I am sitting in my warm, comfortable Stanford office, looking out over the beautiful Stanford campus on a beautiful Saturday afternoon. I'm getting depressed reading this. And I know the end of the story. I know that he gets out. I know that he reunites with his family. I know he becomes a national hero. And I know he gets to spend the later years of his life studying philosophy on this same beautiful campus. If it feels depressing for me, how on earth did he deal with it when he was actually there and did not know the end of the story? I never lost faith in the end of the story, he said. I never doubted, not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into the defining event of my life, which in retrospect, I would not trade. I didn't say anything for many minutes, and we continued the slow walk toward the faculty club. Stockdale limping and arc-swinging his stiff leg that had never fully recovered from repeated torture. Finally, after about a hundred meters of silence, I asked, Admiral Stockdale, who didn't make it out, or as strong as you? Oh, that's easy, he said. The Optimus. Confused. The Optimus. I don't understand. The Optimus. Oh, they were the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas. And Christmas would come, and Christmas would go. Then they'd say, we're going to be out by Easter. And Easter would come, and Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving. And then, it would be Christmas again. And they died of a broken heart. Another long pause more walking. Then he turned to me and said, this is a very important lesson. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. To this day, I carry a mental image of Stockdale admonishing the Optimus. We're not getting out by Christmas. Deal with it. That conversation with Admiral Stockdale stayed with me and in fact had a profound influence on my own development. Life is unfair. That's the, one of the first things you have to learn as you grow up. Life is unfair. Sometimes to our advantage, often to our disadvantage. We will all experience disappointments and crushing events, 
somewhere along the way, setbacks for which there is no reason, no one to blame, no fault. It might be disease. It might be injury. It might be an accident. It might be losing a loved one. It might be getting slept away in a political shakeup. It might be getting shot down over Vietnam and thrown into a POW camp for eight years. What separates people, Stockdale taught me, is not the presence or absence of difficulty, but how they deal with the inevitable difficulties of life. In wrestling with life's challenges, the Stockdale paradox, you must retain faith that you will prevail in the end. And you must also confront the most brutal facts of your current reality. This paradox has proved powerful for coming back from difficulties not weakened, but stronger. Not just for me, but for all those who've learned the lesson and tried to apply it. I never really considered my walk with Stockdale as part of my research into great companies, categorizing it more as a personal rather than a corporate lesson. But as we unraveled the research evidence, I kept coming back to it in my own mind. And finally, one day during a research team meeting, I just sort of blurted out the Stockdale story. There was silence around the table when I finished, and I thought, they must really think I'm out in left field. Then Dwayne Duffy, a quiet, thoughtful team member who had done the A&P versus Kroger analysis, said, that's exactly what I've been struggling with. I've been trying to get my hands around the essential difference between A&P and Kroger. And that's it. Kroger was like Stockdale. And A&P was like the optimists who always thought they'd be out by Christmas. Then the other team members began to chime in, noting the same difference between their comparison sets. Wells Fargo versus Bank of America, both facing deregulation. Kimberly Clark versus Scott Paper, both facing the terrible might of Procter & Gamble. Pitney Bowes versus Addressograph, both facing the loss of their monopolies. Nucor versus Bethlehem Steel, both facing imports, and so forth. They all demonstrated this paradoxical psychological pattern, and we dubbed it the Stockdale Paradox. The Stockdale Paradox is a signature of all those who create greatness, be it in leading their own lives or in leading others. Churchill had it during the Second World War. Admiral Stockdale, like Victor Frankl before him, lived it in a prison camp. And while our good-to-great companies cannot claim to have experienced either the grandeur of saving the free world or the depth of of personal experience of living in a prisoner of war camp. They all embraced the Stockdale paradox. It didn't matter how bleak the situation or how stultifying their mediocrity. They all maintained unwavering faith that they would not just survive. They would prevail. And yet, at the same time, they became relentlessly disciplined at confronting the most brutal facts of their current reality. Like much of what we found in our research, the key elements of greatness are deceptively simple and straightforward. 
the good to great leaders were able to strip away so much noise and clutter and just focus on the few things that would have the greatest impact. They were able to do so in large part because they operated from both sides of the Stockdale Paradox, never letting one side overshadow the other side. If you are able to adopt this dual pattern, you will dramatically increase the odds of making a series of good decisions and ultimately discovering a simple yet deeply insightful concept for making the really big choices. And once you have that simple unifying concept, you will be very close to making a sustained transformation to breakthrough results. It is to the creation of that concept that we will turn in the next chapter. Summary points to Chapter 4, Confront the Brutal Facts. All good to great companies began the process of finding a path to greatness by confronting the brutal facts of their current reality. When you start with an honest and diligent effort to determine the truth of your situation, the right decisions often become self-evident. It is impossible to make good decisions without infusing the entire process with an honest confrontation of the brutal facts. A primary task in taking a company from good to great is to create a culture wherein people have a tremendous opportunity to be heard, not just have their say, to be heard, and ultimately for the truth to be heard. Creating that climate, creating a culture where the truth is heard, involves four basic practices. One, lead with questions, not answers. Two, engage in dialogue and debate, not coercion and manipulation. Three, conduct autopsies without blame. Four, build red flag mechanisms that turn information into information that cannot be ignored. The good to great companies faced just as much adversity as the comparison companies, but they responded to that adversity differently. They hit the realities of their situation head on. As a result, they emerged from adversity even stronger. A key psychology for leading from good to great is the stuck Dale Paradox. That paradox, in summary, retain absolute faith that you can and will prevail in the end regardless of the difficulties, and at the same time, confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. And as always, a few unexpected findings. Charisma, it turns out, can be as much a liability as an asset. Charisma and the strength of leadership personality can deter people from bringing you the brutal facts. Leadership does not begin just with vision. It begins with getting people to confront the brutal facts and to act on the implications. Spending time and energy trying to motivate people is a waste of effort. The real question is not, how do we motivate our people? Again, if you have the right people on the bus, they will be self-motivated, 
The key is not how to motivate people, but how to not demotivate people. One of the primary ways to demotivate people is to ignore the brutal facts of reality. Chapter 5. The Hedgehog Concept Know Thyself Scribes of Delphi via Plato Are you a hedgehog or a fox? In his famous essay, The Hedgehog and the Fox, Isaiah Berlin divided the world into hedgehogs and foxes, based upon an ancient Greek parable. The fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing. The fox is a cunning creature, able to devise a myriad of complex strategies for sneak attacks upon the hedgehog. Day in and day out, the fox circles around the hedgehog's den, waiting for the perfect moment to pounce. Fast, sleek, beautiful, fleet of foot, and crafty, the fox looks like the sure winner. The hedgehog, well, on the other hand, the hedgehog is a dowdier creature, looking like a genetic mix-up between a porcupine and a small armadillo. He waddles along, going about his simple day, searching for lunch and taking care of his home. The fox waits in cunning silence at the juncture in the trail. The hedgehog, minding his own business, wanders right into the path of the fox. Aha! I've got you now, thinks the fox. He leaps out, bounding across the ground, lightning fast. The little hedgehog, sensing danger, looks up and thinks, "Ah, Here we go again. Will he ever learn? Rolling up into a perfect little ball, the hedgehog becomes a sphere of sharp spikes, pointing outward in all directions. The fox, bounding towards his prey, sees the hedgehog defense and calls off the attack, retreating back to the forest. The fox begins to calculate a new line of attack. Each day, some version of this battle between the hedgehog and the fox takes place. And despite the greater cunning of the fox, the hedgehog always wins. Isaiah Berlin extrapolated from this little parable to divide people into two basic groups, two different types of thinkers, if you will. Foxes and hedgehogs. Foxes pursue many ends at the same time and see the world in all its complexity. They are scattered or diffused, moving on many levels, says Berlin, never integrating their thinking into one overall concept or unifying vision. Hedgehogs, on the other hand, they simplify a complex world into a single organizing idea, a basic principle or concept that unifies and guides everything. It doesn't matter how complex the world. A hedgehog reduces all challenges and dilemmas to simple, indeed almost simplistic, hedgehog ideas. For a hedgehog, anything that does not somehow relate to the hedgehog idea holds no relevance. Princeton professor Marvin Bressler pointed out the power of the hedgehog during one of our long conversations. You want to know what separates those who make the biggest impact from all the others who are just as smart? They're hedgehogs. Freud and the Unconscious, 
Darwin and natural selection, Marx and class struggle, Einstein and relativity, Adam Smith and the division of labor. They were all hedgehogs. They took a complex world and simplified it. Those who leave the biggest footprints, said Bressler, have thousands calling after them. Good idea, but you went too far. To be clear, hedgehogs are not stupid. Quite the contrary. They understand that the essence of profound insight is simplicity. What could be more simple than E equals MC squared? What could be simpler than the idea of the unconscious, organized into an id, ego, and superego? What could be more elegant than Adam Smith's pin factory and invisible hand? No, the hedgehogs aren't simpletons. They have a piercing insight that allows them to see through all the complexity and discern underlying patterns. Hedgehogs see what is essential and ignore the rest. What does all this talk of hedgehogs and foxes have to do with good to great? Everything. Those who built the good to great companies were, to one degree or another, hedgehogs. They used their hedgehog nature to drive toward what we came to call a hedgehog concept for their companies. Those who led the comparison companies, on the other hand, well, they tended to be foxes, never gaining the clarifying advantage of a single unifying hedgehog concept. Instead, they were scattered, diffused, inconsistent. Let's take the case of Walgreens versus Eckerd. Recall from Chapter 1 how Walgreens generated cumulative stock returns from the end of 1975 to 2000 that exceeded the market by over 15 times, handily beating such great companies as GE, Merck, Coca-Cola, and Intel. It was a remarkable performance for such an anonymous, some might even say boring, company. When interviewing Cork Walgreen, I kept asking him to go deeper to help us understand these extraordinary results. Finally, in exasperation, he said, Look, it just wasn't that complicated. Once we understood the concept, we just moved straight ahead. What was the concept? Simply this. The best, most convenient drugstores with high profit per customer visit. That's it. That's the breakthrough strategy that Walgreens used to beat Intel, GE, Coca-Cola, Merck, and to beat the market by 15 times. The best, most convenient drugstores steadily increasing profit per customer visit. In classic hedgehog style, Walgreens took this simple concept and implemented it with fanatical consistency. It embarked on a systematic program to replace all inconvenient locations with more convenient ones, preferably corner lots where customers could easily enter and exit from multiple directions. If a great corner location would open up just a block away from a profitable Walgreens store in a good location, the company would close the good store, even at a cost of $1 million to get out of the lease, to open a great new store on the corner. Walgreens pioneered drive-through pharmacies. They found that customers liked the idea and built hundreds of them. 
In urban areas, the company clustered its stores tightly together on the precept that no one should have to walk more than a few blocks to reach a Walgreens. In downtown San Francisco, for example, Walgreens clustered nine stores within a one-mile radius. Nine stores in a one-mile radius. If you look closely, you will see Walgreens stores as densely packed in some cities as Starbucks coffee shops in Seattle. Walgreens then linked its convenience concept to a simple economic idea, profit per customer visit. Tight clustering, nine stores per mile, leads to local economies of scale, which provides the cash for more clustering, which in turn draws more customers. By adding high-margin services like one-hour photo developing, Walgreens increased its profit per customer visit. More convenience leads to more customer visits, which when multiplied times increased profit per customer visit, throws cash back into the system to build even more convenient stores. It's a really simple model when you think about it. Store by store, block by block, city by city, region by region, convenient stores, more customers times profit per customer visit, round and round that flywheel goes, Walgreens became more and more of a hedgehog with this incredibly simple idea. In a world overrun by management faddists, brilliant visionaries, ranting futurists, fear mongers, motivational gurus, and all the rest, I don't know about you, but I find it refreshing to see a company that succeeded so brilliantly by taking one simple concept and just doing it with excellence and imagination. Becoming the best in the world at convenient drugstores. Steadily increasing profit per customer visit. What could be more obvious and straightforward? Yet if it was so obvious and straightforward, why didn't Eckerd see it? Ah, now we get to the crux of the matter. Well, Walgreens stuck only to cities where it could implement the convenience clustering concept. We found no evidence of a similarly coherent concept for growth at Eckerd. Deal makers to the core. Eckerd's executives compulsively leapt at opportunities to acquire clumps of stores. 42 units here and 36 units there in more of a hodgepodge fashion. Not hedgehog, hodgepodge, with no obvious unifying theme. While Walgreens executives understood that profitable growth would come by pruning away all that did not fit with the hedgehog concept, Eckerd executives, on the other hand, lurched after growth for growth's sake. In the early 1980s, just as Walgreens became religious about carrying out its convenient drugstore concept, Eckerd threw itself into the home video market with its purchase of American Home Video Corporation. Eckerd's CEO told Forbes magazine in 1981, Some feel the purer we are, the better we'll be. But I want growth. And the home video industry is only emerging unlike, say, drugstore chains. I mean, you can almost hear the sense of how boring, how simple, how unexciting drugstore chains, right? Eckerd's home video foray produced $31 million in spectacular exciting losses before Eckerd sold it to Tandy, which crowed that it got the deal for $72 million below book value. In the precise year of Eckerd's American home video acquisition, Walgreens and Eckerd had virtually identical revenues. 
they both had $1.7 billion. Ten years later, though, Walgreens had grown to over twice the revenues of Eckerd, accumulating net profits $1 billion greater than Eckerd over the decade. Twenty years later, Walgreens was going strong as one of the most sustained transformations in our study. Meanwhile, Eckerd ceased to exist as an independent company. The Three Circles The notion of a hedgehog concept originated in our research team meetings when we were trying to make sense of Walgreens' spectacular returns. Aren't we just talking about strategy, I asked? Convenient drugstores, profit per customer visit, isn't that just basic strategy? What's so interesting about that? But Eckerd also had strategy, said Ginny Cooper, who analyzed the contrast between the two companies. We can't say that it's just about having strategy. They both had a strategy, and they both had a strategy that was clear and well-articulated. Jenny was correct in her observation. Strategy, per se, or at least having a strategy, having a clear strategy, having thought about strategy, did not distinguish the good-to-great companies from the comparison companies. Both sets of companies had strategic plans. And there's no evidence that the good-to-great companies invested more time and energy in strategy development and long-range planning. Both sets of companies did it. Okay, so are we just talking about good strategy versus bad strategy I pushed back? The team sat there for a minute, thinking. Then Lee Wilbanks observed. But what I find so striking is their incredible simplicity. I mean, look at Kroger with the Superstore concept, or Kimberly Clark with the move to paper-based consumer products, or Walgreens with convenient drugstores. These were simple, simple, simple ideas. The research team members all jumped into the fray, bantering about the companies they were studying. It soon became abundantly clear that all the good-to-great companies attained a very simple concept that they used as a frame of reference for all their decisions, and this understanding coincided with breakthrough results. Meanwhile, the comparison companies like Eckerd got all trapped up by their snazzy strategies for growth. Okay, I pushed back, but is simplicity enough? Just because it's simple doesn't mean it's right. The world is filled with failed companies that had simple ideas that were wrong ideas. We decided to undertake a systematic look at the concepts that guided the good-to-great companies in contrast to the comparison companies. After a few months of sifting and sorting, considering possibilities and tossing them out, we finally came to see that the hedgehog concept in each good-to-great company wasn't just any random simple idea, wasn't a simple idea just for the sake of having a simple idea. The essential strategic difference between the good to great and comparison companies lay in two fundamental distinctions. First, the good to great companies founded their strategies on deep understanding along three key dimensions, what we came to call the three circles. I'll come to those in a moment. Second, the good-to-great companies translated that understanding into a simple crystalline concept that guided all their efforts, hence the term a hedgehog concept. More precisely, a hedgehog concept is a simple crystalline concept that flows from deep understanding about the intersection of the following three circles. Circle number one. What you can be the best in the world at, and equally important, 
what you cannot be the best in the world at. This discerning standard goes far beyond core competence. Just because you possess a core competence doesn't necessarily mean you can be the best in the world at it. Conversely, what you can be the best at might not even be something in which you are currently engaged. Number two, what drives your economic engine? All the good to great companies attained piercing insight into how to most effectively generate sustained and robust cash flow and profitability. In particular, they discovered a single denominator, an economic ratio, profit per X, that had the greatest impact on their economics. In segments of the social sector, this might be cash flow per X. Three, what you are deeply passionate about. The good to great companies focused on those activities that ignited their passions. The idea here is not to stimulate passion, but to discover what makes you passionate. Okay, I've thrown a lot at you. Let's stand back and, and simplify this idea a bit. And I want to give you an analogy to help you get the three circles. Now, as I just described them, in the business setting, it's three circles of the hedgehog. What you can be the best in the world at, what best drives your economic engine, and what you are deeply passionate about. And you try to find the intersection of those three. Now, to grasp this idea, consider a personal analogy. Suppose you were able to construct a work life that meets the following three tests. First, you're doing work for which you have a genetic or God-given talent. And perhaps you could even become one of the best in the world at applying that talent. That when you do it, there's just this sense of, I feel I was born to be doing this. I, I feel that I was constructed to do this. Somehow those tumblers, genetic tumblers, fell into place and I was put here to do this. You're like a fish in water. Second, you're actually well paid for what you do. And you find yourself thinking sometimes, my goodness, I get paid to do this? Am I dreaming? How did I win the lottery? And third, you're doing work you're passionate about and you absolutely love to do, enjoying the actual process for its own sake. And you find yourself thinking, I look forward to getting up and throwing myself into the work every single day and I really believe in what I'm doing. Now imagine you had all three of those. You're passionate about it. You love to do it. You're genetically encoded for it. And your economics work, you can make a living at it. You have a hedgehog concept. If you could drive toward the intersection of these three circles and translate that intersection into a simple crystalline concept that guided your life choices, then you'd have a hedgehog concept for yourself. To have a fully developed hedgehog concept, you need all three circles. If you make a lot of money, doing things at which you could never be the best or of which you don't have genetic talent, you'll only build a successful company or a successful life, but not necessarily a great one. If you become the best at something, you'll never remain on top if you don't have intrinsic passion for what you are doing. Finally, you can be passionate all you want, but if you can't be the best at it, or it doesn't make economic sense, then you might have a lot of fun, but you won't produce great results. You need all three circles. Passion, best at, economics. At a personal level, passion, genetic encoding, making a living. Understanding what you can and what you cannot be the best at. 
They stick with what they understand and they let their abilities, not their egos, determine what they attempt. So wrote Warren Buffett about his $290 million investment in Wells Fargo, despite his serious reservations about the banking industry. Prior to clarifying its hedgehog concept, Wells Fargo had tried to be a global bank, operating like a mini Citicorp and a mediocre one at that. Then, at first under Dick Cooley and then under Carl Reichert, Wells Fargo executives began to ask themselves a piercing set of questions. What can we potentially do better than any other company? And equally important, what can we not do better than any other company? And if we can't be the best at it, then why on earth are we doing it at all? Setting aside their egos, the Wells Fargo team pulled the plug on the vast majority of its international operations, accepting the truth, the brutal fact, that it could not be better than Citicorp and global banking. Wells then turned its attention to what it could be the best in the world at, running a bank like a business with a focus on the Western United States. That's it. Yep, that's the essence of the hedgehog concept that turned Wells Fargo from a mediocre Citicorp wannabe to one of the best-performing banks in the world. Carl Reichert, CEO of Wells Fargo at the time, stands as a consummate hedgehog. While his counterparts at Bank of America went into a reaction-revolution panic mode in response to deregulation, hiring change gurus who used sophisticated models and time-consuming encounter groups, Reichert, well... The hedgehog himself stripped everything down to its essential simplicity. It's not space science stuff, he told us in our interview. What we did was so simple, and we kept it simple. It was so straightforward and obvious that it sounds almost ridiculous to talk about. The average businessman coming in from a highly competitive industry with no regulations <laughs> would have jumped on this like a goose on a June bug. Reichert kept people relentlessly focused on the simple hedgehog idea, continually reminding them that there's more money to be made in Modesto than Tokyo. Those who worked with Reichert marveled at his genius for simplicity. And here is a classic hedgehog quote. If Carl were an Olympic diver, said one of his colleagues, he would not do a five-flip twisting sort of thing. He would do the best swan dive in the world and do it perfectly, over and over again. Hedgehog, not Fox. The Wells Fargo focus on its hedgehog concept was so intense that it became, in its executive's own words, a mantra. Throughout our interviews, Wells Fargo people told us it wasn't that complicated. We just took a hard-nosed look at what we were doing and decided to focus entirely on those few things we knew we could do better than anyone else, not getting distracted into arenas that would feed our egos and at which we could not possibly be the best. This brings me to one of the most crucial points of this chapter, indeed perhaps of the whole book. A hedgehog concept is not a goal. It is not a goal to be the best, a strategy to be the best, an intention to be the best, a plan to be the best. No, the key word is understanding. It is an insightful, piercing understanding of what you can be the best at. The distinction is crucial.
Every company would like to be the best at something, but few actually understand with piercing insight and egoless clarity what they actually have the potential to be the best at. And just as important, what they can't be the best at. And it's this distinction that stands as one of the primary contrasts between the good to great companies and the mediocre comparison companies. Let's look at the contrast between Abbott Laboratories and Upjohn. In 1964, the two companies were almost identical in terms of revenues, profits, and product lines. Both companies had the bulk of their business in pharmaceuticals, principally antibiotics. Both companies had family management. Both companies lagged behind the rest of the pharmaceutical industry. But then, in 1974, Abbott had a breakthrough in performance producing cumulative returns four times the market and 5.5 times Upjohn over the next 15 years. One crucial difference between the two companies is that Abbott developed a hedgehog concept based on what it could be best at, and Upjohn did not. Abbott began by confronting the brutal facts. By 1964, Abbott had lost the opportunity to become the best pharmaceutical company, and they knew it. Abbott had drowsily lumbered along in the 1940s and 50s, living off its cash cow products. In the meantime, companies like Merck had built research engines that rivaled Harvard and Berkeley. By 1964, George Kane and his Abbott team realized that Merck and others had such a huge research lead that trying to be the best pharmaceutical company would be like a high school football team trying to take on the Dallas Cowboys. It just wasn't going to happen. Even though Abbott's entire history lay in pharmaceuticals and the vast majority of its revenues and profits came from pharmaceuticals, becoming the best pharmaceutical company was no longer a viable option. Brutal fact. So, guided by a level 5 leader, and tapping into the faith side of the Stockdale paradox, there must be a way for us to prevail, and we will find it. The Abbott team sought to understand what it could be the best at. Around 1967, a key insight emerged. Yes, we've lost the chance to be the best pharmaceutical company, but we have an opportunity to excel at creating products that contribute to cost-effective health care. Abbott had experimented with hospital nutritional products designed to help patients quickly regain their strength after surgery and also in diagnostic devices. One of the primary ways to reduce health care costs is to get the diagnosis right up front. Abbott eventually became the number one company in both of these arenas, which moved it far down the path of becoming the best company in the world at creating products that make healthcare more cost-effective. What about Upjohn? Upjohn never confronted the brutal fact. Upjohn also lost the chance to be the best at pharmaceuticals, continued to live with the delusion that it could beat Merck. Later, when it fell even further behind the pharmaceutical leaders, it diversified into arenas where it definitely could not be the best in the world, such as plastics, and chemicals. As Upjohn fell even further behind, it returned to a focus on ethical drugs, yet never confronted the fact that it was just too small to win in the big stakes pharmaceutical game. Despite consistently spending nearly twice 
the percentage of sales on research and development as Abbott. Upjohn saw its profits dwindle to less than half those of Abbott before being acquired in 1995. The Abbott versus Upjohn case highlights the difference between a core business and a hedgehog concept. Just because something is your core business, just because you've been doing it for years, perhaps even decades, well, that doesn't mean you can be the best in the world at it. And if you can't be the best in the world at your core business, even if your core business is 100% of your revenues, if you can't be the best in the world at it, then your core business cannot form the basis of your hedgehog concept. Clearly, then, a hedgehog concept is not the same as a core competence. You can have a competence at something, but not necessarily have the potential to be the best in the world at it. Let me use a personal analogy. Consider the young person who gets straight A's in high school in calculus and scores high on the math test part of the SAT, but demonstrating a clear core competence at mathematics. Well, does that mean the person should become a mathematician? Well, not necessarily. See, I was one of those people that did really well in math in high school, and I went off to college thinking that I was going to become a mathematician. And then I went into the classes and the math classes and met those who, unlike me, are genetically encoded for math. They were different. And there was no way that I could ever really seriously entertain mathematics once I understood that difference. Many people have been pulled or fallen into careers where they can never attain complete mastery and fulfillment. Suffering from the curse of competence but lacking a clear hedgehog concept, they rarely become great at what they do. The hedgehog concept requires a severe standard of excellence. It's not just about building on strength and competence, but about understanding what your organization truly has the potential to be the very best at and sticking to it. Like Upjohn, the comparison companies stuck to businesses at which they were good, but could never be the best. Or worse, launched off in pursuit of easy growth and profits in arenas where they had no hope of being the best. Sure, they made money, but they never became great. To go from good to great requires transcending the curse of competence. It requires the discipline to say, hey, just because we're good at it, just because we're making money and generating growth, doesn't mean necessarily we can become the best at it. The good to great companies understood that doing what you are good at, <laughs> that will only make you good. Focusing solely on what you can potentially do better than any other organization, that's the only path to greatness. Every good to great company eventually gained a deep understanding of this principle and pinned their futures on allocating resources to those few areas where they could potentially be the best. The comparison companies rarely attained this understanding. On page 101 of the hardcover edition of Good to Great, I've included a table of the Good to Great companies and the best in the world circle of the hedgehog concept. I've laid it out more in detail there, but I'm going to go through the main pieces of that table here for you. The key point here is that this list does not show what the companies were already best in the world at when they began their transitions. In fact, most of the companies we studied weren't the best at anything when they began their transitions. Rather, it shows what they came to understand. Again, that key word, understanding. They came to understand what they could become the best in the world at. Abbott Laboratories, 
came to understand that it could become the best at creating a product portfolio that lowers the cost of healthcare. Circuit City came to understand that it could become the best at implementing what it called a 4S model, service selection, savings, and satisfaction, applied to big-ticket consumer sales. Fannie Mae came to understand that it could become the best capital markets player in anything that pertains to mortgages. Gillette came to understand that it could become the best at building premier global brands of daily necessities that require sophisticated manufacturing technology. Just think of all those billions of razor blades. Kimberly Clark came to understand that it could become the best in the world at paper-based consumer products. Kroger came to understand that it could become the best at innovative super combination stores. Nucor came to understand that it could become the best at harnessing culture and technology to produce low-cost steel. Philip Morris came to understand it could become the best in the world at building brand loyalty in cigarettes and later other consumables. Pitney Bowes came to understand that it could become the best in the world at messaging that requires sophisticated back office equipment. A key part to this in Pitney's case I just want to briefly mention is it had a really key insight that it was not a postage company but it could have a broader definition which was around messaging and that it had particular strength in these back rooms and sophisticated machines. Walgreens, well, we talked about them earlier, could become the best in the world at convenient drugstores. Wells Fargo understood that it could become the best at running a bank like a business with a focus on the Western United States. Circle number two, insight into your economic engine. What is your denominator? The good to great companies frequently produced spectacular returns in very unspectacular industries. The banking industry ranked in the bottom quartile of industries in total returns during the same period that Wells Fargo beat the market by four times. Even more impressive, both Pitney Bowes and Nucor were in the bottom 5% industries, yet both these companies beat the market by well over five times. Only one of the good to great companies had the benefit of being in a great industry, defined as a top 10% industry. Five were in good industries, and five were in bad to terrible industries. Our study clearly shows that a company does not need to be in a great industry to become a great company. Each good to great company built a fabulous economic engine regardless of the industry. They were able to do this because they attained profound insights into their economics. This is not a book on microeconomics. Each company and each industry had its own economic realities, and I'm not going to belabor them all here. The central point is that each good to great company attained deep understanding of the key drivers in its economic engine and built its system in accordance with this understanding. That said, we did notice one particularly provocative form of economic insight that every good to great company attained, the notion of a single economic denominator. Consider the following question. If you could pick one and only one ratio, profit per X, 
to systematically increase over time. Now, if you're in the social sector, you might think in terms of cash flow per X. What X would have the greatest and most sustainable impact on your economic engine? We learned that this single question leads to profound insight into the inner workings of an organization's economics. Recall how Walgreens switched its focus from profit per store to profit per customer visit. Convenient locations are expensive, but by increasing profit per customer visit, Walgreens was able to increase convenience, remember, nine stores in a mile, and simultaneously increase profitability across its entire system. The standard metric of profit per store would have run contrary to the convenience concept. The quickest way to increase profit per store is to decrease the number of stores and put them in less expensive locations. This would have destroyed the convenience concept. Or consider Wells Fargo. When the Wells Fargo team confronted the brutal fact that deregulation would transform banking into a commodity, they realized that standard banker metrics like profit per loan and profit per deposit would no longer be the key drivers. Instead, they grasped a new denominator, profit per employee. Following this logic, Wells Fargo became one of the first banks to change its distribution system to rely primarily on stripped down branches and ATMs. The denominator can be quite subtle, sometimes even unobvious. The key is to use the question of the denominator to gain understanding and insight into your economic model. The point is not to have a denominator for the sake of having a denominator. The point is to use the pursuit, the intellectual quest for a denominator to help you understand deeper, more core levels to what really drives your economic system. For example, Fannie Mae grasped the subtle denominator of profit per mortgage risk level not profit per mortgage, which would be the obvious choice. It's a brilliant insight. The real driver in Fannie Mae's economics during that transition era when David Maxwell changed the company was the ability to understand risk of default in a package of mortgages better than anyone else. Then it made money selling insurance and managing the spread on that risk. Simple, insightful, unobvious, and right. Nucor made its mark in the ferociously price-competitive steel industry with the denominator profit per ton of finished steel. At first glance, you might think that per employee or per fixed cost might be the proper denominator. But the Nucor people understood that the driving force in its economic engine was a combination of a strong work ethic culture. Remember all those farmers and the guy getting chased out of the plant with the angle iron and we're going to get up at 4 a.m. and make steel. Okay, it's a combination of a strong work ethic culture and the application of advanced manufacturing technology. And it's putting those two together. Profit per employee or per fixed cost would not capture this duality as well as profit per ton of finished steel. Do you need to have a single denominator? No. But pushing for a single denominator tends to produce better insight than letting yourself off the hook with three or four denominators. The denominator question serves as a mechanism to force deeper understanding of the key drivers in your economic engine. As the denominator question emerged from the research, we tested the question on a number of executive teams. 
we found that the question always stimulated intense dialogue and debate. Furthermore, even in cases where the team failed, or in some cases refused, to identify a single denominator, the challenge of the question drove them to deeper insight. And that is, after all, the point. To have a denominator not for the sake of just having a denominator, but for the sake of gaining insight, deep, penetrating, piercing insight that ultimately leads to more robust and sustainable economics. On page 106 of the hardcover edition of Good to Great, we included a table which shows the economic denominator insight attained by each of the Good to Great companies during the pivotal transition years. What you'll find if you go look at that table is that there is no one single denominator that cuts across all the companies. Some, such as Abbott, had profit per employee. Circuit City had profit per geographic region. Fannie Mae had profit per mortgage risk level. There's no predetermined right answer. And why is this? The key reason why is because you have to discover for your own situation, for yourself, what is the one right denominator that will best drive your peculiar, specific economic engine. I can't give you that answer. No consultant can give you that answer. No one in the outside world can give you that answer. You have to come to that answer by using your own team, your own dialogue, your own debate, your own analysis, your own insight. Every good to great company discovered a key economic denominator, while the comparison companies usually did not. In fact, we found only one comparison case that attained a profound insight into its economics at the same level as the good to great companies. This is Hasbro. Hasbro built its upswing on the insight that a portfolio of classic toys and games, such as G.I. Joe and Monopoly, produces more sustainable cash flow than these huge one-time hits. In fact, Hasbro is the one comparison company that understood all three circles of its hedgehog concept. It became the best in the world at acquiring and renewing tried-and-true toys reintroducing and recycling them at just the right time to increase profit per classic brand. Now notice that. That's a beautiful economic denominator. Profit per classic brand over the lifespan of one of those classic brands. Again, there's no one-size-fits-all denominator. It's what denominator is right for you. And its people had great passion for the business. Systematically building from all three circles, Hasbro became the best-performing comparison company in our study, lending further credence to the power of having a hedgehog concept. Now, you might be wondering, well, with all that great performance and having a clear hedgehog concept, why did Hasbro end up as a comparison company? Hasbro became a comparison company, an unsustained transition comparison company, in part because it lost its discipline to stay within its three circles after the unexpected death of CEO Stephen Hassenfeld. The Hasbro case reinforces a vital lesson of this book. If you successfully apply these ideas, but then stop doing them, lose your disciplines, you will slide backward from great to good or worse. The only way to remain great is to keep applying the fundamental principles that made you great. Understanding your passion. 
When interviewing the Philip Morris executives, we encountered an intensity, a passion that surprised us. Recall from Chapter 3 how George Weissman described working at the company as the great love affair of his life, second only to his marriage. Even with a most sinful collection of consumer products, Marlboro cigarettes, Miller beer, 67% fat-filled Velveeta cheese, Maxwell House coffee for caffeine addicts, Toblerone for chocoholics, and so forth, we found tremendous passion for the business. Most of the top executives at Philip Morris were passionate consumers of their own products. In 1979, Ross Milheiser, then vice chairman and a dedicated smoker, said, I love cigarettes. It's one of the things that makes life really worth living. The Philip Morris people clearly loved their company and had passion for what they were doing. It's as if they viewed themselves as the lone, fiercely independent cowboy depicted in the Marlboro billboards. We have a right to smoke. We will protect that right. You cannot take away that right. Do not tread on me. A board member told me during my research for a previous project, I really love being on the board of Philip Morris. It's like being part of something really special. She said this as she proudly puffed away. Now you might think, but that's just the defensiveness of the tobacco industry. Of course, they'd feel that way. Otherwise, how could these people sleep at night? But let's look at the comparison company, which was also in the tobacco business. Keep in mind that R.J. Reynolds was under siege from society, had the same kinds of products, and faced the same tensions as Philip Morris. Yet unlike Philip Morris, R.J. Reynolds executives began to diversify away from tobacco into any arena where it could get growth, regardless of whether they had any passion for those acquisitions or whether the company could be the best in the world at them. The Philip Morris people stuck much closer to the tobacco business in large part because they loved that business. In contrast, the R.J. Reynolds people saw tobacco as, eh, it's just a way to make money. As vividly portrayed in the book Barbarians at the Gate, R.J. Reynolds executives eventually lost passion for anything, it at least it appears, except making themselves rich through a leveraged buyout. It may seem odd to talk about something as soft and fuzzy as passion as an integral part of a strategic framework. But throughout the good to great companies, passion became a key part of the hedgehog concept. You can't manufacture passion or motivate people to feel passionate. You can only discover what ignites your passion and the passions of those around you. You're either passionate or you're not. The good to great companies did not say, okay, folks, let's get passionate about what we do. Sensibly, they went the other way entirely. They said we should only do those things we can get passionate about. Kimberly Clark executives made the shift to paper-based consumer products in large part because they could get more passionate about them. As one executive put it, in one of my favorite quotes in the whole study, traditional paper products, they're okay, but they just don't have the charisma of a diaper. When Gillette executives made the choice to build sophisticated, relatively expensive shaving systems rather than fight a low-margin battle with disposables, they did so in large part 
because they just couldn't get excited about cheap disposable razors. Chief Executive Zane talks about shaving systems with the sort of technical gusto one expects from a Boeing or Hughes engineer, wrote one journalist about Gillette's CEO in 1996. Gillette has always been at its best when it sticks to businesses that fit its hedgehog concept. People who aren't passionate about Gillette need not apply, wrote a Wall Street Journal reporter who went on to describe how a top business school graduate wasn't hired because she just didn't show enough passion for deodorant. Perhaps you too can't get passionate about deodorant. Perhaps you might find it hard to imagine being passionate about pharmacies, grocery stores, tobacco, or postage meters. You might wonder what type of person gets all jazzed up about making a bank as efficient as McDonald's, or who considers a diaper charismatic. In the end, it doesn't really matter whether you are passionate about what they do. The point is that they felt passionate about what they were doing, and the passion was deep and genuine. The key question for you is, what are you passionate about? What are you so passionate about that you can marry to what you can be the best in the world at, that you can marry to what drives your economics, that you can produce incredible results over time? This doesn't mean that you have to be passionate about the mechanics of the business per se, although you might be. The passion circle can be focused equally on what the company stands for. For example, during the 1980s as Fannie Mae was coming out of its dark days, Fannie Mae people were not necessarily passionate about the mechanical process of packaging mortgages into market securities. But they were terrifically motivated by the whole idea of helping people of all classes, backgrounds, and races realize the American dream of owning their own home. Linda Knight, who joined Fannie Mae in 1983 just as the company faced its darkest days, told us, This wasn't just any old company getting into trouble. This was a company at the core of making home ownership a reality for thousands of Americans. It's a role that's far more important than just making money. And that's why we felt such depth of commitment to preserve, protect, and enhance this company. As another Fannie Mae executive summed up, I see us as a key mechanism for strengthening the whole social fabric of America. He continued, Whenever I drive through difficult neighborhoods that are coming back because more families own their own homes, I return to work re-energized. of understanding over bravado. On the research team, we frequently found ourselves talking about the difference between pre-hedgehog and post-hedgehog states. In the pre-hedgehog state, it's like groping through the fog. You're making progress on a long march, 
but you can't see all that well. At each juncture in the trail, you can only see a little bit ahead, and you have to move at a deliberate, slow crawl. Then, with the hedgehog concept, you break into a clearing, the fog lifts, and you can see for miles. From then on, each juncture requires less deliberation, and you can shift from crawl to walk, from walk to run. In the post-hedgehog state, miles of trail move swiftly below your feet. Forks in the road fly past as you quickly make decisions that you could have not seen so clearly back in the fog. What's so striking about the comparison companies is that for all their change programs and frantic gesticulations and charismatic visionary leaders, they rarely emerged from the fog. They would try to run, making bad decisions at forks in the road and then have to reverse course later. Or they would veer off the trail entirely, banging into trees and tumbling down ravines. Oh, but they were sure doing it with speed and panache. For the comparison companies, the exact same world, and keep in mind, they faced the exact same world, the same industry dynamics, the same forces, the same economics, that exact same world that had become so simple and clear to the good to great companies, somehow remained complex and shrouded in mist for the comparisons. Why? For two reasons. First, the comparison companies never asked the right questions. The questions prompted by the three circles. What are you deeply passionate about? What can you be the best in the world at? What best drives your economic engine? Second, they set their goals and strategies more from bravado than from understanding. Nowhere is this more evident than in the comparison company's mindless pursuit of growth. Over two-thirds of the comparison companies displayed an obsession with growth without the benefit of a hedgehog concept. Statements such as, we've been a growth at any price company, and betting that size equals success pepper the materials on the comparison companies. In contrast, not one of the good-to-great companies focused obsessively on growth. Yet, the good-to-great companies created sustained, profitable growth far greater than the comparison companies that had made growth their mantra. Consider the case of Great Western and Fannie Mae. Great Western is a might unwieldy, wrote the Wall Street transcript. It wants to grow every way it can. The company found itself in finance, leasing, insurance, and manufactured houses, continually acquiring companies in an expansion binge. Bigger! More! In 1985, Great Western CEO told a gathering of analysts, Don't worry about what you call us. A bank? A savings and loan? Or a zebra? Quite a contrast to Fannie Mae during its best days of the transition under David Maxwell, which had a simple, crystalline understanding that it could be the best capital markets player in anything that related to mortgages, better even than Goldman Sachs or Solomon Brothers in opening up the full capital markets to the mortgage process. It built a powerful economic machine by reframing its business model on risk management rather than mortgage selling. And it drove the machine with great passion, the Fannie Mae people inspired by its vital role in democratizing home ownership. Until 1984, the stock charts tracked each other like mirror images. 
Then, in 1984, one year after it clarified its hedgehog concept, Fannie Mae exploded upward, while Great Western kept lollygagging along until just before its acquisition in 1997. By focusing on its simple, elegant conception, and not just focusing on growth and bigger and more and call us a zebra or whatever you want, Fannie Mae grew revenues nearly threefold from its transition year in 1984 through 1996. Great Western, for all its gobbling of growth steroids, grew revenues and earnings only 25% over the same period. Then it lost its independence in 1997. One focused on its hedgehog concept, the other obsessed on growth. The one that focused on its hedgehog concept outgrew the other by a huge margin. The Fannie Mae versus Great Western case from the 1980s highlights an essential point. Growth is not, cannot be a hedgehog concept. Rather, if you have the right hedgehog concept and you make decisions relentlessly consistent with that concept, you will create such momentum that your main problem will not be how to grow, but how to not grow too fast. The hedgehog concept is a turning point in the journey from good to great. In most cases, the transition date follows within a few years of the hedgehog concept. Furthermore, everything from here on out in the book hinges upon having a hedgehog concept. As will become abundantly clear in the following chapters, disciplined action, the third big chunk in the framework after disciplined people and disciplined thought, only makes sense in the context of your hedgehog concept. Despite its vital importance, or rather, because of its vital importance, it would be a mistake to thoughtlessly attempt to jump right to a hedgehog concept. You just can't go off-site for two days, pull out a bunch of flip charts, do breakout sessions, and come up with deep understanding. Well, you can try to do that if you want, but you probably won't get it right, and in the end what matters is you have to get it right. It would be like Einstein saying, I think it's time to become a great scientist, so I'm going to go off to the Four Seasons this weekend, pull out the flip charts, and unlock the secrets of the universe. Insight just doesn't happen that way. It took Einstein a decade, ten years of groping through the fog to get the theory of special relativity. And he was a bright guy. This is a critical point. It took about four years, not four months, not four weeks, not four days, four years on average for the good to great companies to clarify their hedgehog concepts. Like scientific insight, a hedgehog concept simplifies a complex world and makes decisions much easier. But while it has crystalline clarity and elegant simplicity once you have it, getting the concept can be devilishly difficult and it almost always takes time. Recognize that getting a hedgehog concept is an inherently iterative process, never a single event. The essence of the process is to get the right people back to first who, then what? Get the right 
people engaged in vigorous dialogue and debate, infused with the brutal facts, and guided by questions formed by the three circles. Passion, best at, economics. Do we really understand what we can be the best in the world at, as distinct from what we can just be successful at? Do we really understand the drivers in our economic engine, including our economic denominator? Do we really understand what truly best ignites our passions? One particularly useful mechanism for moving the process along is a device that we came to call the Council. The Council consists of a group of the right people who participate in dialogue and debate guided by the three circles, iteratively over time about vital issues and decisions facing the organization. Now, I want you to think about what I just said. Notice how the other chapters start lining up at this point. You have a level five leader who assembles the right people who begin to engage in dialogue and debate infused with the brutal facts and then guided by the three circles of the hedgehog concept. Notice how the council becomes the mechanism for all these different chapters to start to come to place in one particular setting. In response to the question, how should we go about getting our hedgehog concept? On page 114 of the hardcover edition, we show a diagram which highlights or illustrates this iterative process. In the center of the diagram is the word, the council. And then around that is a series of arrows going clockwise, which shows this iterative process. So it works like this. You ask questions guided by the three circles of members of the council. Then the council engages in dialogue and debate, guided by the three circles. Then you take executive decisions, again, guided by the three circles. And then you do autopsies and analysis of how those decisions turned out, again, guided by the three circles. And you repeat the process, questions, debate, decisions, autopsies, questions, debate, decisions, autopsies until you get deeper and deeper understanding and you accumulate results over time. When asked, how do we accelerate the process of getting a hedgehog concept? Can we shorten the time from four years down to three or two or one? I'd respond, increase the number of times you go round that full cycle in a given period of time. If you go through that cycle enough times, guided resolutely by those three circles, you will, in all likelihood, eventually gain the depth of understanding required for a hedgehog concept. But I must emphasize, it will not happen overnight. Now, wherever you are listening to this, you're probably wondering, well, who do I put on the council? How does the council work? What are the processes and mechanisms of the council? And I'd like to outline the key characteristics of a really strong council for you here so that you can begin thinking about putting together your own council. And just as an aside, even if you don't run the whole company, you can have a small council. You can have a council on your minibus in your own particular pocket of greatness. Everybody can build a council, even at a personal level. I have a personal board of directors, which serves as my own individual personal council in my own life. The council mechanism is a generic idea. Here are the characteristics of the council. One, the council exists as a device to gain understanding about important issues. Two, 
The council usually consists of 5 to 12 people. 3. Each council member has the ability and desire to argue and debate in search of understanding, not from an egoistic need to win a point or to protect his or her parochial interest. 4. Each council member retains the respect of every other council member without exception. That's a very important point in the council. Each and every council member has to hold the respect of every other council member without exception. Tall order. Five, council members come from a range of perspectives, but each member has knowledge about some aspect of the environment or dilemmas you face. Six, the council includes key members of the management team, but is not limited to members of the management team, nor is every executive automatically a member. Seven, the council is a standing body. It's not an ad hoc committee assembled for a specific project. You never shut down the council. It's always there. Eight, the council meets periodically, as much as once a week, or as infrequently as once per quarter, but no less. 9. The Council does not seek consensus. Recognizing that consensus decisions are often at odds with intelligent decisions. 10. The Council is an informal body, not listed on any formal organization chart or in any formal documents. 11. The Council can have a range of possible names. We found in our research that the Council often had an innocuous name. Things like the Long Range Profit Improvement Committee, the Corporate Products Committee, the Strategic Thinking Group, and the Executive Council. In some ways, the more innocuous the name, the more powerful the group. Does every organization have a hedgehog concept to discover? What if you wake up, look around with brutal honesty, and conclude, we're not the best at anything, and we never have been? Therein lies one of the most exciting aspects of the entire Good to Great study. In the majority of cases, the Good to Great companies, well, they were not the best in the world at anything either, and showed no prospects of becoming so. That's the whole point. They were good to great. They weren't just great. Infused with the Stockdale paradox, there must be something we can become the best at, and we will find it. We must also confront the brutal facts of what we cannot be the best at, and we will not delude ourselves. Infused with this paradox, every good to great company, no matter how awful at the start of the process, and some of the companies like Nucor were truly awful, prevailed in the search for a hedgehog concept. As you search for your own concept, keep in mind that when the good to great companies finally grasped their hedgehog concept, it had none of the tiresome, irritating blasts of mindless bravado typical of comparison companies. Yep, we could become the best at that, was stated as a recognition of fact, 
no more startling than observing that the sky is blue or the grass is green. When you get your hedgehog concept right, it has the quiet ping of truth, like a single, clear, perfectly struck note hanging in the air in the hushed silence of a full auditorium at the end of a quiet movement of a Mozart piano concerto. There is no need to say much of anything. The quiet truth speaks for itself. As I bring this chapter to a close, I'm reminded of a personal experience in my own family that illustrates the vital difference between bravado, beating on your chest, and quiet understanding. My wife Joanne began racing marathons and triathlons in the early 1980s. As she gained experience, running on the track and getting her swim splits and race results, she began to feel the momentum of success. One day, she entered a race with many of the best women triathletes in the world, and despite a weak swim, in fact, when she came out of the water, I was so finally surprised to see her, I thought she'd maybe drowned out there. She came out hundreds of places behind the top swimmers and began to push this huge, heavy, non-aerodynamic bike up a long hill. And despite all of this, she managed to cross the finish line in the top 10. Then a few weeks later, we're sitting at breakfast, and Joanne put down her morning paper and calmly, quietly looked across the table at me and said, I think I could win the Ironman. The Ironman, the world championship of triathlons, involves 2.4 miles of ocean swimming and 112 miles of cycling, capped off with a 26.2-mile marathon foot race on the hot, lava-baked Kona coast of Hawaii. Of course, I'd have to quit my job, she continued. Turn down my offers to graduate school. She'd, in fact, been admitted at that point to graduate business schools at a number of the top schools. And commit to full-time training. But I think I could win the Ironman. Her words had no bravado in them. No hype. No agitation. No pleading. She didn't try to convince me. She simply observed what she had come to understand was a fact, a truth, no more shocking than stating that the walls were painted white. It's as if she looked up from her morning newspaper and said, Jim, you're sitting in a chair. Jim, I think I could win the Ironman. She had the passion. She had the genetics. And if she won races, she'd have the economics. The goal to win the Ironman flowed from an early understanding of her hedgehog concept at that time. And so, she decided to go for it. She quit her job. She turned down the graduate schools. She sold the mills. But, I have to say, fortunately, she did keep me on her bus. And three years later, on a hot October day in 1985, she did indeed cross the finish line at the Hawaii Ironman in first place, world champion. When Joanne set out to win the Ironman, she did not know if she would, in fact, become the world's best woman triathlete. But she understood that it was possible, that she could, that it was something that she could do without being delusional.
And that distinction makes all the difference. It's a distinction that those who want to go from good to great must grasp, and one that those who fail to become great so often never do. Chapter Summary, The Hedgehog Concept To go from good to great requires a deep understanding of three intersecting circles translated into a simple crystalline concept that we came to call the hedgehog concept. The key is to understand what your organization can be the best in the world at, and equally, what it cannot be the best at. Not what it wants to be the best at, not what it hopes to be the best at, not what it aims to be the best at, but that calm, non-bravado understanding of what it can be the best at. The hedgehog concept is not a goal, strategy, or intention. It's an understanding. If you cannot be the best in the world at your core business, then your core business cannot form the basis of your hedgehog concept. The best in the world understanding is a much more severe standard than core competence. You might have a competence, but not necessarily have the capacity to be the truly best in the world at that competence. Conversely, there may be activities at which you could become the best in the world, but at which you have no current competence. To get insight into the drivers of your economic engine, search for the one denominator, profit per X, or perhaps in the social sector, cash flow per X, that has the single greatest impact. As I'm recording this in 2005, a number of years after we wrote the book, I've done a lot of thinking about the social sector and the application of these ideas. And the hedgehog concept very much applies to the social sector. And again, think about the hedgehog concept as three circles. Passion, best at, and then the third circle in the business sector is economics or profit per X. Obviously, in the social sector, you can't think of it as profit per X because most social sector organizations don't have profits. Or even if they do, the point is not profit. So what you want to think about if you're a social sector organization is it's still the three circles and it's still having a hedgehog, but it's a slight change. You have passion and best at. Those two circles are essential. But the third circle shifts from being an economic circle, an economic engine to a resource engine. And the resource engine consists of three sub-pieces. Money, time, meaning volunteers, people giving willingly, and brand, your reputation that gives people the confidence to support your organization in the absence of measurable external results. Consider, for example, an organization like the Red Cross. The Red Cross has a brand reputation that when a world disaster happens, and we've seen any number of disasters from 9-11 to the big tsunami that hit in Southeast Asia, we want to give, but we don't always know how to give. But there's a certain confidence that if we give to the Red Cross, uh, and there are other organizations like this too, that they will make good use of the funds. We can't measure it. We can't see it. There aren't stock returns. But we have faith because of the Red Cross brand. The Red Cross brand also in the Red Cross organization attracts volunteers, which gives it time. And then, of course, there's the money piece that ties into it, and in their case, also the blood business. And you put those three together and you say, what's the resource engine? That third circle for the Red Cross, we have money, we have time, and we have its brand. 
Now, returning back to the original text, in the summary for the hedgehog concept, good to great companies set their goals and strategies based on understanding. Comparison companies, we found, set their goals and strategies more based on chest-beating bravado. Getting the hedgehog concept is an iterative process. The council can be a useful device. As always, there are some unexpected findings. The good to great companies are more like hedgehogs, simple, dowdy creatures that know one big thing and stick to it. The comparison companies are more like foxes, crafty, cunning creatures that know many things yet lack consistency. It took four years on average for the good to great companies to get their hedgehog concept. Strategy, per se, meaning having a strategy or not having a strategy, did not separate the good to great companies from the comparison companies. Both sets of companies had strategies. And there's no evidence that the good to great companies spent more time on strategic planning or strategic thinking than the comparison companies. You absolutely do not need to be in a great industry to produce sustained great results. No matter how bad the industry, every good to great company figured out how to produce truly superior economic returns. Remember the point all the way back in chapter one. Greatness is not primarily a function of circumstance. Greatness is first and foremost a function of conscious choice and discipline. Before we move into the next chapter, the chapter on discipline, the culture of discipline, I'd like to quickly deal with a question that has come up many times since we first published Good to Great. That question has to do with, well, can a diversified company or a diversified organization be a hedgehog? Can you be in multiple businesses and be a hedgehog? The answer to that is something that wasn't in the original text, but is a helpful distinction. Turns out there are two types of hedgehogs. There are content hedgehogs and there are process hedgehogs. A content hedgehog is a hedgehog where the hedgehog concept has to do with the actual business activity. Take Walgreens. Walgreens is a classic content hedgehog. The best, most convenient drugstores, steadily increasing profit per customer visit. It's all about the content of drugstores. That's its one big thing. But let's take a company like GE, General Electric, which is in all kinds of businesses from jet engines and television and insurance and all kinds of things. Is GE therefore a fox rather than a hedgehog? And how would we square that with the fact that GE is in fact an enduring great company? The answer lies in the fact that GE is a process hedgehog. Now, a process hedgehog is one where you have an underlying process that is the one big thing that can be deployed into multiple types of content. So, let's think about it. What can GE be the best in the world at, and in fact has been the best in the world at for nearly 100 years? Developing executive talent and deploying it into good businesses to produce great results. The key process is developing executive talent. And what would GE's economic engine be? Well, ultimately, it's profit per unit of executive talent. 
And what is GE most passionate about? Oh, they are passionate about having the best executive development machine since the Roman legions. So what is GE's hedgehog concept and what has been its hedgehog concept for a hundred years? The best in the world at developing executive talent, deploying it in good businesses to produce great results, steadily increasing profit per unit of executive talent. So notice there, Walgreens is a content hedgehog. GE is a process hedgehog. They are both hedgehogs. The question for you at the beginning of this is, are you a content or a process hedgehog? Chapter 6. A Culture of Discipline Freedom is only part of the story and half the truth. That is why I recommend that the Statue of Liberty on the East Coast be supplemented with a Statue of Responsibility on the West Coast. Victor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning In 1980, George Rathman co-founded the biotechnology company Amgen. Over the next 20 years, Amgen grew from a struggling entrepreneurial enterprise into a $3.2 billion company with 6,400 employees, creating blood products to improve the lives of people suffering through chemotherapy and kidney dialysis. Under Rathman, Amgen became one of the few biotechnology companies that delivered consistent profitability and growth. It became so consistently profitable, in fact, that its stock price multiplied over 150 times from its public offering in June 1983 to January 2000. An investor who bought as little as $7,000 in Amgen stock would have realized a capital gain of over $1 million. 13 times better than the same investment in the general stock market. Few successful startups become great companies, in large part because they respond to growth and success in the wrong way. Entrepreneurial success is fueled by creativity, imagination, bold moves into uncharted waters, and visionary zeal. As the company grows and becomes more complex, it begins to trip over its own success. Too many new people, too many new customers, too many new orders, too many new products. What was once great fun becomes an unwieldy ball of disorganized stuff. Lack of planning, lack of accounting, lack of systems, and lack of hiring constraints creates friction. Problems surface with customers, with cash flow, with schedules. In response, someone, often a board member, says, It's time to grow up. This place needs some professional management. The company begins to hire MBAs and seasoned executives from blue-chipped companies. Processes, procedures, checklists, and all the rest begin to sprout up like weeds. What was once an egalitarian environment gets replaced with a hierarchy. Chains of command appear for the first time, reporting relationships become clear, and an executive class with special perks begins to appear. We and they segmentations appear, just like a real company. The professional managers, often referred to as the suits, finally rein in the mess. They create order out of chaos. But all too often, they also kill the entrepreneurial spirit. Members of the founding team begin to grumble, this just isn't fun anymore. I used to be able to just get things done. Now I have to fill out a form or to follow these stupid rules. Worst of all, I have to spend a horrendous amount of time in useless meetings. The creative magic 
begins to wane as some of the most innovative people leave, disgusted by the burgeoning bureaucracy and hierarchy. The exciting startup becomes just another company with nothing special to recommend it. The cancer, the cancer of mediocrity begins to grow in earnest. Now back to Amgen. George Rathman at Amgen avoided this entrepreneurial death spiral. He understood that the purpose of bureaucracy is to compensate for incompetence and lack of discipline, a problem that largely goes away if you have the right people in the first place. Most companies build their bureaucratic rules to manage the small percentage of the wrong people on the bus. Well, what does that do? That, in turn, drives away the right people on the bus, which then increases the total percentage of wrong people on the bus, which then increases the need for, guess what, more bureaucracy to compensate for incompetence and lack of discipline because you've got a higher percentage of the wrong people on the bus, which then further drives the right people away. And the percentage of wrong people goes up again. And so you need more bureaucracy to deal with the incompetence of the wrong people. And then more of the right people leave and you are in a downward spiral. Rathman understood that there's an alternative. Avoid bureaucracy and hierarchy and instead create a culture of discipline. When you put these two complementary forces together, a culture of discipline and an ethic of entrepreneurship, you get a magic, a magical alchemy of superior performance and sustained results. Why are we starting this chapter with a biotechnology entrepreneur rather than one of our good-to-great companies? Because George Rathman credits much of his entrepreneurial success to what he learned while working at Abbott Laboratories before he founded Amgen. Let me share with you a quote from Rathman, and I'd like you to think about the discipline in your own organization as you listen to this quote. What I got from Abbott was the idea that when you set your objectives for the year, you record them in concrete. You can change your plans through the year, but you never change what you measure yourself against. You are rigorous at the end of the year, adhering exactly to what you said was going to happen. You don't get a chance to editorialize. You don't get a chance to adjust and finagle and decide, well, you really didn't intend to do that anyway, and readjust your objectives to make yourself look better. You never just focus on what you've accomplished for the year. You focus on what you've accomplished relative to exactly what you said you are going to accomplish, no matter how tough the measure. That was a discipline learned at Abbott and that we carried into Amgen. Many of the Abbott disciplines trace back to 1968 when it hired a remarkable financial officer named Bernard H. Semler. Semler did not see his job as a traditional financial controller or accountant. Rather, he set out to invent mechanisms that would drive cultural change. Now think about this. This is the finance guy seeing his job as to create mechanisms that would drive cultural change. That's remarkable. He created a whole new framework of accounting that he called 
responsibility accounting, wherein every item of cost, income, and investment would be clearly identified with a single, specific, identified individual. Responsible, capital R, responsible for that item. The idea, radical for the 1960s, was to create a system wherein every Abbott manager in every type of job was responsible for his or her return on investment with the same rigor that an investor holds an entrepreneur responsible. There would be no hiding behind traditional accounting allocations, no slopping funds from here to there to cover up ineffective management, no opportunities for finger-pointing. But the beauty of the Abbott system lay not just in its rigor, but in how it used rigor and discipline to enable creativity, to enable entrepreneurship. Abbott developed a very disciplined organization, but not in a linear way of thinking, said Rathman. It was exemplary at having both financial discipline and the divergent thinking of creative work. We used financial discipline as a way to provide resources for the really creative work. Abbott reduced its administrative costs as a percentage of sales to the lowest in the industry by a significant margin, and at the same time became a new product innovation machine like 3M, deriving up to 65% of revenues from new products introduced in the previous four years. Now think about this next time somebody says, which do you want, low cost or high innovation? Both. This creative duality ran through every aspect of Abbott during the transition era, woven into the fabric of the corporate culture. On the one hand, Abbott recruited entrepreneurial leaders and gave them freedom to determine the best path to achieving their objectives. On the other hand, individuals had to commit fully to the Abbott system and were held rigorously accountable for those objectives. They had freedom, but freedom in a framework. Abbott instilled the entrepreneur's zeal for opportunistic flexibility. We recognized that planning is priceless, but plans are useless, said one Abbott executive, quoting, I believe, Dwight D. Eisenhower. But Abbott also had the discipline to say no to opportunities that failed the three circles test. While encouraging wide-ranging innovation within its divisions, Abbott simultaneously maintained fanatical adherence to its hedgehog concept of contributing to cost-effective healthcare. You could innovate, but you had to stay within the hedgehog. Abbott exemplifies a key finding in our study, a culture of discipline. By its nature, culture is a somewhat unwieldy topic to discuss, less prone to clean frameworks like the three circles. The main points of this chapter, however, boil down to one central idea. Build a culture full of people, the right people on the bus. First two, then what? So build a culture full of the right people who take disciplined action within the three circles, fanatically consistent with the hedgehog concept. More precisely, this means the following four points. One, Build a culture around the idea of freedom and responsibility within a framework. Two, 
fill that culture with self-disciplined people who are willing to go to extreme lengths to fulfill their responsibilities. They will rinse their cottage cheese, which I will explain in a few minutes. Three, don't confuse a culture of discipline with a tyrannical disciplinarian. And four, adhere with great consistency to the hedgehog concept, exercising an almost religious focus on the intersection of the three circles. Equally important, create a stop-doing list and systematically unplug anything extraneous. Freedom and Responsibility Within a Framework Picture an airline pilot. She settles into the cockpit, surrounded by dozens of complicated switches and sophisticated gauges, sitting atop a massive $84 million piece of machinery. As passengers thump and stuff their bags into overhead bins and flight attendants scurry about trying to get everyone settled in, she begins her pre-flight checklist. Step by methodical step, she systematically moves through every required item. Cleared for departure, she begins working with air traffic control, following precise instructions, which direction to take out of the gate, which way to taxi, which runway to use, which direction to take off. She doesn't throttle up and hurdle the jet into the air until she's cleared for takeoff. Once aloft, she communicates continually with flight control centers and stays within the tight boundaries of the commercial air traffic system. On approach, however, she hits a ferocious thunder and lightning storm. Blasting winds, crossways and unpredictable, tilt the wings down to the left and then down to the right. Looking out the windows, passengers can't see the ground, only the thinning and thickening globs of gray clouds and spatter of rain on the windows. The flight attendants announce, Ladies and gentlemen, we've been asked to remain seated for the remainder of the flight. Please put your seats in the upright and locked position and place all your carry-on baggage under the seat in front of you. We should be on the ground shortly. Uh, not too shortly, I hope, think the less experienced travelers, unnerved by the roiling wind and momentary flashes of lightning. But the experienced travelers just go on reading magazines, chatting with seatmates, and preparing for their meetings on the ground. I've been through all this before, they think. She'll, she'll, she'll only land if it's safe. Sure enough, on final approach, wheels down as a quarter of a million pounds of aluminum glide down at 130 miles per hour. Passengers suddenly hear the engines whine and feel themselves thrust back into their seats. The plane accelerates back into the sky. It banks around in a big arc back toward the airport. The pilot takes a moment to click on the intercom. Sorry, folks, we were getting some bad crosswinds there. We're going to give it another try. On the next go, the winds calm just enough, and she brings the plane down safely. Now step back and think about the model here. The pilot operates within a very strict system, and she does not have freedom to go outside of that system. You don't want airline pilots saying, hey, I just read in a management book about the value of being empowered, freedom to experiment, to be creative, to be entrepreneurial, to try a lot of stuff and keep what works. At least not on airplanes that I want to fly. Yet at the same time, the crucial decisions, whether to take off, whether to land, whether to abort, whether to land elsewhere, rest with the pilot. Regardless of the strictures of the system, one central fact stands out above the others. The pilot has ultimate responsibility for the airplane 
and the lives of the people on that plane. The point here is not that a company should have a system as strict and inflexible as the air traffic system. After all, if a corporate system fails, people don't die by the hundreds in burning twisted hunks of steel. Customer service at the airlines might be terrible, but you are almost certain to get where you are going in one piece. The point of this analogy is that when we looked inside the good to great companies, we were reminded of the best part of that airline pilot model. Freedom and responsibility within the framework of a highly developed system. The good to great companies built a consistent system with clear constraints, but they also gave people freedom and responsibility within the framework of that system. They hired self-disciplined people who didn't need to be managed. And then they managed the system, not the people. After reflecting on the book for four years before re-recording it, that sentence comes back to me as one of the most important. Let me repeat. They hired self-disciplined people who didn't need to be managed and then managed the system, not the people. This was the secret to how we were able to run stores from a great distance by remote control, said Bill Rivas of Circuit City. It was a combination of great store managers who had ultimate responsibility for their individual stores operating within a great system. You've got to have management and people who believe in the system and who do whatever is necessary to make the system work. But within the boundaries of that system, store managers had a lot of leeway to coincide with their responsibility. In the 1980s, when Circuit City hit its breakthrough, it became to consumer electronics retailing what McDonald's became to restaurants. Not the most exquisite experience, but an enormously consistent one. As the company struggled after the year 2000, it came in part because they lost some of these disciplines. Whether the company comes back as great depends on whether they are able to get that same discipline back. The system evolved over time as Circuit City experimented by adding new items like computers and video players just like McDonald's added breakfast egg McMuffins. But at any given moment, everyone operated within the framework of the system. That's one of the major differences between us and all the others who were in the same business in the early 1980s, said Bill Zierden. They just couldn't roll it out further. And we could. We could stamp these stores out all over the country with great consistency. And therein lies one of the key reasons why Circuit City took off in the early 1980s and beat the general market by more than 18 times over the next 15 years. In a sense, much of this book is about creating a culture of discipline. It all starts with disciplined people. The transition begins not by trying to discipline the wrong people into the right behaviors, again, first who, then what, but by getting self-disciplined people on the bus in the first place. Next, we have disciplined thought. You need the discipline to confront the brutal facts of reality while retaining resolute faith that you can and you will create a path to greatness. 
Most important, you need the discipline to persist in the search for understanding until you get your hedgehog concept. And now, finally, we have disciplined action, the primary subject of this chapter. The order is important. The comparison companies often tried to jump right to disciplined action. But disciplined action, without self-disciplined people, is impossible to sustain. And disciplined action, without disciplined thought, is a recipe for disaster. Discipline by itself will not produce great results. We find plenty of organizations, even societies in history, that had tremendous discipline and that marched right into disaster with precision and in nicely formed lines. The point is to first get self-disciplined people who engage in very rigorous thinking, who then take disciplined action within the framework of a consistent system designed around the hedgehog concept. Throughout the research, we were struck by the continued use of words like disciplined, rigorous, dogged, determined, diligent, precise, fastidious, systematic, methodical, workmanlike, demanding, consistent, focused, accountable, and responsible. These words peppered articles, interviews, and source materials on the good to great companies and were strikingly absent from the materials on the direct comparison companies. People in the good to great companies became somewhat extreme in the fulfillment of their responsibilities, bordering, quite frankly, in some cases on fanaticism. We came to call this rinsing your cottage cheese. The analogy comes from a disciplined world-class athlete named Dave Scott, who won the Hawaii Ironman Triathlon six times. In training, Scott would ride his bike 75 miles, swim 20,000 meters, and run 17 miles on average every single day. Dave Scott did not have a weight problem. Yet, he believed that a low-fat, high-carbohydrate diet would give him an extra edge. So Dave Scott, a man who burned at least 5,000 calories a day in training, would literally rinse his cottage cheese, stand there at a sink, rinsing his cottage cheese to get off the extra fat. Now, there's no evidence that he absolutely needed to rinse his cottage cheese to win the Ironman. That's not the point of the story. The point is that rinsing his cottage cheese was simply one more small step that he believed would make him just that much better. One more small step added to all the other small steps to create a consistent program of super discipline. I've always had this picture of Dave Scott running the 26 miles of the marathon, hammering away in 100 degree heat with no shade on those baked lava fields after swimming 2.4 miles in the ocean and cycling 112 miles against ferocious crosswinds, pounding his way into the finish line and thinking to himself, compared to rinsing my cottage cheese every day, this just isn't that bad. I realize this is a bizarre analogy. But in a sense, the good to great companies became a lot like Dave Scott. Much of the answer to the question of good to great lies in the discipline to do whatever it takes to become the best within carefully selected arenas and then to seek continual improvement from there. In many ways, it's really just that simple. And it's just that difficult. Everyone would like to be the best. 
but most lack the discipline to figure out with egoless clarity what they can be the best at. And they lack the will to do whatever it takes to turn that potential into reality. They lack the discipline to rinse their cottage cheese. Consider Wells Fargo in contrast to Bank of America. Carl Reichert never doubted that Wells Fargo could emerge from bank deregulation as a stronger company, not a weaker one. He saw that the key to becoming a great company rested not with brilliant new strategies, but with the sheer determination to rip a hundred years of banker mentality out of the system. There's too much waste in banking, said Reichert. Getting rid of it takes tenacity, not brilliance. Reichert set a clear tone at the top. We're not going to ask everyone else to suffer while we sit on high. We will start by rinsing our own cottage cheese right here in the executive offices. He froze executive salaries for two years, despite the fact that Wells Fargo was enjoying some of the most profitable years in its history. He shut the executive dining room and replaced it with a college dorm food service caterer. He closed the executive elevator, sold the corporate jets, and banned green plants from the executive suite as too expensive to water. He removed free coffee from the executive suite. He eliminated Christmas trees for management. He threw reports back at people who had submitted them in fancy binders with the admonishment, Would you spend your own money this way? What does a binder have to do with anything? Reichert would sit through meetings with fellow executives in a beat-up old chair with the stuffing hanging out. Sometimes he would just sit there and pick at the stuffing, pick, 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 pulling it out of the chair, while listening to proposals to spend money, said one article, and a lot of must-do projects just melted away. Well, like everything, we have to look at the comparisons. Across the street at Bank of America, executives also faced deregulation and recognized the need to eliminate waste. However, unlike Wells Fargo, Bank of America executives didn't have the discipline to rinse their own cottage cheese. Their approach seemed to be, we're going to eat all the fatty cottage cheese we want while all of our people rinse their cottage cheese. They preserved their posh executive kingdom in its imposing tower in downtown San Francisco. The CEO's office described in the book Breaking the Bank as a northeast corner suite with a large attached conference room, oriental rugs, and floor-to-ceiling windows that offered a sweeping panorama of the San Francisco Bay from the Golden Gate to the Bay Bridge. We found no evidence of executive chairs and the Bank of America executive suite with the stuffing hanging out. The elevator made its last stop at the executive floor and descended all the way to the ground in one quiet whoosh, unfettered by the intrusions of lesser beings. The vast open space in the executive suite made the windows look even taller than they actually were creating a sense of floating above the fog in an elevated city of alien elites who ruled the world from above. Why rinse our cottage cheese when life is so good? After losing $1.8 billion across three years in the mid-1980s, 
Bank of America eventually made the necessary changes in response to deregulation, largely, as we mentioned earlier, by hiring ex-Wells Fargo executives. But even in the darkest days, B of A could not bring itself to get rid of the perks that sheltered its executives from the real world. At one board meeting during B of A's crisis period, one member made sensible suggestions like sell the corporate jet. Other directors listened to the recommendations, then passed them by. A culture, not a tyrant. We almost didn't include this chapter in the book. On the one hand, the good-to-great companies became more disciplined than the direct comparison companies, as with Wells Fargo in contrast to Bank of America. But the unsustained comparisons, these were the ones that went from good to great and then lost it quickly, showed themselves to be just as disciplined as the good-to-great companies. Based on my analysis, I don't think we can put discipline in the book as a finding, said Eric Hagen, after he completed a special analysis unit looking at the leadership cultures across the companies. It's absolutely clear that the unsustained comparison CEOs brought tremendous discipline to their companies, and that is why they got such great initial results. So discipline just doesn't pass muster as a distinguishing variable. Curious, we decided to look further into the issue, and Eric undertook a more in-depth analysis. As we examined the evidence, it became clear that, despite surface appearances, there was indeed a huge difference between the two sets of companies in their approach to discipline, a huge difference between the good-to-great companies and the unsustained comparisons. Whereas the good-to-great companies had level 5 leaders who built a culture of discipline, the unsustained comparisons had level 4 leaders who personally disciplined the organization through sheer force. Consider Ray McDonald, who took command, and that's the best word for it, command of Burroughs in 1964. A brilliant but abrasive man, McDonald controlled the conversation, told all the jokes, and criticized those not as smart as he, which was pretty much everyone around him. He got things done through sheer force of personality, using a form of pressure that came to be known as the McDonald Vice. McDonald produced remarkable results during his reign. Every dollar invested in 1964, the year he became president, and taking out at the end of 1977 when he retired, produced returns 6.6 times better than the general market. However, the company had no culture, no culture of discipline to endure beyond him. After he retired, his helper minions were frozen by indecision, leaving the company, according to Businessweek, with an inability to do anything. Burroughs then began a long slide, with cumulative returns falling 93% below the market from the end of the McDonald era to 2000. We found a similar story at Rubbermaid under Stanley Galt. Think back to the Level 5 chapter and how Galt quipped in response to the accusation of being a tyrant, yes, but I'm a sincere tyrant. Galt brought strict disciplines to Rubbermaid, rigorous planning and competitor analysis, systematic market research, profit analysis, hard-nosed cost control, and so on. This is an incredibly disciplined organization, wrote one analyst. 
there is an incredible thoroughness in Rubbermaid's approach to life. Precise and methodical, Galt arrived at work by 6.30 and routinely worked 80-hour work weeks, expecting his managers to do the same. As chief disciplinarian, Galt personally acted as the company's number one quality control mechanism. Walking down the street one day in Manhattan, he noticed a doorman muttering and swearing as he swept dirt into a Rubbermaid dustpan. Stan whirled around and started grilling the man on why he was unhappy, said Richard Gates, who told the story to Fortune. Galt, convinced that the lip of the dustpan was too thick, promptly issued a diktat to his engineers to redesign the product. On quality, I'm a son of a bitch, said Galt. His chief operating officer concurred. He gets livid. Rubbermaid rose dramatically under the tyranny of this singularly disciplined leader. But then, just as dramatically, declined when he departed. Under Galt, Rubbermaid beat the market 3.6 to 1. After Galt, Rubbermaid lost 59% of its value relative to the market before being bought out by Newell. One particularly fascinating example of the disciplinarian syndrome was Lee Iacocca at Chrysler, whom Businessweek described simply as the man, the dictator, Lee. Iacocca became president of Chrysler in 1979 and imposed his towering personality to discipline the organization into shape. Right away, I knew the place was in a state of anarchy and needed a dose of order and discipline and quick, wrote Iacocca of his early days. In his first year, he entirely overhauled the management structure, instituted strict financial controls, improved quality control measures, rationalized the production schedule, and conducted mass layoffs to preserve cash. I felt like an army surgeon. We had to do radical surgery, saving what we could. In dealing with the unions, he said, If you don't help me out, I'm going to blow your brains out. I'll declare bankruptcy in the morning and you're going to be out of work. Iacocca produced spectacular results, and Chrysler became one of the most celebrated turnarounds in industrial history. But then, about midway through his tenure, Iacocca seemed to lose focus, and the company began to decline once again. The Wall Street Journal wrote, Mr. Iacocca headed the Statue of Liberty renovation, joined a congressional commission on budget reduction, and wrote a second book. He began a syndicated newspaper column, bought an Italian villa, where he started bottling his own wine and olive oil. Critics contend it all distracted him and was a root cause of Chrysler's current problems, continued the journal. Distracting or not, it's clear that being a folk hero is a demanding sideline. Perhaps worse than his moonlight career as a national hero, his lack of discipline to stay within the arenas in which Chrysler could be the best in the world led to a binge of highly undisciplined diversifications. In 1985, he was lured into the sexy aerospace business. Whereas most CEOs would be content with a single Gulfstream jet, Iacocca decided to buy the whole Gulfstream company. Also in the mid-1980s, he embarked on a costly and ultimately unsuccessful joint venture with an Italian sports car maker. Iacocca had a soft spot for Italians, said one retired Chrysler executive. 
Iacocca, who owns a modest estate in Tuscany, was so intent on an Italian alliance that commercial realities were ignored, wrote Businessweek. Some estimates put the loss of the failed Italian car venture at $200 million, which, according to Forbes, was an enormous sum to lose on a high-price, low-volume roadster. After all, no more than a few thousand will ever be built. During the first half of his tenure, Iacocca produced remarkable results, taking the company from near bankruptcy to nearly three times the general market. Impressive. During the second half of Iacocca's tenure, however, the company slid 31% behind the market and faced another potential bankruptcy. Like so many patients with a heart condition, wrote Chrysler executive, we'd survived surgery several years before only to revert to our unhealthy lifestyle. The above cases, Burroughs with Commander McDonald and Rubbermaid with Stan Galt and Iacocca at Chrysler, illustrate a pattern we found in every unsustained comparison. A spectacular rise under a tyrannical disciplinarian, followed by an equally spectacular decline when the disciplinarian stepped away, leaving behind no culture of discipline, or when the disciplinarian himself became undisciplined and strayed wantonly outside the three circles of the hedgehog concept. Yes, discipline is essential for great results, but disciplined action without disciplined understanding of the three circles, cannot produce sustained great results. All of which brings us to the next point, fanatical adherence to the hedgehog concept. For nearly 40 years, Pitney Bowes lived inside the warm and protective cocoon of a monopoly. With its close relationship to the U.S. Postal Service and its patents on postage meter machines, Pitney attained 100% of the metered mail market. By the end of the 1950s, nearly half of all U.S. mail passed through Pitney Bowes machines. With gross profit margins in excess of 80%, no competition, a huge market, and a recession-proof business, Pitney Bowes wasn't so much a great company as a company with a great monopoly. Then as almost always happens to monopolies when the protective cocoon is ripped away, Pitney Bowes began a long slide. First came a consent decree that required Pitney to license its patents to competitors, royalty-free. Within six years, Pitney Bowes had 16 competitors. Pitney then fell into a reactionary chicken-little-the-sky-is-falling diversification frenzy, throwing cash after ill-fated acquisitions and joint ventures, including a $70 million bloodbath, 54% of net stockholders' equity at the time, from a computer retail foray. In 1973, the company lost money for the first time in its entire history. It was shaping up to be just another typical case of a monopoly-protected company gradually falling apart once confronted with the harsh reality of competition. But that's not the way it turned out in the end. Fortunately for Pitney Bowes, a level five leader named Fred Allen stepped in and asked hard questions that led to deeper understanding of Pitney's role in the world. Instead of viewing itself as just a postage meter company, 
Pitney came to see that it could be the best in the world at serving the back rooms of businesses within the broader concept of messaging. It also came to see that sophisticated back office products, like, say, high-end faxes and specialized copiers, played right into its economic engine of profit per customer, building off its extensive sales and service network. Allen and his successor, George Harvey, then instituted a model of disciplined diversification. For example, Pitney eventually attained 45% of the high-end fax market for large company, a hugely profitable cash machine. Harvey began a systematic process of investment in new technologies and products, such as the Paragon mail processor that seals and sends letters, and by the late 1980s, Pitney consistently derived over half its revenues from products introduced in the previous three years. Later, Pitney became a pioneer at linking backroom machines to the Internet, yet another opportunity for disciplined diversification. The key point is not all the details of their business, but that at every step of diversification and innovation, they stayed within the three circles. The results? After falling 77% behind the market from the consent decree to its darkest days in 1973, Pitney Bowes then reversed course, eventually rising to over 11 times the market by the start of 1999. From 1973 to 2000, Pitney Bowes outperformed Coca-Cola, outperformed 3M, outperformed Johnson & Johnson, Merck, Motorola, Procter & Gamble, Hewlett-Packard, Walt Disney, and even General Electric. Can you think of any other company that emerged from the protective comfort of a monopoly cocoon to deliver this level of results? AT&T didn't. Xerox didn't. Even IBM didn't. Pitney Bowes illustrates what can happen when a company lacks the discipline to stay within the three circles, and conversely, what can happen when it regains that discipline. The good to great companies at their best followed a simple mantra. Anything that does not fit with our hedgehog concept, we will not do. We will not launch unrelated businesses. We will not make unrelated acquisitions. We will not do unrelated joint ventures. If it doesn't fit, we don't do it. Period. In contrast, we found a lack of discipline to stay within the three circles as a key factor in the demise of nearly all the comparison companies. Every comparison either, one, lacked the discipline to understand its three circles in the first place, or two, lacked the discipline to stay within the three circles even if it understood them. R.J. Reynolds is a classic case. Until the 1960s, R.J. Reynolds had a simple and clear concept built around being the best tobacco company in the United States a position it had held for at least 25 years. Then in 1964, the Surgeon General issued his report that linked cigarettes with cancer, and R.J. Reynolds began to diversify away from tobacco as a defensive measure. Now, of course, all tobacco companies began to diversify at that time for the same reason, including the good-to-great company Philip Morris. But R.J. Reynolds' wanderings outside its three circles defied all logic. The company spent nearly a third of total corporate assets in 1970 to buy a shipping container company and an oil company, Sealand and Ammon Oil, 
the idea being to make money by shipping its own oil. Okay, not a terrible idea on its own. But what on earth, what on earth did it have to do with R.J. Reynolds' hedgehog concept? It was a wholly undisciplined acquisition that came about in part because Sealand's founder was a close friend of R.J. Reynolds' chairman. After pouring more than $2 billion into Sealand, the total investment nearly equaled the entire amount of net stockholders' equity. Finally, after years of starving the tobacco business to funnel funds into the sinking ship business, RJR acknowledged failure and sold Sealand. One Reynolds grandson complained, Look, these guys are the world's best at making and selling tobacco products. But what do they know about ships or oil? I'm not worried about them going broke, but they look like country boys with too much cash in their pockets. To be fair, Philip Morris did not have a perfect diversification record either, as evidenced by its failed purchase of 7-Up, which we discussed earlier. However, in stark contrast to R.J. Reynolds, Philip Morris displayed greater discipline in response to the 1964 Surgeon General's report. Instead of abandoning its hedgehog concept and running around like Chicken Little, Philip Morris redefined its hedgehog concept in terms of building global brands and not-so-healthy consumables. Tobacco, beer, soft drinks, coffee, chocolate, cheese, etc. Philip Morris's superior discipline to stay within the three circles is one key reason why the results of the two companies diverged so dramatically after the 1964 report, despite the fact that they both faced the exact same industry opportunities and threats. From 1964 to 1989, when R.J. Reynolds disappeared from public trading in a leveraged buyout, $1 invested in Philip Morris beat $1 invested in R.J. Reynolds by over four times. Very few companies have the discipline to discover their hedgehog concept. Fewer still have the discipline to build consistently within it. They fail to grasp a simple paradox. The more an organization has the discipline to stay within its three circles, the more it will have attractive opportunities for growth. Indeed, to quote David Packard, founder of Hewlett Packard Company, a great company is much more likely to die of indigestion of too much opportunity than starvation from too little. The challenge becomes not opportunity creation, but opportunity selection. It takes discipline to say no, no thank you, no not for us, no to big opportunities. The fact that something is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity is irrelevant if it doesn't fit within your three circles. If you're a great company, you will have many once-in-a-lifetime opportunities. That something is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity is a fact. It is not a reason.
This notion of fanatical consistency relative to the hedgehog concept doesn't just concern the portfolio of strategic activities. It can also relate to the entire way you manage and build an organization. Nucor built its success around the hedgehog concept of harnessing culture and technology to produce steel. Central to Nucor's concept was the idea of aligning worker interests with management and shareholder interests in an egalitarian meritocracy largely devoid of class distinctions. Wrote Ken Iverson in his 1998 book, Plain Talk, inequality still runs rampant in most corporations. I'm referring now to the hierarchical inequality which legitimizes and institutionalizes the principle of we versus they. The people at the top of corporate hierarchy grant themselves privilege after privilege, flaunt those privileges before the men and women who do the real work, then wonder why employees are unmoved by management's invocations to cut costs and boost profitability. When I think of the millions of dollars spent by people at the top of the management hierarchy on efforts to motivate people who are continually put down by that hierarchy, I can only shake my head in wonder. When we interviewed Ken Iverson, he told us that nearly 100% of the success of Nucor was due to its ability to translate its simple concept into disciplined action consistent with that concept. Nucor grew into a $3.5 billion Fortune 500 company with only four layers of management and a corporate headquarters staff of fewer than 25 people. Executive, financial, secretarial, the whole shebang crammed into a rented office space the size of a small dental practice. Cheap veneer furniture adorned the lobby, which in itself was not much larger than a closet. Instead of a corporate dining room, executives hosted visiting dignitaries at Phil's Diner, a strip mall sandwich shop across the street. Nucor executives did not receive better benefits than frontline workers. In fact, executives had fewer perks. For example, all workers, but not executives, were eligible to receive $2,000 per year for each child up to four years of post-high school education. In one incident, a man came to Marvin Pullman and said, I have nine kids. Are you telling me that you'll pay for four years of school, college, trade school, whatever, for every single one of my kids? Pullman acknowledged that yes, that's exactly what would happen. The man just sat there and cried, said Pullman. I'll never forget it. It just captures, in one moment, so much of what we were trying to do. When Nucor had a highly profitable year, everyone in the company would have a very profitable year. Nucor workers became so well paid that one woman told her husband, You get fired from Nucor, I'll divorce you. But when Nucor faced difficult times, Everyone from top to bottom suffered, but people at the top suffered more. In the 1982 recession, for example, worker pay went down 25%, officer pay went down 60%, and the CEO's pay went down 75%. To further be consistent with its hedgehog concept, Nucor took extraordinary steps to keep at bay the class distinctions that eventually encroach on most organizations. All 7,000 employees' names appeared in the annual report, not just officers and executives. Just go back and revisit that for a moment. All 7,000 employees' names appeared in the annual report. 
Everyone except safety supervisors and visitors wore the same color hard hats. Now the color of hard hats might sound trivial, but it caused quite a stir. Some foremen complained that special colored hard hats identified them as higher in the chain, an important status symbol that they could put on the back shelves of their cars or trucks. Nucor responded by organizing a series of forums to address the point that your status and authority at Nucor come from your leadership capabilities, not your position, and not from the color of your hard hat. If you don't like it, if you really feel you need that class distinction, well, the Nucor is just not the right place for you. To highlight how consistent and extreme, how much cottage cheese Nucor rinsed, let's contrast Nucor to another steel company, the comparison Bethlehem. In contrast to Nucor's dental suite size headquarters, Bethlehem Steel built a 21-story office complex to house its executive staff. At extra expense, it designed the building more like a cross than a rectangle. And why would you do this? Well, it was a design that accommodated the large numbers of vice presidents who needed corner offices. The vice presidents had to have windows in two directions. So it was out of that desire that we came up with the design, explained a Bethlehem executive. In his book, Crisis in Bethlehem, John Strohmeyer details a culture as far to the other end of the continuum from Nucor as you could possibly imagine. He describes a fleet of corporate aircraft, used even for taking executives' children to college, and flitting away to weekend hideaways. He describes a world-class 18-hole executive golf course, an executive country club renovated with Bethlehem corporate funds and even how executive rank determined shower priority at the club. We came to the conclusion, in fact, that Bethlehem executives saw the very purpose of their activities as the perpetuation of a class system that elevated them to elite status. Bethlehem did not decline in the 1970s and 80s primarily because of imports or technology. That's what everybody would think caused the decline, but no. Bethlehem declined, first and foremost, because it was a culture wherein people focused their efforts on negotiating the nuances of an intricate social hierarchy, rather than focusing on customers, competitors, or changes in the external world. From 1966, at the start of its buildup, to 1999, Nucor posted 34 consecutive years of positive profitability. While over those same 34 years, Bethlehem Steel lost money 12 times, and its total cumulative profitability added up to less than zero. Total net income over 34 years, if you added up every year of profits, was less than zero. By the 1990s, Nucor's profitability beat Bethlehem's every single year. And at the end of the century, Nucor, which had been less than a third the size of Bethlehem only a decade earlier, finally surpassed Bethlehem in total revenues. Even more astounding, Nucor's average five-year profit per employee exceeded Bethlehem by almost ten times. And for the investor, one dollar invested in Nucor beat one dollar invested in Bethlehem Steel by over two hundred times. To be fair, Bethlehem had one giant problem not faced by Nucor, adversarial labor relations and entrenched unions. 
Nucor had no union and enjoyed remarkably good relations with its workers. In fact, when union organizers visited one plant, workers felt so ferociously loyal to Nucor that management had to protect the union organizers from workers who began shouting and throwing sand at them. But the union argument begs a crucial question. Why did Nucor have such a better relationship with its workers in the first place? Why? Because Ken Iverson and his team had a simple crystalline hedgehog concept. And that hedgehog concept was about aligning worker interests with management interests. And most important, because they were willing to go to almost extreme lengths to build the entire enterprise consistent with that concept, they rinsed their cottage cheese. Call them a bit fanatical if you want. But to create great results requires a nearly fanatical dedication to the idea of consistency, super consistency, with the hedgehog concept. The stop doing list. Do you have a to-do list? Most of us do. I imagine you do. Now, do you also have a stop doing list? Most of us lead busy but undisciplined lives. We have ever-expanding to-do lists, trying to build momentum by doing, 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 and then doing more. It rarely works. Those who built the good-to-great companies, however, made as much use of stop-doing lists. They displayed a remarkable discipline to unplug all sorts of extraneous junk. When Darwin Smith became CEO of Kimberly Clark, he made great use of stop-doing lists. He saw that playing the annual forecast game with Wall Street focused people too much on the short term, so he just stopped doing it. On balance, I see no net advantage to our stockholders when we annually forecast future earnings, said Smith. We will not do it. He saw title creep as a sign of class consciousness and bureaucratic layering. So he simply unplugged titles. No one at the company would have a title, unless it was for a position where the outside world demanded a title. He saw increasing layers as the natural result of empire building. So he simply unplugged a huge stack of layers with a simple, elegant mechanism. If you couldn't justify to your peers the need for at least 15 people reporting to you to fulfill your responsibilities, then you would have zero people reporting to you. Keep in mind, he did this in the 1970s, long before such actions became fashionable. To reinforce the idea that Kimberly Clark should begin thinking of itself as a consumer company, not a paper company, he unplugged Kimberly from all paper industry trade associations. The good to great companies institutionalized the discipline of stop doing through the use of a unique budget mechanism. Now stop and think about this for a minute. What's the purpose of having a budget? Most answer that budgeting exists to decide how much to apportion to each activity, or to manage costs, or both. From a good to great perspective, both of these answers are wrong. In a good to great transformation, budgeting is a discipline of a peculiar type, a discipline to decide which arenas should be fully funded and which should not be funded at all. 
In other words, the budget process is not about figuring out how much each activity gets, but about determining which activities best support the hedgehog concept and should be fully strengthened and which should be eliminated entirely. Go back to Darwin Smith selling the mills. Kimberly Clark didn't just reallocate resources from the paper business to the consumer business. It completely eliminated the paper business, sold the mills, and invested all the money into the emerging consumer business. I had an interesting conversation with some executives from a company in the paper business. It's a good company, not yet a great one. And they had competed at one point directly with Kimberly Clark before Kimberly transformed itself into a consumer company. Out of curiosity, I asked what they thought of Kimberly Clark. They looked at me and then said, What Kimberly did is not fair. Not fair? I looked quizzical. Oh, sure. They've become a much more successful company. But, you know, if we'd sold our paper business and become a powerful consumer company, we could have been great, too. But we just have too much invested in it, and we couldn't have brought ourselves to do it. If you look back at the good to great companies, they displayed remarkable courage to channel their resources into only one or a few arenas. Once they understood their three circles, they rarely hedged their bets. Recall Kroger's commitment to overturn its entire system to create superstores, while A&P clung to the safety of its older stores. Recall Abbott's commitment to put the bulk of its resources into becoming number one in diagnostics and hospital nutritionals, while Upjohn clung to the safety of its core pharmaceutical business, where, unfortunately, it could never be the best in the world. Recall how Walgreens exited the profitable food service business and focused all its might into one idea, the best, most convenient drugstores. Recall Gillette and Sensor, Nucor and the Mini Mills, Kimberly Clark and Selling the Mills to channel all its resources into the consumer business. They all had the guts to make huge investments once they understood their hedgehog concept. The most effective investment strategy is a highly undiversified portfolio where you are right. As facetious as that sounds, that's essentially the approach the good to great companies took. Being right means getting the hedgehog concept. Highly undiversified means investing fully in those things that fit squarely within the three circles and getting rid of everything else. Of course, the key here is a little caveat when you are right. But how do you know when you are right? In studying the companies, we learned that being right just isn't that hard if you have all the pieces in place. If you have level five leaders who get the right people on the bus, if you confront the brutal facts of reality, if you create a climate where the truth is heard, if you have a council, if you work within the three circles, if you frame all decisions in the context of a crystalline hedgehog concept, if you act from understanding, not bravado, if you do all of these things, then you are likely to be right on the big decisions. The real question is, once you know the right thing, do you have the discipline to do the right thing? And equally important, to stop doing the wrong things. Chapter Summary, A Culture of Discipline 
Sustained great results depend upon building a culture, a culture full of self-disciplined people who take disciplined action, fanatically consistent with the three circles of the hedgehog concept. Bureaucratic cultures arise to compensate for incompetence and lack of discipline, which arise from having the wrong people on the bus in the first place. If you get the right people on the bus and the wrong people off the bus, you don't need stultifying bureaucracy. A culture of discipline involves a duality. On the one hand, it requires people who adhere to a consistent system. Yet, on the other hand, it gives people freedom and responsibility within the framework of that system. A culture of discipline is not just about action. It is about getting disciplined people who engage in disciplined thought and who then take disciplined action. The good to great companies appear boring and pedestrian looking in from the outside. But upon closer inspection, they're full of people who display extreme diligence and a stunning intensity. They rinse their cottage cheese. Do not confuse a culture of discipline with a tyrant who disciplines. They are very different concepts. One highly functional, the culture of discipline. The other highly dysfunctional, the tyrannical disciplinarian. Savior CEOs who personally discipline through sheer force of personality usually fail to produce sustained results. The single most important discipline for sustained results is fanatical adherence to the hedgehog concept and the willingness to shun opportunities that fall outside the three circles. A few unexpected findings. The more an organization has the discipline to stay within its three circles with almost religious consistency, the more it will have opportunities for growth. The fact that something is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity is irrelevant. It's irrelevant unless it fits within the three circles. A great company will have many once-in-a-lifetime opportunities. Another form of Packard's Law a great company is more likely to die of indigestion of too much opportunity than starvation from too little. The purpose of budgeting in a good to great company is not to decide how much each activity gets, but to decide which arenas best fit with the hedgehog concept and should be fully funded, and which should not be funded at all. And finally, my personal favorite from the whole chapter, stop doing lists are more important than to-do lists. I will leave it up to you to resolve the existential dilemma about whether to put start a stop doing list on your to-do list. Chapter 7. Technology Accelerators Most men would rather die than think. Many do. Bertrand Russell on July 28, 1999, Drugstore.com, one of the first internet pharmacies, sold shares of its stock to the public. Within seconds of the opening bell, the stock multiplied nearly threefold to $65 a share. Four weeks later, the stock closed as high as $69, creating a market valuation of over $3.5 billion. Not bad for an enterprise that had 
sold products for less than nine months, had fewer than 500 employees, offered no hope of investor dividends for years, if not decades, and deliberately planned to lose hundreds of millions of dollars before turning a single dollar of profit. What rationale did people use to justify these rather extraordinary numbers? New technology will change everything, the logic went. The Internet is going to completely revolutionize all businesses, the gurus chanted. It's the great Internet land grab. Be there first, be there fast, build market share, no matter how expensive, and you win, yelled the entrepreneurs. We entered a remarkable moment in history when the whole idea of trying to build a great company seemed, well, quaint and outdated. Built to flip rather than built to last became the mantra of the day. Just tell people you were doing something, anything, connected with the Internet, and presto, you became rich by flipping shares to the public, even if you had no profits or even a real company. Why take all the hard steps to go from build-up to breakthrough, creating a model that actually works when you could yell, new technology, or yell, new economy, and convince people to give you hundreds of millions of dollars? Some entrepreneurs didn't even bother to suggest that they would build a real company at all, much less a great one. One even filed to go public in March of 2000 with an enterprise that consisted solely of an informational website and a business plan. Nothing more. The entrepreneur admitted to the industry standard that it seemed strange to go public before starting a business, but that didn't stop him from trying to persuade investors to buy 1.1 million shares at $7 to $9 per share, despite having no revenues, no employees, no customers, no company. With the new technology of the Internet, who needs all those archaic relics of the old economy? Or so the logic of the times went. At the high point of this frenzy, Drugstore.com issued its challenge to Walgreens. At first, Walgreens stock suffered from the invasion of the dot-coms, losing over 40% of its price in the months leading up to the Drugstore.com public offering. Wrote Forbes magazine in October 1999, Investors seem to think that the web race will be won by competitors who hit the ground running. Companies like Drugstore.com, which trades at 398 times revenue. That's not 398 times profits, because there were no profits. 398 times revenue, rather than Walgreen, trading at 1.4 times revenue. Analysts downgraded Walgreen's stock and the pressure on Walgreens to react to the Internet threat increased as nearly $15 billion in market value evaporated. Walgreens' response in the midst of this frenzy? We're a crawl, walk, run company, Dan Jorn told Forbes in describing his deliberate, methodical approach to the Internet. Instead of reacting like Chicken Little, Walgreens executives did something quite unusual for the time. They decided to pause and reflect. They decided to use their brains. They decided to think. Slow at first, crawl. Walgreens began experimenting with a website while engaging in intense internal dialogue and debate about its implications within the context of its own peculiar hedgehog. How will the Internet connect to our convenience concept? 
How can we tie it to our economic denominator of profit per customer visit? How can we use the web to enhance what we do better than any other company in the world and in a way that we're passionate about? Throughout, Walgreens executives embrace the Stockdale paradox. We have complete faith that we can prevail in an internet world as a great company. Yet, we must also confront the brutal facts of reality about the internet. One Walgreens executive told us a fun little story about this remarkable moment in history. An internet leader made a statement about Walgreens along the lines of, Oh, Walgreens. They're too old and stodgy for the internet world. They'll be left behind. The Walgreens people, while irked by this arrogant comment from the internet elite, never seriously considered a public response. Said one executive, Let's quietly go about doing what we need to do, and it'll become clear soon enough that they just pulled the tail of the wrong dog. Then a little faster, walk. Walgreens began to find ways to tie the internet directly to its sophisticated inventory and distribution model and ultimately its convenience concept. Fill your prescription online, pop into your car, and go to your local Walgreens drive through in whatever city you happen to be in at the moment. Zoom past the window with hardly a moment's pause, picking up your bottle of, well, whatever. Or have it shipped to you if that's more convenient. There was no manic lurching about, no hype, no bravado. Just calm, deliberate, pursuit of understanding, followed by calm, deliberate, steps forward. Then finally, run. Walgreens bet big, launching an internet site as sophisticated and well-designed as most pure dot-coms. Just before writing this chapter in October of 2000, we went online to use Walgreens.com. We found it as easy to use, and the system of delivery largely as reliable and well-thought-out as Amazon.com, which was then the reigning champion of e-commerce. Precisely one year after the Forbes article, Walgreens had figured out how to harness the internet to accelerate momentum making it just that much more unstoppable. It announced, on its website in fact, a significant increase in job openings to support its sustained growth. From its low point in 1999 at the depths of the dot-com scare, Walgreens stock nearly doubled within a year. And what of drugstore.com? Continuing to accumulate massive losses, it announced a layoff to conserve cash. At its high point, a little more than a year earlier, Drugstore.com traded at a price 26 times higher than at the time of this writing. It had lost nearly all of its initial value. While Walgreens went from crawl to walk to run, Drugstore.com went from run to walk to crawl. Perhaps Drugstore.com will figure out a sustainable model that works and become a great company, But it will not become great because of snazzy technology, internet hype, and an irrational stock market. It will only become a great company if it figures out how to apply technology to a coherent concept that reflects understanding of the three circles of a hedgehog concept. Now you might be thinking, but the internet frenzy is just a speculative bubble that burst. So what? Everyone knew that the bubble was unsustainable that it just couldn't last, what does that teach us about good to great? To be clear, the point of this chapter has little to do with the specifics of the internet bubble per se. Bubbles come and bubbles go. 
It happened with the railroads. It happened with electricity. It happened with the radio. It happened with the personal computer. It happened with the internet. And it will happen again with unforeseen new technologies. Yet, throughout all of this change, great companies have adapted and endured. Indeed, most of the truly great companies of the last 100 years, from Walmart to Walgreens, from Procter & Gamble to Kimberly-Clark, from Merck to Abbott, trace their roots back through multiple generations of technology change, be it electricity, the television, or the Internet. They've adapted before and emerged great. The best ones will adapt again. Technology-induced change, it's nothing new. The real question is not, what is the role of technology? Rather, the real question is, how do good to great organizations think differently about technology? Not what do they do, but what do they think? We could have predicted that Walgreens would eventually figure out the Internet. The company had a history of making huge investments in technology long before other companies in its industry. In the early 1980s, it pioneered a massive network system called Intercom. The idea was simple. By linking all Walgreens stores electronically and sending customer data to a central source, it turned every Walgreens outlet in the country into a customer's local pharmacy. You live in Florida but you're visiting Phoenix. You need to get a prescription refill. No problem. The Phoenix store is linked to the central system and it's just like going down to your hometown Walgreens store. This might seem mundane by today's standards, but when Walgreens made the investment in Intercom in the late 1970s, no one else in the industry had anything like it. Eventually, Walgreens invested over $400 million in Intercom, including $100 million for its own satellite system. Touring the Intercom headquarters, dubbed Earth Station Walgreen, is like taking a trip through a NASA space center with its stunning array of sophisticated electronic gadgetry, wrote a trade journal. Walgreen's technical staff became skilled at maintaining every piece of technology rather than relying on outside specialists. And it didn't stop there. Walgreen's pioneered the application of scanners, robotics, computerized inventory control, and advanced warehouse tracking systems. The Internet, well, it's just one more step in a continuous pattern. Walgreens didn't adopt all of this advanced technology just for the sake of advanced technology or in fearful reaction to falling behind. No, it used technology as a tool to accelerate momentum after hitting breakthrough and tied technology directly to its hedgehog concept of convenient drugstores increasing profit per customer visit. As an interesting aside, as technology became increasingly sophisticated in the late 1990s, Walgreens CIO, Chief Information Officer, was a registered pharmacist by training, not a technology guru. Walgreens remained resolutely clear its hedgehog concept would drive its use of technology, not the other way around. The Walgreens case reflects a general pattern. In every good to great case, we did find technological sophistication. However, it was never 
technology per se, but the pioneering application of carefully selected technologies. Every good to great company became a pioneer in the application of technology, but the technologies themselves varied greatly. On page 150 of the hardcover edition of Good to Great, I have listed all of the pioneering applications of technologies that stand out in each of the Good to Great companies. Kroger, for example, was an early pioneer in the application of barcode scanners, which helped it accelerate past A&P by linking frontline purchases to backroom inventory management. This might not sound very exciting. Inventory management is not something that tends to rivet readers. But think of it this way. Imagine walking back into the warehouse and instead of seeing boxes of cereal and crates of apples, you see stacks and stacks of dollar bills. Hundreds of thousands and millions of freshly minted crisp and crinkly dollar bills just sitting there on pallets, piled high to the ceiling. That's how you should think of inventory. Every single case of canned carrots is not just a case of canned carrots. It's cash. And it's cash just sitting there useless until you sell that case of canned carrots. Now recall how Kroger systematically shed its dreary old and small grocery stores, replacing them with nice, big, shiny superstores. To get this done required more than $9 billion dollars of investment. Cash, nine billion dollars of cash that would somehow have to be pulled out of the low margin grocery business. To put this in perspective, Kroger put more than twice its annual profits into capital expenditures on average every year for 30 years. Even more impressive, despite taking on 5.5 billion dollars of junk bond debt to pay a one-time $40 per share cash dividend, plus an $8 debenture to fight off corporate raiders in 1988, Kroger continued its cash-intensive revamping throughout the 1980s and 1990s. Kroger modernized and turned over all its stores, improved the customer shopping experience, radically expanded the variety of products offered, and paid off billions of dollars in debt. Kroger's use of scanning technology to take hundreds of millions of crisp and crinkly dollar bills out of the warehouse and put them to better use became a key element in its ability to pull off its magic trick, pulling not one, not two, but three rabbits out of a hat. Gillette also became a pioneer in the application of technology, but Gillette's technology accelerators lay largely in manufacturing technology. Think about the technology required to make billions, literally billions, of low-cost, high-tolerance razor blades. When you and I pick up a Gillette razor, we expect the blade to be perfect, and we expect it to be inexpensive. For example, to create the sensor, Gillette invested over $200 million in design and development, most of it focused on manufacturing breakthroughs, and earned 29 patents. It pioneered the application of laser welding, on a mass scale to shaving systems. It's a technology normally used for expensive and sophisticated products like heart pacemakers. The whole key to Gillette's shaving systems lay in manufacturing technology so unique, so proprietary that Gillette protected it the way Coca-Cola protects its secret formula.
complete with armed guards and security clearances. Technology as an accelerator, not a creator of momentum. When Jim Johnson became chief executive of Fannie Mae following David Maxwell, he and his leadership team hired a consulting firm to conduct a technology audit. The lead consultant, Bill Kelvey, used a four-level ranking, with four being cutting edge and one being stone age. Fannie Mae ranked only a two. So following the principle of first two, Kelvey was hired to move the company ahead. When Kelvey came to Fannie Mae in 1990, the company lagged about 10 years behind Wall Street in the use of technology. Over the next five years, Kelvey systematically took Fannie Mae from a 2 to a 3.8 on the 4-point ranking. He and his team created over 300 computer applications, including sophisticated analytical programs to control the $600 billion mortgage portfolio, online data warehouses covering 60 million properties, and streamlined workflows, significantly reducing paper and clerical effort. We moved technology out of the back office and harnessed it to transform every part of the business, said Calvi. We created an expert system that lowers the cost of becoming a homeowner. Lenders using our technology reduced the loan approval time from 30 days to 30 minutes and lowered the associated costs by over $1,000 per loan. To date, when we wrote the book in year 2000, the system had saved home buyers nearly $4 billion. Notice something. The Fannie Mae transition began in 1981 with the arrival of David Maxwell. Yet, the company lagged behind in the application of technology until the early 1990s, a decade later. Yes, technology became of prime importance to Fannie Mae, but only after it discovered its hedgehog concept and after it reached breakthrough. Technology was a key part of what Fannie Mae leaders called the second wind of the transformation and acted as an accelerating factor. The same pattern holds for Kroger, Gillette, Walgreens, in fact, all the good to great companies. The pioneering application of technology came late in the transition and never at the start. We get now to the punchline of this chapter. When used right, technology becomes an accelerator of momentum, not a creator of momentum. The good to great companies never began their transitions with pioneering technology. For the simple reason that you cannot make good use of technology until you know which technologies are relevant. And which are those? Those and only those that link directly to the three intersecting circles of the hedgehog concept. To make technology productive in a transformation from good to great means asking the following questions. Does the technology fit directly with your hedgehog concept? If yes, then you need to become a pioneer in the application of that technology. If no, then ask, do you need this technology at all? If you need the technology at a base level, then all you need is parity. You don't necessarily need the world's most advanced phone system to be a great company. 
If the technology is irrelevant, then you can ignore it. We came to see the pioneering application of technology as just one more way in which the good to great companies remained disciplined within the frame of their hedgehog concept. Conceptually, their relationship to technology is no different from their relationship to any other category of decisions. Disciplined people who engage in disciplined thought and who then take disciplined action. If a technology doesn't fit squarely within the three circles, they ignore all the hype and fear and just go about their business with a remarkable degree of equanimity. However, once they understand which technologies are relevant, which technologies fit with the hedgehog, which technologies tie to the three circles, they became fanatical and creative in the application of those specific technologies. In the comparison companies, by contrast, we found only three cases of pioneering in the application of technology. Those three cases, Chrysler, Harris, and Rubbermaid, were all unsustained comparisons, which demonstrates that technology alone cannot create sustained great results. Chrysler, for instance, made superb use of advanced computer-aided and other design technologies, but it failed to link those technologies to a consistent hedgehog concept. As Chrysler strayed outside the three circles in the mid-1980s, from Gulfstream jets to Italian sports cars, no advanced technology by itself could save the company from another massive downturn. Technology without a clear hedgehog concept and without the discipline to stay in the three circles cannot make a company great. Two incidents stood out in my mind as I wrote this chapter. The first is Time Magazine's selection in 1999 of Albert Einstein as Person of the 20th Century. If you frame the Person of the Century selection around the question, how different would the world be today if that person had not existed? The choice of Einstein is perhaps surprising, compared to leaders like Churchill, Hitler, Stalin, and Gandhi, people who truly changed the course of human history, for better or worse. Physicists point out that the scientific community would have reached an understanding of relativity with or without Einstein, perhaps five years later, certainly ten, but not fifty. The Nazis never got the bomb, and the Allies would have won the Second World War without it, although it would have cost more Allied lives. So why did Time pick Einstein? In explaining their selection, Time editors wrote, It's hard to compare the influence of statesmen with that of scientists. Nevertheless, we can note that there are certain eras that were most defined by their politics, others by their culture, and others by their scientific advances. So how will the 20th century be remembered? Yes, for democracy, and yes, for civil rights. But the 20th century will be most remembered for its earth-shaking advances in science and technology, which advanced the cause of freedom in some ways more than any statesman did. In a century that will be remembered foremost for its science and technology, one person stands out as the paramount icon of our age, Albert Einstein. The Time editors didn't pick the person of the century so much as they picked the theme of the century, technology and science, and attached the most famous person to it. 
Interestingly, just a few days before the Einstein announcement, Time announced its Person of the Year for 1999. Who did it pick? None other than the poster child of e-commerce, Jeff Bezos of Amazon.com. Reflecting yet again our cultural obsession with technology-driven change. Let me be clear. I neither agree nor disagree with Time's choices. I simply find them interesting and illuminating because they give us a window into our modern psyche. Clearly, a key item on our collective mind is technology and its implication. Which brings me to a second incident. Taking a short break from the rigors of writing this book, I traveled to Minnesota to teach sessions at the Master's Forum. The Master's Forum has held executive seminars for nearly 15 years. I was curious to know which themes appeared repeatedly over those years. One of the consistent themes, said Jim Erickson and Patty Griffin, Jensen program directors, is technology, change, and the connection between the two. Why do you suppose that is, I asked. People don't know what they don't know, they said, and they're always afraid that some new technology is going to sneak up on them from behind, knock them on the head. They don't understand technology, and many fear it. All they know for sure is that technology is an important force and that they'd better pay attention to it. Given our culture's obsession with technology and given the pioneering application of technology in the good-to-great companies, you might expect that technology would absorb a significant portion of the discussion in our interviews with the good-to-great executives. Well, you might expect that, and we did, but we were quite surprised to find the opposite. Fully 80% of the good-to-great executives we interviewed didn't even mention technology as one of the top five factors in the transition. Furthermore, in the cases where they did mention technology, it had a median ranking of fourth out of five, with only two executives of 84 people we interviewed ranking at number one. If technology is so vitally important, why did the good to great executives talk so little about it? Certainly not because they ignored technology. They were technologically sophisticated and, in fact, vastly superior to their comparisons. Furthermore, a number of the good-to-great companies received extensive media coverage and awards for their pioneering use of technology. Yet the executives themselves hardly talked about technology. It's as if the media articles and the executives were discussing two totally different sets of companies. Nucor, for example, became widely known as one of the most aggressive pioneers in the application of mini-mill steel manufacturing, with dozens of articles and two books that celebrated its bold investments in continuous thin-slab casting and electric arc furnaces. Nucor became a cornerstone case at business schools as an example of unseating the old order through the advanced application of new technologies. But... When we asked Ken Iverson, CEO of Nucor during its transition, to name the top five factors in the shift from good to great, where on the list do you think he put technology? First? Nope. Second? Nope. Third? Nope. Fourth? Not even. Fifth? Sorry, 
but no. The primary factors, said Ken Iverson, were the consistency of the company and our ability to project its philosophies throughout the whole organization, enabled by our lack of layers and bureaucracy. Stop and think about this for a minute. Here we have a consummate case study of upending the old order with new technology. That's what Nucor was known for. It's what it was taught about in business schools. And yet the chief executive who made it happen doesn't even list technology in the top five factors in the shift from good to great. The same pattern continued throughout the Nucor interviews. Of the seven key executives and board members we interviewed, only one picked technology as the number one factor in the shift, and most focused on other factors. A few executives did talk about Nucor's big bets on technology somewhere in the interview, but they emphasized other factors even more. Getting people with that farmer work ethic on the bus, getting the right people in key management positions, the simple structure, lack of bureaucracy, the relentless performance culture that increases profit per ton of finished steel. Technology was part of the Nucor equation, but a secondary part. One Nucor executive summed up, 20% of our business is the new technology that we embrace, but 80% of our success is in the culture of our company. You could have given the exact same technology at the exact same time to any number of companies with the exact same resources as Nucor, and even still, they would have failed to deliver Nucor's results. Like the Daytona 500, the primary variable in winning is not the car, but the driver and his team. Not that the car is unimportant, but the car is secondary. Mediocrity results first and foremost from management failure, not technological failure. Bethlehem Steel's difficulties have less to do with the mini-mill technology and more to do with its history of adversarial labor relations, which ultimately had its roots in unenlightened and ineffective management. Bethlehem had already begun its long slide before Nucor and the other mini-mills had taken significant market share. In fact, by the time Nucor made its technological breakthrough with continuous thin slab casting in 1986, Bethlehem had already lost more than 80% of its value relative to the market. This is not to say that technology played no role in Bethlehem's demise. Technology did play a role, and ultimately a significant one. But technology's role was as an accelerator of Bethlehem's demise, not the cause. Again, it's the same principle at work. Technology as an accelerator, not a cause. Only in this comparison case, the principle operates in reverse. When we examined the comparison companies, we did not find a single example of a comparison company's demise coming primarily from a technology torpedo that blew it out of the water. Not one. R.J. Reynolds lost its position as the number one tobacco company in the world, not because of technology, but because RJR management thrashed about with undisciplined diversification and later went on a let's make management rich at the expense of the company buyout binge. A&P 
fell from the second largest company in America to irrelevant, not because it lagged behind Kroger in scanning technology, but because it lacked the discipline to confront the brutal facts of reality about the changing nature of grocery stores. The evidence from our study does not support the idea that technological change plays the principal role in the decline of once great companies or the perpetual mediocrity of others. Certainly technology is important. You can't remain a laggard and hope to be great. But technology by itself is never a primary cause of either greatness or decline. Throughout business history, early technology pioneers rarely prevail in the end. VisiCalc, for example, was the first major personal computer spreadsheet. Where is VisiCalc today? Do you know anyone who uses it? And what of the company that pioneered it? Gone. Doesn't even exist. VisiCalc eventually lost out to Lotus 123, which itself lost out to Excel. Lotus then went into a tailspin, saved only by selling out to IBM. The first portable computers came from now-dead companies such as Osborne Computers. Today, we primarily use portables from companies such as Dell and Sony. This pattern of the second or third or fourth follower prevailing over the early trailblazers shows up through the entire history of technological and economic change. IBM did not have the early leading computers. It lagged so far behind Remington Rand, which had the Univac, the first commercially successful large-scale computer, that people called IBM's first computer IBM's Univac. Boeing did not pioneer the commercial jet. De Havilland did, with the Comet, but lost ground when one of its early jets exploded in midair. Not exactly a good brand-building moment. Boeing slowed to market, invested in making the safest, most reliable jets, and dominated the airways for over three decades. I could go on for pages. GE did not pioneer the AC electrical system. Westinghouse did. Palm Computing did not pioneer the personal digital assistant. Apple did, with its high-profile Newton. AOL did not pioneer the consumer internet community. CompuServe, Prodigy, they did. We could make a long list of companies that were technology leaders, but that failed to prevail in the end as great companies. It would be a fascinating list in itself, but all the examples would underscore a basic truth. Technology cannot turn a good company into a great one, nor by itself prevent disaster. History teaches this lesson repeatedly. Consider the United States debacle in Vietnam. The United States had the most technologically advanced fighting force the world has ever known. Super fighter jets, helicopter gunships, advanced weapons, computers, sophisticated communications, miles of high-tech border sensors. Indeed, the reliance on technology created a false sense of invulnerability. The Americans lacked not technology, but a simple and coherent concept for the war on which to attach that technology. It lurched back and forth across a variety of ineffective strategies, never getting the upper hand. Meanwhile, the technologically inferior North Vietnamese forces adhered to a simple, coherent concept, a guerrilla war of attrition, aimed at methodically wearing down public support for the war at home.
What little technology the North Vietnamese did employ, such as the AK-47 rifle, much more reliable and easier to maintain in the field than the complicated M16, linked directly to that simple concept. And in the end, as you know, the United States, despite all its technological sophistication, did not succeed in Vietnam. If you ever find yourself thinking that technology alone holds the key to success, then think again of Vietnam. Thoughtless reliance on technology is a liability, not an asset. Yes, when used right, when linked to a simple, clear, and coherent concept rooted in deep understanding, technology is an essential driver in accelerating forward momentum. But when used wrong, when grasped as an easy solution without deep understanding of how it links to a clear and coherent concept, technology simply accelerates your own self-created demise. Technology and the fear of being left behind. The research team ferociously debated whether this topic merited its own chapter. There must be a technology chapter, said Scott Jones. We're bombarded by the importance of technology these days at the business school. If we don't address it, we'll leave a huge hole in the book. But it seems to me, countered Brian Larson, that our technology finding is not just a special case of disciplined action. It belongs in the previous chapter. Disciplined action means staying within the three circles. That's the essence of the technology finding. True, but it's a very special case, pointed out Scott Cedarberg. Every one of the companies became extreme pioneers in the application of technology long before the rest of the world became technology-obsessed. I, I think it needs to be in there. But compared to the other findings like Level 5, the Hedgehog concept, First 2, eh, technology just feels like a much smaller issue, responded Amber Young. I agree with Brian. Technology is important, but as a subset of discipline, or perhaps the flywheel, but not a concept on its own. We argued throughout the summer. Then Chris Jones, in her typically quiet and thoughtful way, asked a key question. Why? Why did the good-to-great companies maintain such a balanced perspective on technology when most companies become reactionary, lurching and running about like Chicken Little, as we're seeing with the Internet? Why indeed? Chris's question led us to an essential difference between great companies and good companies, a difference that has ultimately, at least in my mind, tipped the balance of including this chapter. If you had the opportunity to sit down and read all 2,000-plus pages of transcripts from the good-to-great interviews, you'd be struck by the utter absence of talk about competitive strategy. Yes, they did talk about strategy. And they did talk about performance. And they did talk about becoming the best. And they even talked about winning. But they never talked in reactionary terms and never defined their strategies principally in response to what others were doing. They talked in terms of what they were trying to create and how they were trying to improve relative to an absolute standard of excellence. When we asked George Harvey to describe his motivation for bringing change to Pitney Bowes in the 1980s, he said, I've always wanted to see Pitney Bowes as a great company. Let's start with that, all right? Let's just start there. 
That's a given. It needs no justification or explanation. We're not there today. We won't be there tomorrow. There is always so much more to create for greatness in an ever-changing world. Or, as Wayne Sanders summed up about the ethos that came to typify the inner workings of Kimberly Clark, we're just never satisfied. We can be delighted, but never satisfied. Those who built the good to great companies weren't motivated by fear. They weren't driven by fear of what they didn't understand. They weren't driven by fear of looking like a chump. They weren't driven by fear of watching others hit it big. Well, they didn't. They weren't driven by the fear of being hammered by the competition. Those who turn good into great are motivated by a deep creative urge and an inner compulsion for sheer, unadulterated excellence for its own sake. Those who build and perpetuate mediocrity, in contrast, are more motivated by fear, the fear of being left behind. Never was there a better example of this difference than during the technology bubble of the late 1990s, which happened to take place right smack in the middle of the research on good to great. It served as an almost perfect stage to watch the difference between great and good play itself out, as the great ones responded like Walgreens, with calm equanimity and quiet, deliberate steps forward. Well, mediocre ones, they lurched about in fearful, frantic, chicken-little reaction. The big point of this chapter is not about technology per se, no technology, no matter how amazing, not computers, not telecommunications, not robotics, not the internet, can by itself ignite a shift from good to great. No technology can make you level five. No technology can turn the wrong people into the right people. No technology can instill the discipline to confront the brutal facts. No technology can instill unwavering faith. No technology can supplant the need for deep understanding of the three circles. No technology can drive you to that simple crystalline understanding of a hedgehog concept. No technology can create a culture of discipline. No technology can instill the simple inner belief that leaving unrealized potential on the table, letting something remain good when it can become great, is a secular sin. Those that stay true to these fundamentals and maintain their balance even in times of great change and disruption will accumulate the momentum that creates breakthrough momentum. Those that do not, those that fall into reactionary lurching about, will spiral downward and remain mediocre. This is the big picture difference between great and good. The gestalt of the whole study captured in the metaphor of the flywheel versus the doom loop. And it is to that overarching contrast that we will turn in the next chapter. Chapter Summary, Technology Accelerators The good to great organizations think differently about technology and technological change than mediocre ones. Good to great companies avoid technology fads and bandwagons. Yet, paradoxically, they also become pioneers. 
in the application of carefully selected technology. The key question about any technology is, does the technology fit directly with your hedgehog concept? If yes, then you need to become a pioneer in the application of that technology. If no, then you can settle for parity or perhaps even ignore it entirely. The good to great companies use technology as an accelerator of momentum, not a creator of momentum. None of the good to great companies began their transformations with pioneering technology, yet they all became pioneers in the application of technology once they grasped how it fit with the three circles and after they'd hit breakthrough. You could have taken the exact same leading-edge technologies pioneered at the good to great companies and handed them to the comparison companies for free. Here, have it. You have it. Take it. And the comparison companies still would have failed to produce the same results. How a company reacts to technological change is a good indicator of its inner drive for greatness. Great companies respond with thoughtfulness and creativity, driven by that productive neurosis, a compulsion to turn unrealized potential into results. Mediocre companies react and lurch about, motivated by the fear of being left behind. Some unexpected findings. The whole idea that technological change is the principal cause in the decline of once great companies is simply not supported by the evidence. Certainly a company can't remain a laggard and hope to be great, but technology by itself is never a primary root cause of either greatness or decline. Across 84 interviews with good to great executives, fully 80% didn't even bother to mention technology as one of the top five factors in the transformation. This is true even in companies famous for their pioneering application of technology, such as Nucor. And finally, crawl, walk, run can be a very effective approach even and perhaps especially during times of rapid and radical technological change. flywheel, and the doom loop. Revolution means turning the wheel. Igor Stravinsky. Picture a huge heavy flywheel, a massive metal disc mounted horizontally on an axle, about 30 feet in diameter, 2 feet thick, and weighing about 5,000 pounds. Now imagine that your task is to get the flywheel rotating on the axle as fast and long as possible. Pushing with great effort, you get the flywheel to inch forward, moving almost imperceptibly at first. You keep pushing, and after two or three hours of persistent effort, you get the flywheel to complete one entire turn. 
you keep pushing, and the flywheel begins to move a bit faster, and with continued great effort, you move it around a second rotation. You keep pushing in an intelligent, consistent direction. Three turns, four turns, five, six, the flywheel builds up speed. Seven, eight, you keep pushing. Nine, ten, builds momentum. Eleven, twelve, moving faster with each turn. Twenty, thirty, fifty, a hundred, a thousand. Then, at some point, breakthrough. The momentum of the thing kicks in your favor, hurling the flywheel forward, turn after turn, whoosh, its own heavyweight working for you. You're pushing no harder than during the first rotation, but the flywheel goes faster and faster. Each turn of the flywheel builds upon work done earlier, compounding your investment of effort. A thousand times faster, then ten thousand, then a hundred thousand, the huge heavy disc flies forward with almost unstoppable momentum. Now, suppose someone came along and asked, so what was the one big push that caused this thing to go so fast? You wouldn't be able to answer. It's just a nonsense question. Was it the first push? The second? The fifth? The hundredth? No, it was all of them. All of them added together in an overall accumulation of effort applied in a consistent direction. Sure, some pushes may have been larger than other pushes, but any single heave, no matter how large, reflects a small fraction of the entire cumulative effect on the flywheel. Build up and breakthrough. The flywheel image captures the overall feel of what it was like inside the companies as they went from good to great. No matter how dramatic the end result, the good to great transformations never happened in one fell swoop. There was no single defining action, no grand program, no one killer innovation, no solitary lucky break, no wrenching revolution. Good to great comes about by a cumulative process, step by step, action by action, decision by decision, turn by turn of the flywheel. That adds up to sustained and spectacular results. Yet to read the media accounts of the companies, you might draw an entirely different conclusion. Often the media does not cover a company until the flywheel is already turning at a thousand RPMs per minute. This entirely skews our perception of how such transformations happen, making it seem as if they jumped right to breakthrough as some sort of an overnight metamorphosis. On August 27, 1984, Forbes magazine published an article on Circuit City. It was the first national-level profile ever published on the company. It wasn't that big of an article, just two pages, and it questioned whether Circuit City's recent growth could continue. Still, there it was, the first public acknowledgement that Circuit City had broken through. The journalist had just identified a hot new company, almost like an overnight success story. This particular overnight success story, however, had been more than a decade in the making. Alan Wurzel had inherited CEO responsibility from his father in 1973, with the firm close to bankruptcy. First, he rebuilt his executive team and undertook an objective look at the brutal facts, both internal and external. In 1974, still struggling with a crushing debt load, Wurzel and his team began to experiment with a warehouse showroom style of retailing, large inventories of name brands, discount pricing, and immediate delivery. 
and they built a prototype of this model in Richmond, Virginia to sell appliances. In 1976, the company began to experiment with selling consumer electronics in that warehouse showroom concept. And in 1977, it transformed the concept into the first ever Circuit City store. The concept met with success, and the company began to systematically convert its stereo stores into Circuit City stores. In 1982, with nine years of accumulated turns on the flywheel, Wurzel and his team committed fully to the concept of the Circuit City Superstore. Over the next five years, as it shifted entirely to the concept, Circuit City generated the highest total return to shareholders of any company on the New York Stock Exchange. From 1982 to 1999, Circuit City generated stock returns 22 times better than the market, handily beating Intel, Walmart, GE, Hewlett-Packard, and Coca-Cola. We shouldn't be surprised that Circuit City then found itself a prime subject for media attention. Whereas we found no articles of any significance in the decade leading up to that transition point, we found 97 articles worth examining in the decade after the transition, 22 of them significant pieces. It's as if the company hadn't even existed prior to that, despite having traded on a major stock exchange since 1968, and despite the remarkable progress made by Wurzel and his team in the decade leading up to that breakthrough point. The Circuit City experience reflects a common pattern. In case after case, we found fewer articles in the decade leading up to the point of the transition than in the decade after, by an average factor of nearly three times. For example, Ken Iverson and Sam Siegel began turning the new core flywheel in 1965. For 10 years, no one paid any attention, certainly not the financial press or even the other steel companies. If you'd asked executives at Bethlehem Steel or U.S. Steel about the new core threat in 1970, they would have laughed, if they even recognized the company name, which is doubtful. By 1975, the year of its transition point on the stock chart, Nucor had already built its third mini-mill, long established its culture of productivity, and was well on the way to becoming the most profitable steel company in America. Yet, the first major article in Business Week did not appear until 1978, 13 years after the start of the transition. 13 years! and not in fortune until 16 years out. From 1965 to 1975, we found only 11 articles on Nucor, none of them significant. Then, from 1976 through 1995, we collected 96 articles on Nucor, 40 of them being major profiles or nationally prominent features. You're probably thinking, but we should expect that. Of course, these companies would get more coverage after they became wildly successful. What's so important about that? Here's what's important. We've allowed the way transitions look from the outside to drive our perception of what they must feel like to those going through them on the inside. From the outside, they look like a dramatic, almost revolutionary breakthrough. But from the inside, they feel completely different, more like an organic development process. Picture an egg just sitting there. No one pays it much attention until one day 
The egg cracks open and out jumps a chicken. All the major magazines and newspapers jump on the event writing feature stories. Transformation of egg to chicken. Remarkable revolution of the egg. Stunning turnaround at egg. As if the egg had undergone some overnight metamorphosis radically altering itself into a chicken. But what does it look like from the chicken's point of view? It's a completely different story. While the world ignored this dormant-looking egg, the chicken was evolving, growing, developing, incubating. From the chicken's point of view, cracking the egg is simply one more step in a long chain of steps leading up to that moment. A big step, to be sure, but hardly the radical, single-step transformation it looks like to those watching from outside the egg. You might think it's a silly analogy, but I'm using it to highlight a very important finding from our research. We kept thinking that we'd find the one big thing, the miracle moment that defined breakthrough. We even pushed for it in our interviews. But the good to great executives simply could not pinpoint a single key event or moment in time that exemplified the transition. Sometimes they even chafed against the whole idea of allocating points and prioritizing factors. In every good to great company, at least one of the interviewees gave an unprompted admonishment, saying something along the lines of, Look, you can't dissect this thing into a series of nice little boxes and factors, or identify the moment of aha, or the one big thing. It was a whole bunch of interlocking pieces that built one upon another. Got it? Even in the most dramatic case in our study, Kimberly Clark selling the mills, the executives described an organic cumulative process. Darwin did not change the direction of the company overnight, said one Kimberly executive. He evolved it over time. The transition wasn't like night and day, said another. It was gradual, and I don't think it was entirely clear to everybody until a few years into it. Of course, selling the mills was a gigantic push on the flywheel, but it was only one push. After selling the mills, the full transformation into the number one paper-based consumer products company required thousands of additional pushes on the flywheel, big and small, accumulated one on top of another. It took years to gain enough momentum for the press to openly herald Kimberly Clark's shift from good to great. Forbes magazine wrote, When Kimberly Clark decided to go head-to-head against Procter & Gamble, This magazine predicted disaster. What a dumb idea. As it turns out, it wasn't a dumb idea. It was a smart idea. The amount of time between the two Forbes articles, the one that predicted disaster and the one that said it wasn't a disaster? 21 years. While working on the project, we made a habit of asking executives who visited our research laboratory what they wanted to know from the research. One CEO asked, what did they call what they were doing? Did they have a name for it? How did they talk about it at the time? Isn't that a wonderful question? We went back to look. The astounding answer. You want to know what they called it at the time? They didn't call it anything. The good to great companies had no name for their transformations. There was no launch event. No tagline, no programmatic feel whatsoever. Some said they weren't even aware 
They weren't even aware that a major transformation was underway until they were well into it. It was at times more obvious to them after the fact than at the time. Then it began to dawn on us. There was no miracle moment. Although it may have looked like a single-stroke breakthrough to those peering in from the outside, it was anything but that to people experiencing the transformation from within. Rather, it was a quiet, deliberate process of figuring out what needed to be done to create the best future results and then simply taking those steps, one after another, turn by turn of the flywheel. After pushing on that flywheel in a consistent direction over an extended period of time, they'd hit a point of breakthrough. When we read this paragraph, we noted its applicability to our study and decided to adopt these terms in describing the good to great companies. I'd like to share with you a series of representative quotes from the interviews that illustrate this whole idea of no miracle moment in good to great. As you listen to these, let them just wash over you as you hear executives talking about what it felt like to go through the transitions. Abbott Laboratories. It wasn't a blinding flash or a sudden revelation from above. Our change was a major change, and yet, in many respects, simply a series of incremental changes. This is what made the change successful. We did this in a nice stepwise way. And there was always a lot of common denominators between what we had already mastered and what we were embarking on. Circuit City. The transition to focus on the Superstore didn't happen overnight. We first considered the concept in 1974, but we didn't convert fully to Circuit City Superstores until about 10 years later, after we'd refined the concept and built enough momentum to bet our whole future on it. Fannie Mae. There was no one magical event, no one turning point. It was a combination of things, more of an evolution, though the end results were dramatic. Gillette. We didn't really make a big conscious decision or launch a big program to initiate a major change or transition. Individually and collectively, we were coming to conclusions about what we could do to dramatically improve our performance. Kimberly Clark, I don't think it was done as bluntly as it sounds. These things don't happen overnight. They grow. The ideas grow and mushroom and come into being. Kroger, it wasn't a flash from the blue. We all had been watching experimental superstars develop, and we were pretty well persuaded that the industry would go that way. The major thing that Lyle Everingham did was to say that we're going to change beginning now on a very deliberate basis. Nucor. We did not make a decision that this was what we stood for at any specific moment. It evolved through many agonizing arguments and fights. I am not sure that we knew exactly what we were fighting for until we looked back and said that we were fighting to establish who we were going to be. Philip Morris. It's impossible to think of one big thing that would exemplify a shift from good to great because our success was evolutionary as opposed to revolutionary. Building success upon success. I don't know that there was any single event.
Pitney Bowes. We didn't talk so much of change. We recognized early on not so much that we needed to change, but that we needed to evolve, which recognizes that we've got to do things differently. We realized that evolution is a whole different concept than change. Walgreens. There was no seminal meeting or epiphany moment. No one big bright light that came on like a light bulb. It was sort of an evolution thing. Wells Fargo. It wasn't a single switch that was thrown at one time. Little by little, the themes became more apparent and stronger. When Carl became CEO, there wasn't any great wrenching. Dick led one stage of the evolution, and Carl the next. And it just proceeded smoothly, rather than an abrupt shift. When teaching this point, I sometimes use an example from outside my research that perfectly illustrates the idea. The UCLA Bruins basketball dynasty of the 1960s and early 1970s. Most basketball fans know that the Bruins won 10 NCAA championships in 12 years under the legendary coach John Wooden. But do you know how many years Wooden coached the Bruins before his first NCAA championship? 15 years. From 1948 to 1963, Wooden worked in relative obscurity before winning his first championship in 1964. Year by year, Coach Wooden built the underlying foundations, developing a recruiting system, implementing a consistent philosophy, and refining the full-court press style of play. No one paid too much attention to the quiet, soft-spoken coach and his team until, wham, they hit breakthrough and systematically crushed every serious competitor for more than a decade. Like the Wooden dynasty, lasting transformations from good to great follow a general pattern of buildup followed by breakthrough. In some cases, the buildup to breakthrough stage takes a long time. In other cases, a shorter time. At Circuit City, the buildup stage lasted nine years. At Nucor, ten years. Whereas at Gillette, it only took five years. At Fannie Mae, only three years. And at Pitney Bowes, about two years. But no matter how short or long it took, every good to great transformation followed the same basic pattern accumulating momentum turn by turn of the flywheel until buildup transformed into breakthrough. Credit for the terms buildup and breakthrough should go to David S. Landis and his book, The Wealth and Poverty of Nations. On page 200, Landis writes, The question is really twofold. First, why and how did any country break through the crust of habit? and conventional knowledge to this new mode of production. Turning to the first, I would stress build-up, the accumulation of knowledge and know-how, and breakthrough, reaching and passing thresholds. It's important to understand that following the build-up, breakthrough, flywheel model is not just a luxury of circumstance. People who say, hey, but we've got constraints that prevent us from taking this longer-term approach, they should keep in mind that the good to great companies followed this model no matter how dire their short-term circumstances. Deregulation in the case of Wells Fargo, looming bankruptcy in the cases of Nucor and Circuit City, potential takeover threats in the cases of Gillette and Kroger, or million-dollar-a-day losses in the case of Fannie Mae. 
This also applies to managing the short-term pressures of Wall Street. I just don't agree with those who say you can't build an enduring great company because Wall Street won't let you, said David Maxwell of Fannie Mae. We communicated with the analysts to educate them on what we were doing and where we were going. At first, a lot of people didn't buy into that. You just have to accept that. But once we got through the dark days, we responded by doing better every single year. After a few years, because of our actual results, we became a hot stock and never looked back. And a hot stock it was. During Maxwell's first two years, which were in the early 1980s, the stock lagged behind the market, but then it took off. From the end of 1984 to 2000, $1 invested in Fannie Mae multiplied 64 times, beating the general market, including the NASDAQ of the late 1990s, by nearly six times. The good to great companies were subject to the same short-term pressures from Wall Street as the comparison companies. Yet, unlike the comparison companies, they had the patience and discipline to follow the build-up, breakthrough, flywheel model despite these pressures. And in the end, they attained extraordinary results by Wall Street's own measure of success. The key we learned is to harness the flywheel to manage these short-term pressures. One particularly elegant method for doing so came from Abbott Laboratories using a mechanism it called the Blue Plans. Each year, Abbott would tell Wall Street analysts that it expected to grow earnings a specified amount, say 15%. At the same time, it would set an internal goal of a much higher growth rate, say 25% or even 30%. Meanwhile, it kept a rank-ordered list of proposed entrepreneurial projects that had not yet been funded, the Blue Plans. Toward the end of the year, Abbott would pick a number that exceeded analyst expectations, but that fell short of its actual growth. It would then take the difference between the make-the-analyst-happy growth and the actual growth and channel those funds into the Blue Plans. It was a brilliant mechanism for managing short-term pressures while systematically investing in the future. We found no evidence of anything like the Blue Plans at Abbott's comparison company. Instead, executives at Upjohn would pump up the stock with a sales job, buy into our future, reverently intoning the phrase, investing for the long term, especially when the company failed to deliver current results. Upjohn continually threw money after harebrained projects like Rogaine Baldness Cure, attempting to circumvent buildup and jump right to breakthrough with a big hit. Indeed, Upjohn reminded us of a gambler, putting a lot of chips on red at Las Vegas and saying, see, we're investing in the future. Of course, when the future arrived, the promised results rarely appeared. Not surprisingly, Abbott became a consistent performer and a favorite holding on Wall Street, while Upjohn became a consistent disappointment. From 1959 to Abbott's point of breakthrough in 1974, the two stocks, Abbott and Upjohn, roughly tracked each other. Then they dramatically diverged, with Upjohn falling more than six times behind Abbott before being acquired in 1995. All the good-to-great companies effectively managed Wall Street, during their build-up breakthrough years, and they saw no contradiction between the two. They simply focused on accumulating results, often practicing the time-honored discipline of under-promising and over-delivering. 
And as the results began to accumulate, as the flywheel built momentum turn upon turn and quarter upon quarter and year upon year, the investing community came along with great enthusiasm. The good to great companies understood a simple truth. Tremendous power exists in the fact of continued improvement and the delivery of results. Point to tangible accomplishments, however incremental at first, and show how these steps fit into the context of an overall concept that will work. When you do this in such a way that people see and feel the build-up momentum, when they can feel that flywheel starting to accumulate the turns and the clicks, they will line up with enthusiasm. We came to call this the flywheel effect, and it applies not only to outside investors, but also to internal constituents. Let me share a story from the research. At a pivotal point in the study, members of the team nearly revolted. Throwing their interview notes on the table, they asked, do we have to keep asking that stupid question? Yes. Which stupid question? The one about commitment, alignment, and how they managed to change. That's not a stupid question, I replied. It's one of the most important. Well, said a team member, a lot of the executives we're interviewing from the good to great companies, well, they think it's a stupid question. Some don't even understand the question. Yes, we need to keep asking it, I said. We need to be consistent across the interviews. And besides, it's even more interesting that they don't understand the question. So keep probing. We've got to understand how they overcame resistance to change and got people lined up. I'd fully expected that getting everyone lined up, creating alignment, to use the jargon, would be one of the top challenges faced by executives working to turn good into great. After all, nearly every executive that I'd worked with at the laboratory had asked this question in one form or another. How do we get the boat turned? How do we get people committed to the new vision? How do we motivate people to line up? How do we get people to embrace change? Turns out to be the wrong questions. To my great surprise, we did not find the question of alignment to be a key challenge faced by the good to great leaders. To be clear, the good to great companies did get incredible commitment, did get alignment. They artfully managed change. But they never really spent much time thinking about it. It was utterly transparent to them. We learned that under the right conditions, the problems of commitment, alignment, motivation, change, just melt away. They largely take care of themselves. Consider Kroger. How do you get a company of over 50,000 people, cashiers, baggers, shelf stockers, produce washers, all kinds of folk, to embrace a radical new strategy that will eventually change virtually every aspect of how the company builds and runs grocery stores? The answer? You don't. Not in one big event or program, anyway. Jim Herring, the Level 5 leader who initiated the transformation at Kroger, told us that he avoided any attempts at hoopla and motivation. Instead, he and his team began turning the flywheel, creating tangible evidence that their plans made sense. Said Herring, we presented what we were doing in such a way that people saw our accomplishments. We tried to bring our plans to successful conclusion step 
by step so that the mass of people would gain confidence from the successes, not just the words. Herring understood that the way to get people lined up behind a bold new vision for the future is to turn the flywheel consistent with that vision. From two turns to four, from four to eight, to eight to sixteen, sixteen to thirty-two, sixty-four, a hundred, a thousand, and so forth, and then to say, see what we're doing and how well it's working? Extrapolate from that, and that's where we're going. The good to great companies during their transition years tended to not publicly proclaim big goals at the outset. Rather, they began to spin the flywheel, understanding turn to action, step after step, turn after turn. And after the flywheel built up momentum, they'd look up and say, hey, if we just keep pushing on this thing, there's no reason we can't accomplish X. For example, Nucor began turning the flywheel in 1965, at first just trying to avoid bankruptcy. Then later, building its first steel mills, simply because it could not find a reliable supplier. Nucor people believed that they had a knack for making steel better and cheaper than anyone else, so they built two and then three additional mini-mills. They gained customers, then more customers, then more customers. Whoosh! The flywheel built momentum. Turn by turn, month by month, year by year, you could feel this thing growing. Then, around 1975, it dawned on the Nucor people that if they just kept pushing on the flywheel, they could become the number one most profitable steel company in America. Explained Marvin Pullman, I remember talking with Ken Iverson in 1975, and he said, Marv, I think we can become the number one steel company in the United States. 1975, and I said to him, now Ken, when are you going to be number one? I don't know, he said, but if we just keep doing what we're doing, there's no reason why we can't become number one. It took over two decades. But Nucor kept pushing the flywheel, eventually generating greater profits than any other steel company on the Fortune 1000 list. When you let the flywheel do the talking, you don't need to fervently communicate your goals. People can just extrapolate from the momentum of the flywheel for themselves. Hey, if we just keep doing this, look where we can go. As people decide among themselves to turn the fact of potential into the fact of results, the goal almost sets itself. Stop and think for a minute. What do the right people want more than anything else? They want to be part of a winning team. They want to contribute to producing visible, tangible results. They want to feel the excitement of being involved in something that is just flat-out outstanding, that flat-out works. When the right people see a simple plan, hedgehog, born of confronting the brutal facts, a plan developed from understanding, not bravado, they are likely to say, that'll work, count me in. When they see the monolithic unity of the executive team behind the simple plan and the selfless, dedicated qualities of Level 5 leadership, they'll drop their cynicism. When people begin to feel the magic of momentum, when they begin to see tangible results, when they can feel that flywheel beginning to build speed, it's almost physical. That's when the bulk of people line up, throw their shoulders against the wheel, and push. The Doom Loop We found a very different pattern at the comparison companies. 
instead of that quiet, deliberate process of figuring out what needed to be done and then simply doing it, the comparison companies frequently launched new programs, often with great fanfare and hoopla aimed at motivating the troops, only to see the programs fail to produce sustained results. They sought that single defining action, the grand program, the one killer innovation, the miracle moment that would allow them to skip the arduous build-up stage and jump right to breakthrough. They would push the flywheel in one direction, then stop, change course, throw it in a new direction, and then they would stop, change course, and throw it into yet another direction. After years of lurching back and forth, the comparison companies failed to build sustained momentum and fell instead into what we came to call the doom loop. Consider the case of Warner Lambert, the direct comparison company to Gillette. In 1979, Warner Lambert told Businessweek that it aimed to be a leading consumer products company. One year later, in 1980, it did an abrupt about-face and turned its sights on healthcare, saying, Our flat-out aim is to go after Merck, Lilly, SmithKline, everyone, and his brother. In 1981, the company reversed course yet again and returned to diversification in consumer goods. Six years after that, in 1987, Warner Lambert did another U-turn, away from consumer goods, to try once again to be like Merck. At the same time, the company spent three times as much on consumer goods advertising as on R&D, a somewhat puzzling strategy for a company trying to beat Merck. In the early 1990s, reacting to Clinton-era healthcare reform, the company threw itself into reverse yet again and re-embraced diversification and consumer brands. Each new CEO brought his own new program and halted the momentum of his predecessor. Ward Hagen tried to create a breakthrough with an expensive acquisition in the hospital supply business in 1982. Three years later, his successor, Joe Williams, extracted Warner Lambert from the hospital supply business and took a $550 million write-off. He tried to focus the company on beating Merck, but his successor then threw the company back into diversification in consumer goods. And so it went, back and forth, lurch and thrash, to and fro, with each CEO trying to make a mark with his own program. From 1979 through 1998, Warner Lambert underwent three major restructurings, one per CEO, hacking away 20,000 people in search of quick breakthrough results. Time and again, the company would attain a burst of results, then slacken, never attaining the sustained momentum of a build-up breakthrough flywheel. Stock returns flattened, and Warner Lambert disappeared as an independent company swallowed up by Pfizer. The Warner Lambert case is extreme, but we found some version of the doom loop in every comparison company. While the specific permutations of the doom loop varied from company to company, there were some highly prevalent patterns, two of which deserve particular note. The misguided use of acquisitions and the selection of leaders who undid the work of previous generations. Peter Drucker once observed 
that the drive for mergers and acquisitions comes less from sound reasoning and more from the fact that doing deals is a more exciting way to spend your day than doing actual work. Indeed, the comparison companies would have well understood the popular bumper sticker from the 1980s. When the going gets tough, we go shopping. To understand the role of acquisitions in the process of going from good to great, we undertook a systematic qualitative and quantitative analysis of all acquisitions and divestitures in all the companies in our study from 10 years before the transition date through 1998. While we noticed no particular pattern in the amount or scale of acquisitions, we did note a significant difference in the success rate of acquisitions in the good-to-great companies versus the comparisons. Why did the good-to-great companies have a substantially higher success rate with acquisitions, especially major acquisitions? The key to their success was that their big acquisitions generally took place after development of the hedgehog concept and after the flywheel had built significant momentum. They used acquisitions as an accelerator of flywheel momentum, not a creator of it. In contrast, the comparison companies frequently tried to jump right to breakthrough with an acquisition or merger. It never worked. Often, with their core business under siege, the comparison companies would dive into a big acquisition as a way to increase growth, diversify away their troubles, or make a CEO look good. Yet they never addressed the fundamental question. What can we do better than any other company in the world that fits our economic denominator and that we have great passion for? They never learned the simple truth that while you can buy your way to growth, you absolutely cannot buy your way to greatness. Two big mediocrities joined together never make one great company. The second frequently observed doom loop pattern is that of new leaders who stepped in, stopped an already spinning flywheel, and threw it in a new direction. Consider Harris Corporation, which applied many of the good to great concepts in the early 1960s, and in fact began a classic build-up process that led to breakthrough results. George Dively and his successor Richard Tullis identified a hedgehog concept based on the understanding that Harris could be the best in the world at applying technology to printing and communications. Although it did not adhere to this concept with perfect discipline, Tullis had a penchant for straying a bit outside the three circles, the company nonetheless did make enough progress to produce significant results. It looked like a promising candidate for a good-to-great transformation, hitting breakthrough in 1975. Then, the flywheel came to a grinding halt. In 1978, Joseph Boyd became chief executive. Boyd had previously been with Radiation Inc., a corporation acquired by Harris years earlier. His first key decision as CEO was to move the company headquarters from Cleveland to Melbourne, Florida, Radiation's hometown, and the location of Boyd's house and 47-foot powerboat, The Lazy Rascal. In 1983, Boyd threw a giant wrench into the flywheel by divesting the printing business. At the time, Harris was the number one producer of printing equipment in the world. The printing business was one of the most profitable parts of the company, generating nearly a third of total operating profits. What did Boyd do with the proceeds from selling this corporate gem? 
he threw the company headlong into the office automation business. But could Harris become the best in the world at office automation? Not likely. Horrendous software development programs delayed introduction of Harris's first workstation as the company stumbled onto the battlefield to confront IBM, DEC, and Wang. Then, in an attempt to jump right to a new breakthrough, Harris spent a third of its entire corporate net worth to buy Lanier Business Products, a company in the low-end word processing business. Computer World Magazine wrote, Boyd targeted the automated office as a key. Unfortunately for Harris, the company had everything but an office product. The attempt to design and market a word processing system met with dismal failure, out of tune with the market, and had to be scrapped before introduction. The flywheel, which had been spinning with great momentum after Dively and Tullis, came detached from the axle, wobbled in the air, and then crashed to a grinding halt. From the end of 1973 to the end of 1978, Harris beat the market by more than five times. But from the end of 1978 to the end of 1983, Harris fell 39% behind the market. And by 1988, it had fallen over 70% behind. The doom loop replaced the flywheel. In the hardcover edition of Good to Great, on page 175, we show a diagram of the flywheel. And on page 179, we show a diagram of the doom loop. And I'm going to describe these briefly for you here. The flywheel. Picture it as a clockwise cycle going around, the flywheel building momentum. At the top, you take steps forward consistent with your hedgehog concept. That then accumulates visible results. People then are lined up and energized by those results. The flywheel builds momentum. You take more steps forward, consistent with the hedgehog concept. You get more visible results. People are lined up and energized by those increased results. The flywheel builds even more momentum. Then more steps, more results, more energy, more momentum, more steps, more results, more energy, more momentum. The doom loop, on the other hand, works the opposite direction. Now picture the circle going the other way. You start with disappointing results. And you react without understanding, some sort of lurching leap into the space or a big acquisition, whatever. You have a new direction, program, leader, event, fad, acquisition, and you get no buildup, no accumulated momentum. And that leads to even more disappointing results and more reaction without understanding and more new programs and directions and leaders and events and fads and acquisitions and you get less buildup less momentum, more disappointing results, and downward into the doom loop you fall. The flywheel as a wraparound idea of good to great. When I look over the good to great transformations, the one word that keeps coming to mind is consistency. Another word offered to me by physics professor R.J. Peterson is coherence. What is one plus one, he asked, then paused for effect. Four. In physics, we have been talking about the idea of coherence, the magnifying effect of one factor upon another. In reading about the flywheel, I couldn't help but think of the principle of coherence. However you phrase it, the basic idea is the same. Each piece of the system reinforces the other parts of the system to form an integrated whole that is much more powerful than the sum of the parts. 
It is only through consistency over time, through multiple generations, that you get maximum results. In a sense, everything in this book is an extrapolation and description of the pieces of the build-up to breakthrough flywheel pattern. And standing back to survey the overall framework, we see that every factor works together to create this pattern, and each component produces a push on the flywheel. On pages 183-84 of Good to Great's hardback edition, we include a table which summarizes many of the key ideas, but the header of the table is how to tell if you're on the flywheel or if you're in the doom loop. Think of it as two columns. On the left column is signs that you're on the flywheel, and on the right column, signs that you're in the doom loop. And I'm going to now go through the table doing one side in contrast to the other side. Sign that you're on the flywheel. You follow a pattern of buildup leading to breakthrough. Signs that you're in the doom loop. You skip buildup and try to jump right to breakthrough. Flywheel. You reach breakthrough by an accumulation of steps, one after another, turn by turn of the flywheel. It feels like an organic evolutionary process. Doom loop. Implement big programs, radical change efforts, dramatic revolutions, chronic restructuring, always looking for a miracle moment or a new savior. Flywheel. Confront the brutal facts to see clearly what steps must be taken to build momentum. Doom loop. Embrace fads and engage in management hoopla rather than confront the brutal facts. Signs you're on the flywheel. Attain consistency with a clear hedgehog concept, resolutely staying within the three circles. Sign you're on the doom loop. Demonstrate chronic inconsistency, lurching back and forth and straying far outside the three circles. Flywheel. Follow the pattern of disciplined people, first two. Disciplined thought, disciplined action. Doom loop. You jump right to action without disciplined thought and without first getting the right people on the bus. On the flywheel, harness appropriate technologies to your hedgehog concept to accelerate momentum. On the doom loop, run about like Chicken Little in reaction to technology, fearful of being left behind. On the flywheel, make major acquisitions only after breakthrough, if at all, to accelerate momentum. In the doom loop, make major acquisitions before breakthrough in a doomed attempt to create momentum. On the flywheel, spend very little energy trying to motivate or align people. The momentum of the flywheel itself is infectious. Whereas on the doom loop, you spend a lot of time trying to align and motivate people, rallying them around new visions. When you're on the flywheel, you let the results do most of the talking. When you're in the doom loop, you sell the future to compensate for lack of results. And finally, when you're on the flywheel, you maintain consistency over time, each generation building on the work of previous generations. And the flywheel continues to build momentum. When you're in the doom loop, you demonstrate inconsistency over time with each new leader bringing a radical new path. The flywheel grinds to a halt and the doom loop begins anew.
It all starts with the level 5 leaders who naturally gravitate toward the flywheel model. They're less interested in flashy programs that make it look like they're leading with a capital L. They're more interested in the quiet, deliberate process of pushing on the flywheel to produce results with a capital R. Getting the right people on the bus, the wrong people off the bus, and the right people in the right seats. These are all crucial steps in the early stages of buildup. Very important to pushes on the flywheel. Equally important is to remember the Stockdale paradox. We're not going to hit breakthrough by Christmas, but if we keep pushing in the right direction, we will eventually hit breakthrough. This process of confronting the brutal facts helps you see the obvious, albeit difficult, steps that must be taken to turn the flywheel. Faith in the end game helps you live through the months or years of buildup. Next, when you attain deep understanding about the three circles of your hedgehog concept and begin to push in a consistent direction with that understanding, you hit breakthrough momentum and accelerate with key accelerators chief among them pioneering the application of technology tied directly back to your three circles. Ultimately, to reach breakthrough means having the discipline to make a series of good decisions consistent with your hedgehog concept. Disciplined action, following from disciplined people who exercise disciplined thought. Disciplined people, disciplined thought, disciplined action. That's it. That's the essence of the breakthrough process. In short, if you diligently and successfully apply each concept in the framework and you continue to push in a consistent direction on the flywheel, accumulating momentum step by step, turn by turn, you will eventually reach breakthrough. It might not happen today or tomorrow or next week. It might not even happen next year, but it will happen. And when it does, you will face an entirely new set of challenges. How to accelerate momentum in response to ever-rising expectations and how to ensure that the flywheel continues to turn long into the future. In short, your challenge will no longer be how to go from good to great, but how to go from great to enduring great, from good to great to built to last. And that is the subject of the last chapter. Chapter Summary The Flywheel and the Doom Loop Good to great transformations often look like dramatic revolutionary events to those observing from the outside, but they feel like organic cumulative processes to people on the inside. The confusion of end outcomes, dramatic results, with process, organic and cumulative, skews our perception of what really works over the long haul. No matter how dramatic the end result, the good to great transformations never happened in one fell swoop. There was no single defining action, no grand program, no one killer innovation, no solitary lucky break, no miracle moment. Sustainable transformations follow a predictable pattern of buildup and breakthrough. Like pushing on a giant heavy flywheel, it takes a lot of effort to get the thing moving at all. But with persistent pushing in a consistent direction over a long period of time, the flywheel builds momentum, eventually hitting a point of breakthrough. The comparison companies followed a different pattern, the doom loop. Rather than accumulating momentum turn by turn of the flywheel, they tried to skip buildup and jump immediately to breakthrough. Then, with disappointing results, they'd lurch back and forth, to and fro, 
failing to maintain a consistent direction. The comparison companies frequently tried to create a breakthrough with large misguided acquisitions. The good to great companies, in contrast, principally used large acquisitions only after breakthrough to accelerate momentum in an already fast-spinning flywheel. Some unexpected results. Those inside the good to great companies were often unaware of the magnitude of their transformation at the time. Only later, in retrospect, did it become clear. They had no name, no tagline, no launch event, no program to signify what they were doing at the time. The good to great leaders spent essentially no energy trying to create alignment, motivate the troops, or manage change. Under the right conditions, the problems of commitment, alignment, motivation, and change largely take care of themselves. Alignment principally follows from results and momentum, not the other way around. And finally, in today's investor world, we learned that short-term pressures of Wall Street were not inconsistent with following this model. The flywheel effect is not in conflict with these pressures. Indeed, it is the key to managing them. Chapter 9. From Good to Great to Built to Last. It is your work in life that is the ultimate seduction. Pablo Picasso. When we began the Good to Great Research Project, we had a dilemma. How should we think about the ideas in Built to Last while doing the Good to Great Research? Built to Last, based on a six-year research project conducted at Stanford Business School in the early 1990s, answered the question, what does it take to start and build an enduring great company from the ground up? My research mentor and co-author, Jerry Iporas, and I studied 18 enduring great companies, institutions that stood the test of time, tracing their founding in some cases back to the 1800s, while becoming the iconic great companies of the late 20th century. We examined companies like Procter & Gamble, which was founded in 1837, American Express, founded in 1850, Johnson & Johnson, founded in 1886, and GE, founded in 1892. One of the companies, Citicorp, now Citigroup, was founded in 1812, the same year Napoleon marched into Moscow. The youngest companies in the study were Walmart and Sony, which traced their origins back to 1945. Just like this book, we used direct comparison companies, 3M versus Norton, Walt Disney versus Columbia Pictures, Marriott versus Howard Johnson, and so forth for 18 matched pair comparisons. We sought to identify the essential distinctions between great companies and good companies as they endure over decades, perhaps even centuries. When I had the first summer research team assembled for the Good to Great project, I asked, what should be the role of Built to Last in doing this study? I don't think it should play any role, said Brian Bagley. I didn't join this team to do a derivative piece of work. Neither did I, said Allison Sinclair. I'm excited about a new project and a new question. It wouldn't be very fulfilling to just fill in the pieces of your other book. Wait a minute, I responded. We spent six years on that previous study. It might be helpful to build on our previous work. 
Well, I seem to recall that you got the idea for the Good to Great study when a McKinsey partner said that Built to Last didn't answer the question of how to change a good company into a great company, said Paul Weissman. What if the answers are different, Jim? The debate continued for a number of weeks. Then Stephanie Judd weighed in with the argument that swayed me. I love the ideas in Built to Last, and that's what worries me. I'm afraid that if we start with built to last as the frame of reference, we'll just go round in circles and we'll just prove our own biases. It became clear that there would be substantially less risk in starting from scratch, setting out to discover what we would, whether it matched built to last or not. Early in the research then, we made a very important decision we decided to conduct the research for good to great as if built to last didn't even exist, had never been written, had never been done. This was the only way to clearly see the key factors in transforming a good company into a great one with minimal bias from our previous work. Then later, we could return to ask, how, if at all, do the two studies relate? Five years later, with good to great complete, we were able to stand back, look at the two works in the context of each other. And looking across the two studies, I offer the following four conclusions. One, when I consider the enduring great companies from built to last, I now see substantial evidence that their early leaders did in fact follow the good to great framework. The only real difference is that they did so as entrepreneurs in small, early-stage enterprises trying to get off the ground, rather than as CEOs trying to transform established companies from good to great. Two, in an ironic twist, I now see good to great not as a sequel to Built to Last, but actually as a prequel. You apply the findings in this book, in Good to Great, to create sustained great results as a startup or an established organization and then apply the findings and built to last to go from great results into an enduring great company. Three, to make the shift from a company with sustained great results into an enduring great company of iconic stature, you apply the central concept from built to last. Discover your core values and your core purpose beyond just making money, what we call the core ideology, and combine this with the dynamic of preserve the core, stimulate progress, which comes from the built-to-last work. Four, a tremendous resonance exists between the two studies. The ideas from each enrich and inform the ideas in the other. In particular, good to great answers a fundamental question, raised but left unanswered and built to last. What is the difference between a good BHAG, big, hairy, audacious goal, and a bad BHAG? Good to great in the early stages of built-to-last companies. Looking back on the built-to-last study, it appears that the enduring great companies did in fact go through a process of build-up to breakthrough following the good-to-great framework during their formative years. Consider the build-up breakthrough flywheel pattern in the evolution of Walmart. Most people think that Sam Walton just exploded onto the scene with his visionary idea for rural discount retailing hitting breakthrough almost as a startup company. 
but nothing could be further from the truth. Walton began in 1945 with a single dime store. He didn't open his second store until seven years later. Walton built incrementally, step by step, turn by turn of the flywheel, until the hedgehog concept of large discount marts popped out as a natural evolutionary step in the mid-1960s. It took Walton a quarter of a century, 25 years, to grow from that single dime store to a chain of 38 Walmarts. Then, from 1970 to 2000, Walmart hit breakthrough momentum and exploded to over 3,000 stores with over $150 billion, yes, billion, in revenues. Just like the story of the chicken jumping out of the egg that we discussed in the flywheel chapter, Walmart had been incubating for decades before the egg cracked open. As Walton himself wrote, Somehow over the years, people have gotten the impression that Walmart was just this great idea that turned into an overnight success. But it was an outgrowth of everything we'd been doing since 1945. And like most overnight successes, it was about 20 years in the making. If there ever was a classic case of build-up leading to a hedgehog concept, followed by breakthrough momentum in the flywheel, Walmart is it. The only real difference is that Sam Walton followed the model as an entrepreneur, building a great company from the ground up, rather than as a CEO transforming an established company from good to great. But it's the same basic idea. Hewlett-Packard provides another excellent example. Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard's entire founding concept for HP was not what, but who, starting with each other. They'd been best friends in graduate school and simply wanted to build a great company together that would attract other people with similar values and standards. The founding minutes of their first meeting on August 23, 1937, begin by stating that they would design, manufacture, and sell products in the electrical engineering fields, very broadly defined. But then those same founding minutes go on to say, the question of what to manufacture was postponed. Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard stumbled around for months trying to come up with something, anything, that would get the company out of the garage. They considered yacht transmitters, air conditioning control devices, medical devices, phonograph amplifiers, you name it. They built an electronic bowling alley sensor, a clock drive for a telescope, an electronic shock jiggle machine to help overweight people lose weight. It really didn't matter what the company made in the very early days, so long as it made a technical contribution and would enable Hewlett and Packard to build a company together with other like-minded people. It was the ultimate first who were best friends. Then what? We don't know what we're going to make. Startup. Later, as Hewlett and Packard scaled up, as they got the flywheel turning, they stayed true to the guiding principle of first two. After World War II, even as revenue shrank with the end of their wartime contracts, they hired a whole batch of fabulous people streaming out of government labs with nothing specific in mind for them to do. Recall Packard's Law, which we cited in Chapter 3. No company can grow revenues consistently faster than its ability to get enough of the right people to implement that growth and still become a great company. Hewlett and Packard lived and breathed this concept, 
and obtained a surplus of great people whenever the opportunity presented itself. Hewlett and Packard were themselves consummate level five leaders, first as entrepreneurs and later as company builders. Years after HP had established itself as one of the most important technology companies in the world, Hewlett maintained a remarkable personal humility. In 1972, HP Vice President Barney Oliver wrote a recommendation letter to the IEEE Awards Board for what they call the Founders Award. He wrote, While our success has been gratifying, it has not spoiled our founders. Only recently, at an executive council meeting, Hewlett remarked, Look, we've grown because the industry grew. We were lucky enough to be sitting on the nose of a rocket when it took off. We don't deserve a damn bit of credit. After a moment's silence, while everyone digested this humbling comment, Packard said, Well, Bill, at least we didn't louse it up completely. Shortly before his death, I had the opportunity to meet David Packard. Despite being one of Silicon Valley's first self-made billionaires, he lived in the same small house that he and his wife built for themselves in 1957, overlooking a simple orchard. The tiny kitchen with its dated linoleum and the simply furnished living room bespoke a man who needed no material symbols to proclaim, I'm a billionaire. I'm important. I'm successful. His idea of a good time, said Bill Terry, who worked with Packard for 36 years, was to get some of his best friends together and string some barbed wire. Packard bequeathed his $5.6 billion estate to a charitable foundation, and upon his death, his family created a eulogy pamphlet with a photo of him sitting on a tractor in farming clothes. The caption made no reference to his stature as one of the great industrialists of the 20th century. It simply read, David Packard, 1912 to 1996, rancher, etc. Level 5, indeed. Core ideology, the extra dimension of enduring greatness. During our interview with Bill Hewlett, we asked him what he was most proud of in his long career. As I look back on my life's work, he said, I'm probably most proud of having helped to create a company that by virtue of its values, practices, and success has had a tremendous impact on the way companies are managed around the world. The HP way, as it became known, reflected a deeply held set of core values that distinguished the company more than any of its products. These values included technical contribution, deep, abiding respect for the individual, responsibility to the communities in which the company operates, and a deeply held belief that profit is not the fundamental goal of a company. These principles, while somewhat standard today, were radical and progressive in the 1950s. David Packard said of businessmen from those days, while they were reasonably polite in their disagreement, it was quite evident that they firmly believed that I was not one of them, and obviously not qualified to manage an important enterprise. Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard exemplify a key extra dimension that helped elevate their company from one with just great results to an elite status, to a company of an iconic stature. 
That extra dimension is a guiding philosophy or a core ideology which consists of core values and a core purpose, a reason for being beyond just making money. These resemble the principles in the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, never perfectly followed, but always present as an inspiring standard and an answer to the question of why it is important that we exist. Enduring great companies don't exist merely to deliver returns to shareholders. In a truly great company, profits and cash flow become like blood and water to a healthy body. They're not the point of life. They're just essential for life. We wrote in Built to Last about Merck's decision in the 1980s to develop and distribute a drug that cured river blindness. This painful disease afflicted over a million people with parasitic worms that swarmed through the eyes to cause blindness. Because those who had the disease, tribal people in remote places like the Amazon, had no money, Merck initiated the creation of an independent distribution system to get the drug to remote villages and gave the drug away free to millions of people around the world. To be clear, Merck is not a charity organization, nor does it view itself as such. Indeed, it has consistently outperformed the market as a highly profitable company growing to nearly $6 billion in profits and beating the market by over 10 times from 1946 to 2000. Yet, despite its remarkable financial performance, Merck does not view its ultimate reason for being as making money. In 1950, George Merck, the second son of the founder, set forth his company's philosophy. We try to remember that medicine is for the patient. It is not for the profits. The profits follow. And if we have remembered that, they have never failed to appear. The better we have remembered it, the larger they have been. An important caveat to the concept of core values is that there are no specific right core values for becoming an enduring great company. No matter what core value you propose, we found an enduring great company that does not have that specific core value. A company need not have passion for its customers, Sony didn't, or respect for the individual, Disney didn't, or quality, Walmart didn't, or social responsibility, Ford didn't, in order to become enduring and great. This was one of the most paradoxical findings from Built to Last. Core values are indeed essential for enduring greatness. And yet, it doesn't seem to matter what those core values are. The point is not what core values you have, but that you have core values. That you know what they are that you build them explicitly into the organization, and that you preserve them over time. This notion of preserving your core ideology is a central feature of enduring great companies. The obvious question is, how do you preserve the core and yet adapt to a changing world? The answer? Embrace the key concept from built to last. Preserve the core and stimulate progress. Enduring great companies preserve their core values and purpose while their business strategies and operating practices endlessly adapt to a changing world. This is the magical combination of preserve the core and stimulate progress.
The story of Walt Disney exemplifies this duality. In 1923, an energetic 21-year-old animator moved from Kansas City to Los Angeles, and he tried to get a job in the movie business. No film company would hire him, so he used his meager savings to rent a camera, set up a studio in his uncle's garage, and begin making animated cartoons. In 1934, Mr. Disney took the bold step, never before taken, to create a successful, full-length, animated feature film. He did Snow White, then Pinocchio, Fantasia, and Bambi. In the 1950s, Disney moved into television with the Mickey Mouse Club. Also in the 1950s, Walt Disney paid a fateful visit to a number of amusement parks and came away disgusted, calling them dirty, phony places run by tough-looking people. He decided that Disney could build something much better, perhaps even the best in the world. And the company launched a whole new business in theme parks, first with Disneyland and later with Walt Disney World and Epcot Center. Over time, Disney theme parks have become a cornerstone experience for many families from all over the world. Throughout all these dramatic changes, from cartoons to full-length feature animation, from Mickey Mouse Club to Disney World, the company held firmly to a consistent set of core values that included a passionate belief in creative imagination, fanatic attention to detail, abhorrence of cynicism, and preservation of what they call the Disney magic. Mr. Disney also instilled a remarkable constancy of purpose that permeated every new Disney venture, namely to bring happiness to millions, especially children. This purpose cut across national borders and has endured through time. When my wife and I visited Israel in 1995, we met the man who brought Disney products to the Middle East. The whole idea, he told us with pride, is to bring a smile to a child's face. That's really important here, where there aren't enough smiles on the children. Walt Disney provides a classic case of preserve the core and stimulate progress, holding a core ideology fixed while changing strategies and practices over time. And its adherence to this principle is the fundamental reason why it has endured as a great company. On page 196-197 of the hardcover edition, you will see a diagram, if you look in the book, that is a yin and yang diagram. This is the way that we came to describe the whole preserve core stimulate progress idea. The left side of the yin-yang is about preserve. The right side of the yin-yang is about change. On the left side of the yin-yang, you have preserve core values and core purpose. On the right hand of the yin-yang, you have change. Change cultural practices, change operating practices, change goals, change strategies, change culture, change everything that's not part of those values and that core purpose. And it is this yin and yang dynamic between the two, the tension between the two, that provides that magic elixir of continuity and change. Bad BHAGs, and other conceptual links. 
In a table on page 198 of the hardcover edition of Good to Great, I've outlined a sketch of conceptual links between the two studies. As a general pattern, the Good to Great ideas appear to lay the groundwork for the ultimate success of the Built to Last ideas. I like to think of Good to Great as providing the core ideas for getting the flywheel turning from build-up to breakthrough, while Built to Last outlines the core ideas for keeping a flywheel accelerating long into the future and elevating a company to iconic stature. Each of the Good to Great findings enables all four of the key ideas from Built to Last. To briefly review here, those four key ideas are Idea number one, clock building, not time telling. Build an organization that can endure and adapt through multiple generations of leaders and multiple product life cycles, the exact opposite of being built around a single great leader or a single great idea. Idea number two, genius of the and. Embrace both extremes on a number of dimensions at the same time. Instead of choosing A or B, figure out how to have A and B. Purpose and profit. Continuity and change. Freedom and responsibility. The genius of and prevailing over the tyranny of or. Concept number three, core ideology. Instill core values, essential and enduring tenets, if you will, and core purpose, a fundamental reason for being beyond just making money, as principles to guide decisions and inspire people throughout the organization over a long period of time. And number four, the central organizing idea of Built to Last, preserve the core and stimulate progress. Preserve the core ideology, preserve the core values, preserve the core purpose as an anchor point while stimulating change, improvement, innovation, renewal, and everything else. Change practices, change strategies, while holding core values and purpose fixed. Set and achieve BHAGs, big, hairy, audacious goals, consistent with the core ideology. I'd like to highlight one particularly powerful link between good to great and built to last. The connection between BHAGs and the three circles of the hedgehog concept. In Built to Last, we identified BHAGs as a key way to stimulate progress while preserving the core. A BHAG, short for Big, Hairy, Audacious Goal, is a huge and daunting objective like a big mountain to climb. It is clear, compelling, and people get it right away. A BHAG serves as a unifying focal point of effort, galvanizing people and creating team spirit as people strive toward a finish line. Like the 1960s NASA moon mission, a BHAG captures the imagination and grabs people in the gut. The problem is, as exciting as BHAGs are, we left a vital question unanswered. What's the difference between a bad BHAG and a good BHAG? Swimming from Australia to New Zealand would be a BHAG for me, but it would also kill me. That would make it qualify as a bad BHAG. Well, we can now offer an answer to that question, drawing directly from the study of the good to great companies. Bad BHAGs, it turns out, are set with bravado. Good BHAGs 
are set with understanding. Indeed, when you combine the quiet understanding of the three circles with the audacity of a BHAG, you get a powerful, almost magical mix. In other words, go back to the three circles. Top circle, passion. Bottom left circle, best at. Bottom right circle, economic or resource engine. You find the intersection of those three circles, and your BHAG should fall right in the middle of those three circles. A superb example comes from Boeing in the 1950s. Until the early 1950s, Boeing focused on building huge flying machines for the military. The B-17 Flying Fortress, the B-29 Super Fortress, and later the B-52 Intercontinental Jet Bomber Stratofortress. However, Boeing had virtually no presence in the commercial aircraft market, and the airline showed no interest in buying aircraft from Boeing. You make great bombers up there in Seattle, why don't you just stick with that? they said in response to Boeing's inquiries. Today we take for granted that most air travel takes place on Boeing jets, but in 1952, almost no one outside the military flew on Boeing. Through the 1940s, Boeing had stayed away from the commercial sphere. It was an arena in which McDonnell Douglas had vastly superior abilities in the smaller, propeller-driven planes that composed the commercial fleet. In the 1950s, however, Boeing saw an opportunity to leapfrog, McDonnell Douglas by marrying its experience with large aircraft to its understanding of jet engines. Led by a level 5 leader named Bill Allen, Boeing executives debated the wisdom of moving into the commercial sphere. They came to understand that whereas Boeing could not have been the best commercial plane maker a decade earlier, the cumulative experience in jets and big planes they'd gained from military contracts now made such a dream possible. They also came to see that the economics of commercial aircraft would be vastly superior to the military market. And, of no small importance, they were just flat out turned on by the whole idea of building a commercial jet. It ignited their passions. So in 1952, Bill Allen and his team made the decision to spend a quarter of the company's entire net worth to build a prototype jet that could be used for commercial aviation. They built the 707 and launched Boeing on a bid to become the leading commercial aviation company in the world. Three decades later, after producing five of the most successful commercial jets in history, the 707, the 727, 37, 47, and 57, Boeing stood as the absolute unquestioned greatest company in the commercial airplane industry. Not until the late 1990s would Boeing's number one position be seriously challenged, and it would take a government consortium in the form of Airbus to do it. Here's the key point of the story. Boeing's BHAG, while huge, daunting, audacious, was not any random goal. It was a goal that made sense, within the context of the three circles. Boeing executives understood with calm equanimity, one, that the company could become the best in the world at commercial jet manufacturing, even though it had no presence in the market. Two, the shift would significantly improve Boeing's economics by increasing profit per aircraft model. And three, the Boeing people were very passionate about the idea. Boeing acted with understanding not bravado, at this pivotal moment in its history.
The Boeing case underscores a key point. To retain greatness over time requires, on the one hand, staying squarely within the three circles, while on the other hand, being willing to change the specific manifestation of what's inside the three circles at any given moment. Boeing in 1952 never left the three circles or abandoned its choreology, but it created an exciting new BHAG and adjusted its hedgehog concept to include commercial aircraft. The three-circle BHAG framework provides one powerful example of how the ideas from the two studies, Good to Great and Built to Last, link together, and I offer it here as a practical tool for creating this link within your own specific case. Yet it alone will not make your company great and lasting. To create an enduring great company requires all the key concepts from both studies tied together and applied consistently over time. And remember, if you ever stop doing any one of the key ideas, you will slide backward toward mediocrity. Remember, it's much easier to become great than to remain great. Ultimately, the consistent application of both studies, one building upon the other, gives the best chance for creating greatness that lasts. Why greatness? During a break at a seminar that I gave to a group of my ex-students from Stanford, one came up to me, brow furrowed. Maybe I'm just not ambitious enough, he said, but I really don't want to build a huge company. Is there something wrong with that? Not at all, I replied. Greatness doesn't depend on size. I then told him about Sina Cementobe, who runs the building where I have my research laboratory. Sina created a truly great institution. It's an old 1892 red brick school building that's been renovated into the most extraordinary space, decorated and maintained with tremendous attention to detail, bordering on perfection. By one definition of results, attracting the most interesting people in Boulder, setting a standard that other local buildings measure themselves against, and generating the highest profit per foot of space, his small enterprise is truly a great institution in my hometown. Sina Cementobe has never defined greatness by size, and there is no reason for him to. The student paused for a moment, then said, Okay, I accept that I don't need to build a big company in order to have a great company. But even so, why should I try to build a great company? What if I just want to be successful? The question brought me up short. This was not a lazy person asking. He'd started his own business as a young man, put himself through law school, and after graduate school became a driven entrepreneur. He has a remarkable energy and intense and infectious enthusiasm. Of all the students I've known over the years, he is one that I have little doubt will be enormously successful. Yet he questions, he questions the whole idea of trying to build something great and lasting. I can offer two answers. First, I believe that it is no harder to build something great than to build something good. It might be statistically more rare to reach greatness, but it does not require more suffering than perpetuating mediocrity. Indeed, if some of the comparison companies in our study are any indication, building greatness involves less suffering and perhaps even less work. 
The beauty and power of the research findings is that they can radically simplify our lives while increasing our effectiveness. There's great solace in the simple fact of clarity about what is vital and what is not. The point of this entire book is not that we should add these findings to what we are already doing and make ourselves even more overworked. No. The point is to realize that much of what we're doing is at best a waste of energy. If we organize the vast majority of our work time around these principles and pretty much ignored or stopped everything else, our lives would be simpler and our results improved. Let me illustrate this with a non-business example, the last story of this book. The coaching staff of a high school cross-country running team recently got together for dinner after winning its second state championship in two years. The program had been transformed in the previous five years from good, top 20 in state, to great, consistent contenders for the state championship on both the boys and girls teams. I don't get it, said one of the coaches. Why are we so successful? We don't work any harder than other teams. And what we do is just so simple. Why does it work? He was referring to the hedgehog concept of the program, captured in this simple statement, we run best at the end. We run best at the end of workouts. We run best at the end of races. And we run best at the end of the season when it counts the most. Everything is geared to this simple idea, and the coaching staff knows how to create this effect better than any other team in the state. For example, they place a coach at the two-mile mark of a 3.1-mile race to collect data as the runners go past. But unlike most teams, which collect time splits, minutes per mile running pace, this team collects place splits what place the runners are in as they go by. Then the coaches calculate not how fast the runners go, but how many competitors they pass at the end of the race, from mile two to the finish. They then use this data to award headbones after each race. Headbones are beads in the shape of shrunken skulls, which the kids make into necklaces and bracelets, symbolizing their vanquished competitors. The kids learn how to pace themselves and race with confidence, we run best at the end. We run best at the end. They think at the end of a hard race. So if I'm hurting bad, then my competitors must hurt a whole lot worse. Of equal importance is what they don't waste energy on. When the head coach took over the program, she found herself burdened with expectations to do fun programs and rah-rah stuff to motivate the kids and keep them interested parties and special trips and shopping adventures to Nike outlets and inspirational speeches. She quickly put an end to all that distracting and time-consuming activity. Look, she said, this program will be built on the idea that running is fun, racing is fun, improving is fun, and winning is fun. If you're not passionate about what we do here, then go find something else to do. The result, the number of kids in the program nearly tripled in five years from 30 to 82. Before the boys' team won the first-ever state cross-country championship in the school's history, she didn't explicitly set the goal. 
and she didn't try to motivate the kids toward it. Instead, she let the kids gain momentum, seeing for themselves race by race, week by week, turn by turn of that flywheel that they could beat anyone in the state. Then one day, out on a training run, one boy said to his teammates, Hey, I think we could win state. Yeah, I think so too, said another. Everyone kept running. The goal quietly understood. The coaching staff never once mentioned the state championship until the kids saw for themselves that they could do it. This created the strongest culture of discipline possible as the seven varsity runners felt personally responsible for winning state, a commitment made not to the coaches, but to each other. One team member even called all of his teammates the night before the state race just to make sure they were all getting ready for bed early. No need for the coaches to be disciplinarians on this team. Hammering through the last mile, passing competitors, we run best at the end, we run best at the end. Each kid hurt, but knew he would hurt a lot more if he had to look his teammates in the eyes as the only one who failed to come through. No one failed, and the team beat every other team in the state by a large margin. The head coach began rebuilding the whole program around the idea of first two. One of the assistant coaches is a 300-pound ex-shot putter, hardly the image of your lean distance runner. But he is without question the right who. He shares the values and has the traits needed to help build a great team. As the program built momentum, that flywheel gaining momentum, turn upon turn, race upon race, win upon win, it attracted more kids and more great coaches. People want to be part of this spinning flywheel. They want to be part of a championship team. They want to be part of a first-class culture. When the cross-country team posts yet another championship banner in the gym, more kids sign up. The gene pool deepens. The team gets faster which produces more championships, which attracts more kids, which creates even faster teams, and so forth and so on in the infectious flywheel effect. Are these coaches suffering more than other teams to create a great program? Are they working harder? No. In fact, all the assistant coaches have full-time professional jobs outside of coaching. Engineers, computer technicians, teachers, and they work for essentially no pay, carving precious time out of their busy lives to be part of building a great program. They're just focusing on the right things and not the wrong things. They're doing virtually everything we write about in this book within their specific situation and not wasting time on anything that doesn't fit. Simple, clean, straightforward, elegant, and a heck of a lot of fun. The point of this story is that these ideas work. When you apply them, they make your life and your experience better while improving results. And along the way, you just might make what you're building great. So I ask again, if it's no harder given these ideas, the results better, and the process so much more fun, well, why wouldn't you try for greatness? To be clear, I'm not suggesting that going from good to great is easy. Nor am I suggesting that everyone will successfully make the shift. 
By definition, it's not possible for everyone to be above average. But I am asserting that those who strive to turn good into great find the process no more painful or exhausting than those who settle for just letting things wallow along in mind-numbing mediocrity. Yes, turning good into great takes energy. But the building of momentum adds more energy back into the pool than it takes out. This is the secret. This is the secret. Conversely, perpetuating mediocrity is an inherently depressing process and drains much more energy out of the pool than it puts back in. I said there were two answers. There is a second answer to the question of why greatness, one that is at the very heart of what motivated us to undertake this huge project in the first place, the search for meaning, or more precisely, the search for meaningful work. I asked the head coach of the cross-country program why she felt compelled to make it great. She paused before answering. That's a really good question. Long pause. It's really hard to answer. More pause. I guess it's because I really care about what we're doing. I believe in running and the impact it can make on these kids' lives. I want them to have a great experience and to have the experience of being part of something absolutely first class. Now for the twist. The coach has an MBA from an elite business school and is a Phi Beta Kappa graduate in economics, having won the prize for the best undergraduate honors thesis at one of the most selective universities in the world. She found, however, that most of what her classmates went on to do, investment banking on Wall Street, starting internet companies, management consulting, working for IBM or whatever, held no meaning for her. She just didn't care enough about those endeavors to want to make them great. For her, those jobs held no meaningful purpose. And so she made the decision to search for meaningful work, work about which she would have such passion that the question, why try for greatness, would seem almost tautological. If you're doing something you care that much about and you believe in its purpose deeply enough, then it's impossible to imagine not trying to make it great. It's just a given. I've tried to imagine the level five leaders of the companies we've studied answering the question, why greatness? Of course, most would say we're not great. We could be so much better. But pushed to answer, why try for greatness? I believe they would respond much like the cross-country coach. They're doing something they really care about, about which they have great passion. Like Bill Hewlett, they might care first and foremost about creating a company that, by virtue of its values and success, has a tremendous impact on the way companies are managed around the world. Or like Ken Iverson at Nucor, they might feel a crusader's purpose to obliterate the oppressive class hierarchies that cause degradation of both labor and management. Or like Darwin Smith at Kimberly Clark, they might derive tremendous sense of purpose from the inner quest for excellence itself, being driven from within to make anything they touch the best it can be. Or perhaps like 
Lyle Everingham at Kroger or Cork Walgreen at Walgreens. They might have grown up in the business and they just really love it. You don't need to have some grand existential reason for why you love what you're doing or to care deeply about your work, although you might. All that matters is that you do love it and that you do care. So the question of why greatness is almost a nonsense question. If you're engaged in work that you love and care about for whatever reason, then the question needs no answer. The question is not why, but how. Indeed, the real question is not why greatness, but what work makes you feel compelled to try to create greatness? If you have to ask the question, why should we try to make it great? Isn't success enough? Then you might be engaged in the wrong line of work. Perhaps your quest to be part of building something great will not fall in your business life. But find it somewhere, if not in corporate life, then perhaps in making your church great. If not there, then perhaps a nonprofit or a community organization or a class you teach. Get involved in something that you care so much about that you want to make it the greatest it can possibly be, not because of what you will get, but just because it can be done. When you do this, you will start to grow, inevitably toward becoming level five. Early in the book, we wondered about how to become level five, and we suggested that you start by practicing the rest of these findings. But under what conditions will you have the drive and discipline to practice the other findings? Perhaps it is when you care deeply enough about the work in which you are engaged and when your responsibilities line up with your own personal three circles. When all these pieces come together, not only does your work move toward greatness, but so does your life. For in the end, it is impossible to have a great life unless it is a meaningful life. And it is very difficult to have a meaningful life without meaningful work. Perhaps then you might gain that rare tranquility that comes from knowing that you've had a hand in creating something of intrinsic excellence that makes a contribution. Indeed, you might even gain that deepest of all satisfactions, knowing that your short time here on this earth has been well spent and that it mattered. Epilogue Frequently Asked Questions Question How have the good to great companies fared since we completed the book? Certainly, some of the good to great companies have struggled in recent years, notably Fannie Mae and Circuit City, but others have performed exceptionally well. And happily, while some of the companies have had black eyes after we wrote the book, the significant majority of good to great companies demonstrated strong performance and the combined portfolio outperformed the market. Despite everything that happened in the intervening years, from the burst of the internet bubble to 9-11 to the Iraqi war. Yet, even if this were not the case, even if the combined set had not outperformed the market, the question of recent performance is irrelevant. It's irrelevant to the overall argument of this book. For one thing, the signature of a truly great company, a truly great entity of any type, 
is not the absence of difficulty, but the ability to come back from difficult times even stronger than before. When Jerry Porras and I first published my previous book, Built to Last, in 1994, IBM, one of the companies profiled in that book, found itself in the middle of a desperate turnaround, and we endured derision for including IBM in the book. Yet, a decade later, as I record this, IBM has returned as one of the most significant companies in the world. Resiliency, not perfection, resiliency is the signature of greatness, be it in a person, an organization, or a nation. Furthermore, even if one or two of our companies were to fall and then never regain their greatness, which is always possible, that could happen, even if that happened, that fact alone would not undermine the fundamental ideas we derived in our research. Think about it this way. Suppose we did a similar study, a good to great study, of great sports dynasties. And as part of that, we studied the great UCLA basketball dynasty of the 1960s and 70s, which went from an average team to winning 10 NC2A championships in 12 years under coach John Wooden. Suppose also that we compared the UCLA Bruins when they went from good to great under coach Wooden to a match pair that failed to go from good to great at the same time, say the UC Berkeley Golden Bears. Now suppose, further, that we repeat this analysis across a range of sports dynasties in history. We look at the Green Bay Packers when they went from good to great under Vince Lombardi and compare them to, say, the San Francisco 49ers. And we do this across dynasty after dynasty. And we develop a framework of principles about what it takes to go from good to great in a sports dynasty. Now, pause and ask yourself the following question. Is the UCLA Bruins basketball team a great dynasty today as you're listening to this recording? The answer in all likelihood is no. Certainly not at the same level as under John Wooden. Now consider this question. Would this fact negate the principles we learned by studying the Bruins when they went from good to great? No, of course not. The practices may have changed, but the principles, the timeless, true principles of building a great sports dynasty, of taking a sports dynasty from good to great, those principles would still stand, even if the UCLA Bruins ceased to live the principles that made them truly great in their best years. If we studied healthy people in contrast to a set of unhealthy people, and we derived principles of health, such as sound sleep and a balanced diet and moderate exercise. Now let's suppose later that some of those previously healthy subjects became unhealthy. Suppose they started to sleep badly, to eat poorly, and stopped exercising. Well, would it undermine the principles of sleep and diet and exercise? No. The answer is clearly no. All that would say is that some members of the original study set had ceased to live the principles of health 
that had made them healthy in the first place. Sleep, diet, and exercise would still hold as principles of health. We've been blessed with a fabulous base of thoughtful readers who grasp this essential distinction between the timeless principles and the list of specific companies at particular points in time we used to derive such principles. And that's the key point. The principles derived from studying a set of companies when they made a leap from good to great, in contrast to comparable companies at that moment in time that did not make a leap from good to great. Level 5 leadership, first two, the flywheel, the Stockdale paradox, the hedgehog concept, a culture of discipline, and so forth. These are like principles of health. These are like sleep, diet, and exercise. If you cease to live them, you will likely become unhealthy, which, if anything, further reinforces the validity of those principles. The point is not the list of companies. The point is the set of timeless principles, the concepts we derived by studying those companies. The 11 good to great companies were the only examples from our initial universe of Fortune 500 companies that met all the criteria for entrance into the study. They do not represent a sample. The fact that we studied the total set of companies that met our criteria should increase our confidence in the findings. We don't need to worry that a second set of companies from the Fortune 500 went from good to great, not by our criteria anyway, by other methods. Question. Why did only 11 companies make the cut? There are three principal reasons. First, we used a very tough standard, three times the market over 15 years, as our metric of great results. Second, the 15-year sustainability requirement is difficult to meet. Many companies show a sharp rise for 5 or 10 years with a hit product or a charismatic leader, but few manage to achieve 15 years. Third, we were looking for a very specific pattern. Sustained great results preceded by a sustained period of average results or worse. Third, we were looking for a very specific pattern. Sustained great results preceded by a sustained period of average results or even worse. Great companies are easy to find. But good to great companies are much more rare. When you add all these three factors together, it is not surprising that we identified only 11 examples. I'd like to stress, however, that the only 11 finding should not be discouraging. We had to set a cutoff, and we happened to choose a very tough one. If we had set a slightly lower hurdle, say 2.5 times the market or 10 years of sustainability, then many more companies would have qualified. After completing the research, I'm convinced that many organizations can make the journey from good to great if they apply the lessons in this book. The problem is not the statistical odds. The problem is that people squander their time and resources on the wrong things. Question. What about statistical significance given that only 11 companies made the final cut as good to great examples, and the total study size is 28 companies when you count the comparisons. 
We engaged two leading professors to help us resolve this question, one statistician and one applied mathematician. The statistician, Jeffrey T. Luftig of the University of Colorado, he looked at our dilemma and concluded that we do not have a statistics problem, pointing out that the concept of statistical significance applies only when sampling of data is involved. Look, you didn't sample companies, he said. You did a very purposeful selection and found the 11 companies from the Fortune 500 that met your criteria. When you put these 11 against the 17 comparison companies, the probabilities that the concepts in your framework appear by random chance are essentially zero. When we asked University of Colorado Applied Mathematics Professor William P. Briggs to examine our research method, he framed the question this way. What's the probability of finding, by sheer chance, a group of 11 companies, all of whose members display the primary traits we discovered while the direct comparisons do not possess those traits? He ran the numbers and concluded that the probability is less than 1 in 17 million there is virtually no chance that we simply found 11 random events that just happened to show the good to great pattern we were looking for. We can conclude with confidence that the traits we found are strongly associated with transformations from good to great. That said, I wish to underscore that I do not believe that we have found everything about greatness. There is more to discover. We have a good piece of the equation, but of course, we don't have the entire equation yet. That will require more ongoing future research. Question. Why do you limit your research to publicly traded corporations? Publicly traded companies have two advantages for research. One, a widely agreed upon definition of results, so we can rigorously select a study set. And two, a whole bunch of easily accessible data. Privately held companies have limited information available, which would be particularly problematic with the comparison companies. The beauty of publicly traded companies is we don't need their permission, we don't need their cooperation, we don't need their help to obtain the data. Whether they like it or not, vast amounts of information about them are a matter of public record. Question. Why did you limit your research to U.S. corporations? We concluded that rigor in selection outweighed the benefits of an international study set. The absence of apples-to-apples -apples stock return data from non-U.S. stock exchanges would undermine the consistency of our selection process. The comparative research process eliminates contextual noise, if you will, similar companies, industries, sizes, ages, and so forth and gives us much greater confidence in the fundamental nature of our findings than having a geographically diverse study set. Nonetheless, I suspect that our findings will prove useful across geographies, although I cannot prove it or demonstrate it to you with hard empirical evidence. A number of the companies in our study are, in fact, global enterprises, and the same concepts applied wherever they did business. Also, I believe that much of what we found Level 5 leadership in the flywheel, for instance, might be harder to swallow for Americans than for people from other cultures. At the same time, I believe there is a fruitful vein of research to be done 
where somebody could take the good to great research and do a strong academic study using the same method with Asian companies or South American companies or European companies to validate the findings in those different parts of the world. Question, why don't any high technology companies appear in the study set? Most technology companies were eliminated from consideration because, well, simply, they're not old enough to show the good to great pattern. We needed at least 30 years of history to consider a company for the study. 15 years of good results followed by 15 years of great results. Of the technology companies that did have more than 30 years of history, none showed the specific good to great pattern we were looking for. A number of them were great companies, but we didn't find any good to great. Intel, for example, never had a 15-year period of only good performance. Intel has always been great. If this study were to be repeated in 10 or 20 years, though, I would fully expect that high-technology companies would make the list. Question. How does good to great apply to companies that are already great? I suggest that they use both good to great and built to last to help them better understand why they are great so that they can keep doing the right things. As Robert Bergelman, one of my favorite professors from Stanford Business School, taught me years ago, the single biggest danger in business and life, other than outright failure, is to be successful without being resolutely clear about why you are successful in the first place. Question. How do you reconcile Philip Morris as a great company with the fact that it sells tobacco? Perhaps no company anywhere generates as much antipathy as Philip Morris. Even if a tobacco company can be considered truly great, and many would dispute that, there is doubt as to whether any tobacco company can endure, given the ever-growing threat of litigation and social sanction. Ironically, Philip Morris has the longest track record of exceptional performance from the date of its transition, 34 years, and is the only company that made it into both studies, good to great and built to last. This performance is not just a function of being in an industry with high margin products sold to addicted customers. Philip Morris blew away all the other cigarette companies, including its direct comparison, R.J. Reynolds. But for Philip Morris to have a viable future will require confronting square on the brutal facts about society's relationship to tobacco and the social perception of the tobacco industry. A large percentage of the public believes that every member of the industry participated equally in a systematic effort to deceive. Fair or not, people, especially in the United States, can forgive a lot of sins but will never forget or forgive feeling lied to. Whatever one's personal feelings about the tobacco industry, and there was a wide range of feelings on the research team and some very heated debates, having Philip Morris in both good to great and built to last has proved instructive. It's taught me that it is not the content of a company's values that correlates with performance but the strength of conviction with which it holds those values, whatever they might be. This is one of those findings that I personally find difficult to swallow, but that are completely supported by the data. 
For a further discussion of this topic, I would refer you to Chapter 3 of Built to Last. Question. What is the role of boards of directors in a transformation from good to great? First of all, boards play a key role in picking Level 5 leaders. The recent spate of boards enamored with charismatic CEOs, especially rock star celebrity types, is one of the most damaging trends for the long-term health of corporations. Boards should familiarize themselves with the characteristics of Level 5 leadership and install these types of leaders into positions of responsibility. Second, boards of corporations should distinguish between share value and share price. Boards have no responsibility to a large chunk of people who own company shares at any given moment, namely the share flippers. They should focus their energies on creating great companies that build value for shareholders. Managing the stock for anything less than a 5 to 10 year horizon confuses price and value and is irresponsible to shareholders. For a superb look at the board's role in taking a company from good to great, I recommend the book Resisting Hostile Takeovers by Rita Ricardo Campbell from Prager Publishers, 1997. Ms. Ricardo Campbell was a Gillette board member during the Coleman-Mockler era and provides a detailed account of how a responsible board wrestled with the difficult and complex question of price versus value. Question. Can hot young technology companies in this go-go world have level 5 leaders? My answer is two words. John Morgridge. Mr. Morgridge was the transition CEO who turned a small struggling company in the Bay Area into one of the great technology companies of the last decade. With the flywheel turning, this unassuming and relatively unknown man stepped into the background and turned the company over to the next generation of leadership. I doubt you've ever heard of John Morgridge, but I suspect you've heard of the company. It goes by the name Cisco Systems. Question. How can you practice the discipline of first two when there might be a shortage of outstanding people? First, at the top levels, you absolutely must have the discipline to not hire until you find the right people. The single most harmful step you can take in a journey from good to great is to put the wrong people in key seats. Second, Widen your definition of right people to focus more on the character attributes of the person and less on specialized knowledge. People can learn skills and acquire knowledge, but it's more difficult to learn the essential character traits that make them right for your organization. Third, take advantage of difficult economic times to hire great people, even if you don't have a specific job in mind. A year before I wrote these words, nearly everyone bemoaned the difficulty of attracting top talent away from hot technology and internet companies. Well, now the bubble's long burst, and tens of thousands of talented people have been cast into the streets. Level 5 leaders will view this as the single best opportunity to come along in two decades. Not a market or technology opportunity, but a people opportunity. First who, then what?
They will take advantage of these difficult times and hire as many of the very best people they can afford and then figure out what they're going to do with them. Question. How can you practice the discipline of the right people on the bus and the wrong people off the bus in situations where it's very hard to get the wrong people off the bus, such as academic institutions and government agencies? First, you might wish to visit our website, www.jimcollins.com, where by the time you're listening to this, I will likely have finished an article on good to great for the social sector. That article looks at the questions of how you deal with the challenges faced by those in the social sector, whether it be the challenges of the economic engine, the challenges of the right people on the bus, the challenges of legislative versus executive leadership, the challenges of getting a flywheel going in a difficult funding environment. There's a range of things that make the social sector somewhat different than the business sector. In that article, I explicitly address the question of getting the right people on the bus and hanging on to them, whether it be in a tenure environment where you've got issues where you can't get the wrong people off the bus, or whether it be in, a, say, a volunteer environment where the need for rigor might even be higher. I will refer you to that article. The website will tell you where to get it, or it may be posted at the website by the time you hear this. Therein, you will find the best answer to this question. Question. I'm an entrepreneur running a small company. How do these ideas apply to me? Funny you should ask. In the intervening years since we finished writing Good to Great and the time that I'm recording this, we actually began a new research project. That research project looks at this specific question. It asks the question, how can you go from a position of vulnerability to greatness when you're facing perhaps a very hostile or turbulent environment? We are beginning that by looking at small entrepreneurial companies that then went public and became great. We're starting with the best performing IPOs, finding those that went on to attain the best results from that position of IPO when they were once small and vulnerable enterprises, and then we're looking at those that sustained it in the face of very turbulent, severe environments. That third study to go along with Good to Great and Built to Last is underway as I speak. It will be done, but I would like to underscore one thing. I'm now three years into that research as I record this. There is nothing in the research so far that suggests that these ideas fail to apply when you're a young, small entrepreneur. If anything, it turns out they are even more important. Question. I'm not CEO. What can I do with these findings? Plenty. The best answer I can give is to reread the story at the end of Chapter 9 about the high school cross-country coach. She wasn't CEO. She didn't get to run the school district. She wasn't the governor of the state of Colorado. Yet she built a pocket of greatness on her minibus. That is your number one responsibility, to build a pocket of greatness on your minibus. Question. Where and how should I begin? First, teach yourself the findings. Learn from the book. Drink deeply from the ideas. Remember, no single finding by itself makes a great organization. You need to have them all working together as an integrated set. Then, work sequentially through the framework, starting with first who and moving through all the major components. 
All the while, work continuously on your own development toward level five leadership. I've laid out this book in a sequence consistent with what we observe in the companies. The very structure of the book is a roadmap. Final question. What have you learned since publishing Good to Great about how to become level five? I've received this question perhaps more than any other since we published Good to Great. And I by and large have good news here. First, I've come to the conclusion that we have many level five leaders. We have level five potential throughout society. And I know this because after the book was published, I started getting hundreds and hundreds of emails and people coming up to me at events and conferences and saying, there was this person in my life, Jim, that I never could really explain. They delivered amazing results, but they didn't fit the normal model of leadership that I'd grown up with. And then I read the level five finding and, and I discovered they're a level five. I got it. I understood. I finally could categorize them in a way that explained their success. And it might have been a level five platoon commander or a level five division manager or a level five scout troop leader or a level five teacher or a sports coach. I mean, they came from all kinds of walks of life. And I came to see that level five is like the mortar that holds the bricks of society together. When we look at society, we see the bricks. We don't pay attention to the mortar, but it's the mortar that holds the edifice in place. That's level five, and it's distributed throughout society. Our problem is not a lack of level five. Our problem is the lack of wisdom to put level five at the very top of our institutions. Now that said, how might an individual move towards level five? And to me, this is not an academic question because when I wake up in the morning and I'm standing there shaving and I'm looking in the mirror, I can assure you I don't see a level five staring back at me. I know all too well that I have a long way to go towards achieving anything resembling level five. And I don't know if I personally will actually succeed at that. But I have learned a little bit about the process. And I'd like you to think about it this way. Imagine you're walking down a road and you hit a fork in the road. And in that fork is a decision. You have a choice to make. Now, imagine that that fork has these two different branches. And one branch, if you're really honest with yourself, is the decision that is ultimately at its deepest level about you. It's about how the decision will benefit you, or it's about avoiding your own discomfort. Uh, it's, a, it's a decision that you don't want to take because it would be personally painful or emotionally draining, or might cost you something, or be politically dangerous in some way, right? But that fork, that decision choice, that's about you. And then we go over, there's another fork, another choice, another decision that is what the level five would do. The decision choice that is what Darwin Smith would do or what David Maxwell would do or what any level five would do. The decision that is best for the overall work, that is best for the overall cause, that is best for the overall company, not necessarily you. And that when you're at that fork, we're all human. We can feel the pull to the side to make the decision that is really about us. And we know it, we're weak. That's the nature of being human. We're tempted. We break. And to expect of yourself that you will always make the level five choice is not realistic. I think the best level fives I've studied did not have a perfect track record. The real key is this. It's to in 
increase the percentage of times that at that fork, when your humanness pulls you to the weak side, to the dark side, to the side that's about you, you will yourself to the level five decision. And maybe at first it's only one in 10 times, and then maybe it's two in 10 times, and maybe someday you get up to six or seven out of 10 times at that fork in the road, you make the level five choice. And I don't know if in some great cosmic sense at that moment you are a level five. But I know this. Those who work with you will experience you as a level five. It's a long journey. It's a personal journey. It's a series of decisions. It's iterative. You won't get there in one step. The key is to start with those diligent, step-by-step -step decisions, increasing your hit rate. One final thing. I have personally found that when you put the level five idea out there and then you assemble yourself with honest, brutal facts people on your council and on your team, and I've been blessed by such people, if you get people who are irreverent and they're going to push you and they're going to challenge you, guess what? They'll tell you when you're not being level five. And I've had members of my team say to me any number of times, you can do that if you want, Jim, but just so you know, we know. It's not level five. And to have people on your team who will call you on it, that will throw it in your face, like cold splash of water, you can do it, but you're not being level five. It's a mechanism of honesty. And there's this wonderful relationship by having the right people who confront the brutal facts, who will throw the brutal fact of your non-level fiveness right in your face. That's a very powerful way to go about level five. Get people around you who will tell you when you're not. I wish you the best in your journey from good to great, not just in a company, but perhaps if you're involved in the social sector or if you're involved in making changes in your own life going from good to great, or if you're involved in building an economic enterprise, it doesn't really matter. The ideas are the ideas. And one thing I've concluded, and I'll pass this along to you, none of us ever get there perfectly. But if we apply these ideas with a degree of integrity, where we know the truth of whether we're living them, I believe that in the end, we will get not only great results, but that very satisfying, deep understanding and quiet tranquility from knowing that we did our very best. And in the end, only you really know if you did your very best. I'll close this audio reading before the acknowledgments and a few comments about appendices with just a short little story that in many ways captures, I think, the essence of this whole idea. It was a story told to me by Peter F. Drucker, one of my role models who I believe is a true level five thinker. Drucker tells the story of a Greek sculptor in about 500 BCE. And the sculptor was hired to carve a bunch of statues for the front of a building in Athens. And the sculptor went away and carved them and put a lot of effort into the statues and came back and was a little late with the project. And the reason is because he'd made the backs of the statues as beautiful as the fronts of the statues. And the city fathers got all upset and they were angrily asking, why did you put all this effort into the backs of the statues? No one will ever see the backs of the statues. And the sculptor replied, Yes, but the gods can see it.
and I know it's there. In the end, building something great has more to do with the integrity of your input. I can't guarantee that you will absolutely have great results, but I can guarantee that the best feeling about what you do will come when the backs of the statues that no one else can see are as beautiful as the fronts of the statues. Not because of what you'll get for it, but simply because it's a higher standard. And that quiet knowledge of that higher standard that only you know, well, that, in the end, is what I most wish for you. Now that you've been through the journey of good to great, you might be interested to know that there are extensive appendices in the hardcover edition of the book. Uh, these appendices lay out the research process. For example, in Appendix 1A, we have the selection process for the good to great companies, and it shows systematically how we started with the 1,435 companies and worked through a series of cuts to get down to the 11 good to greats. If you're interested in that analysis, you will find it there. In Appendix 1B, we lay out for you the explicit process and methodological steps that we took to identify and then score comparison candidates so that we could pick the best comparison candidate for each good to great company. You will find in that appendix the explicit criteria and then you will see a list of all of the companies we considered and how they were systematically scored to get the final list of comparisons. In appendix 1C we lay out the process and the analysis for picking the unsustained comparisons. And you will see the actual unsustained stock return patterns we use to pick the six unsustained comparisons. In Appendix 1D, we lay out an overview of all of the additional research steps. For example, we lay out how we did coding of all of the information, looking at articles and materials from the companies and books written on the industry and the companies and business school case studies. It basically lays out all of the types of sources of information that we used and how we organized and categorized that information into a series of coding categories. Categories such as organizing arrangements and social factors and business strategies and markets and environment, leadership, product services, physical setting, location, use of technology, and so forth. We lay out for you there the financial spreadsheet analysis, showing all of the types of financial ratios that we ran for all of the companies over a 50-year period. We also laid out the executive interviews. In the appendix, you will find the actual questions that we put to all of the executives. You will also find a listing of how many interviews we conducted in each of the good to great companies. You will also find a list of all of the special analysis units that we conducted. For example, the acquisitions and divestitures analysis and the explicit questions that we explored. The industry performance analysis. The executive churn analysis. The analysis of CEOs, their tenure, inside, outside, and so forth. You will see all of the analyses that we ran on executive compensation. You will also see the types of analyses we did when we looked at things like layoffs, corporate ownership, media articles and media hype, technology analysis, plus a series of comparative analyses on such things as the use of evolutionary versus revolutionary corporate process. In Appendix 2A, 
you can find a detailed inside versus outside CEO analysis, company by company and in aggregate. In Appendix 5A, you can see the industry by industry analysis rankings, where we came to the conclusion that you don't need to be in a great industry to have a great company. In Appendix 8A, this is an appendix that's probably worth looking at, we actually laid out the doom loop behavior in all of the comparison companies. So for each of the direct comparisons and for each of the unsustained comparisons, we actually laid out a little write-up of all of their lurching doom loop behavior. It's an entertaining table. In Appendix 8B, you can see a summary company by company and in aggregate of the acquisition analysis. Finally, of course, at the end of the book, you can find the specific chapter notes where all of the references and source materials are cited relative to the footnotes in the actual hardcover edition. I hope as a listener you'll forgive me belaboring the appendices here, but I believe deeply in the importance of rigorous research and in sharing with our readers our research process so that you can see it's like full disclosure, transparency, exactly what we did. Additionally, it's something that other people can use to replicate this kind of research, which increases its, if you will, scientific validity without actually being pure science. To have pure science, you'd have to have predictability. We can't have that, but we can certainly have replicability, which can be attained here. I do get a lot of emails and comments from people that they actually enjoy pouring through the appendices and playing around with the numbers and looking at all the specific details. I didn't expect that, but it's kind of a delightful after effect. If you enjoy that sort of thing, I point you to the appendices and uh, have fun. Additional acknowledgments. Many people help this book be successful. It goes far beyond just myself. I am going to read all of the names of the people who were helpful in the project. I will do my best to get the pronunciation correct. If I have garbled any names in the process, I apologize in advance. I would like to thank Dennis B. Nock of the University of Colorado Graduate School of Business, who was instrumental in helping me identify and recruit the very best graduate students to join the research team. Getting the right team members on the bus was the single most important step in making the project successful. And Dennis played a singularly important role in getting a whole busload of great people. Also at the University of Colorado, I'm indebted to Carol Chrisman and her dedicated staff at the William M. White Business Library, who patiently worked with members of the research team to locate all sorts of arcane information. In addition to Carol, I'd like to acknowledge Betty Graby, Lynette Laker, Dinah McKay, Martha Josani, and Jean Whalen. I'm particularly indebted to a large number of critical readers who invested hours in reading drafts of the manuscript and feeding me the brutal facts about what needed to be improved. Yet, despite sometimes searing and always helpful feedback, they continually reinforced my faith in the potential of the project. For their frankness and insight, I would like to thank Kirk Arnold, R. Wayne Boss, Natalia Cherny Roca, Paul M. Cohen, Nicole Toomey Davis, Andrew Fenneman, Christopher Foreman, William C. Garrick, Terry Gold, Ed Greenberg, Martha Greenberg, Wayne H. Gross, George H. Hagen, Becky Hall.
Liz Heron, John G. Hill, Ann H. Judd, Rob Kaufman, Joe Kennedy, Keith Kennedy, Butch Kersner, Alan Casey, Ann Knapp, Bettina Kosky, Ken Kretschmer, Barbara B. Lawton, Ph.D., Kyle Lefkoff, Kevin Maney, Bill Miller, Joseph P. Modica, Thomas W. Morris, Robert Merlick, John T. Miser, Peter Nosler, Antonia Ozeroff, Jerry Peterson, Jim Reed, James J. Robb, John Rogers, Kevin Ruman, Heather Reynolds Sagar, Victor Sanvito, Mason D. Schumacher, Jeffrey L. Seglin, Sina Cementobe, Oren Smith, Peter Stouthammer, Rick Sterling, Ted Stolberg, Jeff Tarr, Gene Taylor, Kim Hollingsworth Taylor, Tom Tierney, John Vitale, Dan Wardrop, Mark H. Willis, David L. Witherow, and Anthony R. Yu. We were very fortunate to have the participation of executives instrumental in the transformation of the good to great companies who patiently endured our questions during one to two hour interviews and at times follow up conversations. To each of the following people, I would express my hopes that this book captures the best of what you accomplished. Truly, you are the unsung heroes of American business. Robert Aders, William F. Aldinger III, Richard J. Appert, Charles J. Ashour, Jr., Dick Ochter, H. David Acock, James D. Burned, Douglas M. Bibby, Roger E. Burke, Mark C. Breslowski, Eli Broad, Dr. Charles S. Brown, Walter Bruckert, Vernon A. Bruner, James E. Campbell, Fred Canning, Joseph J. Sisko, Richard Cooley, Michael J. Crotelli, Joseph F. Coleman III, John A. Doherty, Douglas D. Drysdale, Lyle Everingham, Meredith B. Fisher, Paul N. Fruitt, Andreas Gembler, Milton L. Glass, James G. Grossklaus, Jack Grundhofer, George B. Harvey, James Herring, James D. Havlicek, Gene D. Hoffman, J. Timothy Howard, Charles D. Hunter, F. Kenneth Iverson, James A. Johnson, L. Daniel Jornt, Robert L. Joss, Arthur Jurgens, William E. Kelvey, Linda K. Knight, Glenn S. Crace, Robert J. Levin, Edmund Wattis Littlefield, David O. Maxwell, Hamish Maxwell, Ellen Merlow, Hyman Myers, R.J. Miller, John N. D. Moody, David Nassif, Frank Newman, Arthur C. Nielsen, Jr., John D. Ong, Dr. Emmanuel M. Pepper, Richard D. Parsons, Derwin Phillips, Marvin A. Pullman, William D. Pratt, Fred Perdue, Michael J. Quigley, George Rathman, Carl E. Reichert, Daniel M. Rexinger, Bill Rivas, Dennis Roney, Francis C. Rooney, Jr., Wayne R. Sanders, Robert A. Schulhorn, 
Bernard H. Semler, Samuel Siegel, Thomas F. Skelly, Joseph P. Stiglich, Joseph F. Turley, Glenn S. Utt, Jr., Edward Villanueva, Charles R. Walgreen, Jr., Charles R. Walgreen III, William H. Webb, George Weissman, Blair White, William Wilson, Alan L. Wurzel, and William E. Zierden. Numerous people from the companies in our research were enormously helpful with arranging interviews and providing us key documents and information. In particular, I would like to note Catherine Babington, David A. Baldwin, Anne Fahey Weidman, and Miriam Welty Tremsgood at Abbott Laboratories. Anne M. Collier at Circuit City, John B. Tuquoyo at Fannie Mae, David Fausch and Danielle M. Frizzy at Gillette, Tina Berry for her assistance at Kimberly Clark and her insights about Darwin Smith, Lisa Crouch and Angie McCoy at Kimberly Clark, Jack Cornett at Kroger, Terry S. Lizenby and Cornelia Wells at Nucor, Stephen C. Parrish and Timothy A. Sapolsky at Philip Morris, Cheryl Y. Battles and Diana L. Russo at Pitney Bowes, Thomas L. Mamoser and Lori L. Meyer at Walgreens, and Naomi S. Ishida at Wells Fargo. I would like to give special thanks to Diane Campagno Miller for her help in opening doors at Wells Fargo, John S. Reed for his help in opening doors at Philip Morris, Sharon L. Wurzel for her help in opening doors at Circuit City, Carl M. Brower for his insights on Circuit City and generous sharing of his manuscript, James G. Clausen for his Circuit City cases and insights. Karen Lewis for her assistance with Hewlett-Packard Company Archives, Tracy Russell and her colleagues at the Center for Research and Security Prices for their diligence in ensuring that we had the most current data available, Virginia A. Smith for her helpful guidance, Nick Sagar for key beta, Marvin Bressler for his insight and wisdom, Bruce Wolpert for helping me to understand the concept of mechanisms and for his ongoing support, Ruth Ann Bagley for her diligent proofreading, Dr. Jeffrey T. Luftig for access to his remarkable brain, Professor William Briggs for his ability to break a complex problem into useful simplicity, Admiral Jim Stockdale for his invaluable teaching, Jennifer Futernick for her inspiration in creating the McKinsey Salon that ignited this project, and Bill Meehan for the initial spark. I would like to make special note of Jerry Porras, as my research mentor, James J. Robb as my talented graphics consultant, Peter Ginsburg as my trusted agent and fellow council member in the publishing world, Lisa Berkowitz, who makes magic happen, and Adrian Zakheim, who has enthusiastically believed in and supported this book from the moment he learned of it. Finally, I am deeply thankful for my great good fortune to be married to Joanne Ernst. After 20 years of marriage, she continues to put up with my somewhat neurotic nature and propensity to become consumed with projects such as this one. Not only is she my most helpful critic, but she is also my deepest and most enduring support. The ultimate definition of success in life is that your spouse likes and respects you ever more as the years go by. By that measure, more than any other, I hope to be as successful as she is. 
Good to Great, copyright 2001 by Jim Collins. Production copyright 2005 by HarperCollins Publishers. We hope you've enjoyed this program from Harper Audio. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.